All right, here we go. Now the show's starting. Welcome to the mop-up for May 30th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 70 degrees and sunny. On today's show, where is it? There we go. Kelly Carlin. There we are. Can you see the book? She's the author of a Carlin Home Companion, an executive producer of the new HBO series, George Carlin's American Dream. She's coming up in about, oh, 90 minutes. And in an hour, we're going to meet Benjamin Hernandez from Invisible, Indivisible, Indivisible, Houston. Benjamin was running for Congress in Texas, and he confronted Senator Ted Cruz this past week while Ted Cruz was in Houston eating dinner right after he spoke before the NRA convention. You probably saw this, but I'm going to play it for you right now. This is our our guest, Benjamin Hernandez, confronting Ted Cruz. That's our guest coming up in about 50 minutes, Benjamin Hernandez. He ran for Texas's ninth con- congressional district. Uh, go to BenjaminHernandez.com to find out how we can support him. I'm hoping he runs again for Congress. Great man, Benjamin Hernandez. Interesting story. And uh, it's great to see somebody like Benjamin Hernandez confronting Ted Cruz while Cruz was in Houston. I think it was either Thursday or Friday, trying to enjoy his dinner with his family right after he spoke before the NRA convention. Ted Cruz takes more money from the National Rifle Association, more money than any other senator or congressperson in Washington, D.C. There have been at least 11 mass shootings this Memorial Day weekend, according to the Washington Post. That's as of Sunday. A mass shooting is defined as four or more people shot or killed, not including the shooter. As of Sunday, since the massacre of those school children in Uvalde, Texas, 10 Americans have been killed, 61 injured in mass shootings, and that is lowballing the number. I'll have more, a lot more to say about the shooting in Texas in just a moment and then at the end of the show. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was arrested in California's Napa Valley for drunk driving this weekend after he crashed his 2021 Porsche into another vehicle near one of the couple's multi-million dollar vineyards. After the accident, Paul Pelosi said he was confused 
didn't know what he was doing, where he was going, and lost complete control, which are also the exact same words Nancy Pelosi will be muttering right after this year's midterms. The field sobriety test consisted of the officer asking Paul Pelosi to stand on one leg and count backwards from one million of his inside trades. Paul Pelosi, worth close to $200 million, was released on $5,000 bail. Gee, I, I wonder where he was able to scrounge up the money. Was it in the glove compartment of the Porsche or the coffee cup holder near the stick? $5,000. It's always nice when the bail is cheaper than the bottle of wine you got arrested for drinking. Pelosi is in his 80s. That's Paul Pelosi, married to the speaker. Paul Pelosi is in his 80s and never worked an honest day in his life. This lazy sack of human excrement actually considers drinking and driving multitasking. That's how lazy a sack of human excrement Paul Pelosi is. He considers drinking and driving multitasking. Paul Pelosi's blood alcohol level registered higher than 0.08, which also happens to be his wife's latest approval ratings. Nancy Pelosi wasn't with him at the time of the accident. She was back east doing the people's business taking on climate change, assault weapons, and income inequality by accepting an honorary degree from Brown University. Who says the Democrats are out of touch? Paul Pelosi crashes his Porsche while driving to one of his Napa Valley vineyards while his wife is giving a pep talk to one of the Ivies, and I don't mean Ivy Getty. Nancy Pelosi, if you'll remember, was late for that big climate summit last year because she had to stop off in San Francisco to officiate the wedding of oil heiress Ivy Getty. Like I said, who says the Democratic Party is out of touch with the working people? Speaking to graduates of Brown University, Speaker Pelosi addressed the world's problems by telling graduates to, quote, heal America's fractured soul. Brown costs $75,000 a year. That's exactly what these kids are focused on. What? I'm frozen. God damn it. Uh, can you hear me at least? All right. My face is frozen. Hey, how ironic. My face is frozen when I'm talking about Nancy Pelosi. This isn't Botox, folks. Is it fixed? Okay. Unlike Nancy Pelosi, my face is frozen from a bad internet connection. Not too much Botox. Uh, but you were able to hear me, right, honey? Okay. Uh, I only say honey publicly. It makes me sound uh, like a good person. Uh, so anyway, Nancy Pelosi uh, told uh, the kids from Brown who pay $75,000 a year for tuition. She said that uh, you uh, have to focus on healing America's fractured soul. That, that's the very first thing on their mind right now, those students. 
That's why they chose Brown to heal America's fractured soul at $75,000 a year. On behalf of every student not attending an elite college, hey, Nancy Pelosi, instead of my soul, how about you healed my fractured student debt with your two vineyards? You have a vineyard for each $100 million that you have. Anyway, back to her criminal husband, Paul Pelosi. People are saying it's not fair to judge Nancy Pelosi by the actions of her husband. Right. He just happens to have been uh, lucky enough to get a $200 million stock and real estate portfolio. It just happened. It had absolutely nothing to do with Nancy Pelosi's career as Speaker of the House. In fact, many of you don't know this, but the couple only lives on the money Nancy makes as Speaker of the House. You know, all those vineyards they own, they bought them from her salary as Speaker of the House. They're a regular Herbert and Dorothy Vogel. Herbert and Dorothy Vogel. Look them up. Before being administered, uh, before being administered the field sobriety test, Paul Pelosi called Nancy on the phone and said, honey, it's me, your inside trader idiot of a husband, Paul. You know how you always complain that you're the one who has all the inside information? Well, guess what, honey? Now I got some inside information for you. Call our broker. You ready? Guess who's just about to get arrested for drunk driving? Me. That's right. Me. And you say I never do anything all by myself. I'm just about to get arrested for drunk driving. So call the broker. This is inside information. You're hearing it first. We're going to make a fork and tell the kids. Tell the kids no reason they shouldn't dip their beak too. Okay, honey, I love you almost as much as I love our $200 million. Wow, what a family, huh? And they represent the Democrats. They're supposed to speak for the working man. A spokesman for the Pelosi family denied Paul Pelosi has a drinking problem and said the reason Paul Pelosi always looks completely shit-faced is from all that time spent kissing Jeff Bezos' ass. Listeners to this show will recall that Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul, spent the past year trading millions of dollars of stock in Amazon, Google, and Apple, big tech companies that are subject to regulation by his wife. You know, in in Paul Pelosi's defense, you really don't need inside information uh, to trade on the fact that Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats will never, ever do anything to rein in Silicon Valley. I mean, what's this idiot asking his wife before they got before they go to bed? Hey, honey, got any inside skinny for me? Are you going to do nothing about big tech or are you planning to do absolutely nothing about big tech? That's what the Democrats do. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nancy Pelosi and her husband couldn't even be bothered to show up in Uvalde, Texas for the funerals. She's busy picking up honorary degrees at an Ivy League university while he's getting pickled at one of his vineyards while the rest of us are burying schoolchildren. That's how much Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi cares about America.
shahidforchange.us. Go to shahidforchange.us. He's running against Nancy Pelosi. She won't debate him. He's running third party. It's time to get rid of Nancy Pelosi, her husband, as well as the entire Democratic leadership. We're bearing school children and Nancy Pelosi and her husband are parting it up. Anybody ever check on the workers at Paul and Nancy Pelosi's vineyards? They have, I think, at least two vineyards. You would think the media would uh, find out about the people who pick their grapes. Are they United Farm Workers? I'd like to know. Because this is the Democrats. This is who we rely on for Medicare for All, the PRO Act, universal background checks for guns. We depend on them for addressing climate change, and they couldn't care less. Did I ever mention that Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, my senator, Senate Majority Leader and Democrat. Did I ever mention that Chuck Schumer's two daughters graduated from Harvard Law and are now lobbyists for Amazon and Facebook? Did I ever mention that? And I haven't even touched the type of law our vice president's husband, Doug Jagoff, practiced in Hollywood that they're sitting on. When you find out what first husband Doug Jagoff did as a lawyer in Hollywood, just when you think you can't hate the vice president anymore, wait till you look into, wait till they look into Doug Jagoff's law practice. And Joe Biden, what can I tell you that won't come out in the six impeachment trials scheduled for 2023 once Nancy Pelosi loses the House? I wonder why she's so unpopular. Hmm. Well, do I sound angry? Yeah, it's, it's better to be angry than depressed. And people are really angry all over America. And they're... They're angry at our cops. I've never seen anything like this before. That Uvalde, Texas police chief now has two officers stationed outside his home sitting in a patrol car. His cops will keep him perfectly safe, unless, of course, an armed intruder brandishing an assault weapon storms inside that house. Then the chief's completely on his own for at least an hour. This week... This was the week America woke up and finally realized the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good armor-plated robot guy with a gun. Nobody's going in. Nobody. You can't pay anybody enough to go in and take on an AR-15. Half that town's budget went for police. Had the town's entire budget gone for police, the cops still would have been too terrified to confront a semi-automatic assault weapon designed to butcher a nest of enemy snipers. The conversation on mass shootings shifted dramatically last week. For the first time, the right is shamelessly blaming our cops for Tuesday's staggering body count. Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott said of his police officer's lackadaisical response that he's quote-unquote livid because he couldn't possibly blame his precious assault weapons or the laws he has passed that make AR-15s easier 
for an 18-year-old to purchase than a pack of cigarettes. Greg Abbott, Abbott is livid, and he's going to do something about this. What's he going to do? He's going to blame the police. That's what Republicans do when they are wrong. They send out a posse searching for a scapegoat. They found one. It's our pusillanimous cops. I hope I didn't pronounce pusillanimous right. Uh, Yes, the cops, they're the ones to blame for all those dead schoolchildren. And so this past week and moving forward, America has been promised from now on, every police officer has been put on notice that when there's an active shooter, do not wait for the SWAT team. Go in there. Go in there with the weapons you have, not the weapons you wish you had. Starting now, the rules of engagement engagement couldn't be more explicit. All cops are expected to walk directly into a shower of bullets. Failure to do so will render them cowards and legally liable. From now on, mass shootings are the fault of our police. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Republican governors, Republican mayors, police sheriffs, the NRA and NRA-owned politicians throughout Texas and America. Those are not my words. It's not the guns. It's the cowardly police not wanting to get ripped apart by an AR-15. Nice. Nice. But maybe, just maybe, the real cowards are America's police chiefs. Maybe the real cowards are America's police unions. Maybe our police chiefs and police unions are too chicken shit to take on the NRA and all those gun manufacturers who shower the police chiefs and the police unions with money, vacations, side hustles, and other assorted goodies. Maybe American police chiefs and police unions don't really care that their officers are unhinged from these assault weapons flooding our streets. Maybe American police chiefs and police unions are as afraid of the NRA as our cops are of getting blown apart by weapons of war. Police chiefs and police unions wield enormous political power. Republicans, especially Republicans, are terrified of police unions. They are terrified of police chiefs because Republicans purport to be the party of law and order. So they desperately need the police chiefs and the police unions on their side. So until American police chiefs and police unions stand up to the National Rifle Association, until they stop taking money from gun manufacturers, we need to hold them responsible for every single mass shooting going forward. The cops aren't cowards. Police chiefs and police unions are. They're too chicken shit to stand up to the NRA. Police chiefs and police unions are 
the cowards for not demanding an assault weapons ban. It doesn't have to be this way, and it wasn't. This wasn't always the case. Our police chiefs, our police unions demanded gun control until the NRA panicked and purchased their silence. You see, police chiefs and the police unions, they spoke up in 1994, and that's exactly how America ended up with the assault weapons ban. It was the police chiefs and the, and the unions who stood behind Bill Clinton and the Democrats to help get it passed. It's really hard for the right wing to take on the police chiefs and the police unions. And so that scared the NRA. In 1994, the NRA got terrified of police chiefs and police unions, so they began pouring money into police unions and police departments to purchase their political clout, mostly their silence when it comes to the assault weapons ban. Ten years later, 2004, police chiefs and union heads sat back and said nothing as the assault weapons ban expired and the number of mass shootings exploded. It's been nearly 20 years, hard to believe, it's been nearly 20 years since the assault weapons ban expired. And since then, the NRA has created a new breed of cop. The NRA has created a new breed of schoolchildren, one with targets on their backs knowing nobody cares. And it's made the cops and the kids sick in the head. And now, the new directive, loud and clear, police must not wait for the SWAT team. Cops are teaching children to play dead, to dip their hands in their friend's blood so it looks like they've already been hit. This is deranged. America is demented. Republicans are now insisting the mentally ill shouldn't be allowed to buy a gun. Well, thanks to the NRA, our entire country now falls into that categorization. Our minds are defective. This whole country is mentally ill because of the guns. We have PTSD. So none of us should be allowed to purchase a gun. What kind of twisted people would order police officers to run into a barrage of bullets pouring out of an AR-15. Where are the police chiefs and the police unions on this? At one time, before the NRA got their hands on the police unions and the police chiefs, the police chiefs and the police unions used to speak for the cops, not the gun manufacturers. Think about this new directive for a second. Think about this. Police, police must now run into the line of fire without protection and confront an active shooter even when that officer is completely outgunned. Otherwise, they are cowards who are legally liable. Now, I talked about this last week. Former Broward County Deputy Scott Peterson was arrested on 11 criminal charges, including child neglect and negligence. And he's going on trial this year 
for not pursuing the shooter who fired that assault weapon inside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were eventually killed. It's the police officer's fault. That's the only person who's been on trial because of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. The police officer. Not the people who make the AR-15s. Not the people who sold the shooter the AR-15s. Just the police officer and the shooter. In America, we put the cop on trial for not chasing after a shooter, but you cannot arrest or even sue the crackpot who sold another crackpot an AR-15. The fact that we allow this is dispositive that not a single American possesses the compost mentis to own a gun. Let me repeat that because that's very uh, fancy language that I'm proud of. And whenever I use fancy language, it belies the fact that I have nothing important to say. So I'd rather have you be impressed by my legalese than what I'm saying, because what I'm saying is garbage. I use flowery, flowery, flowery language to obfuscate the fact that I have nothing to say. So let me read this again. The fact that we allow this is dispositive that not a single American possesses the compost mentis to own a gun. I don't care if most of you don't understand what I'm saying. That makes me look smart. And I need to look smart because I have nothing to say. I use the word dispositive and compost mentis. So you people should be impressed. I hate everybody. Mostly myself. What kind of sick country? What kind of sick country would rather protect gun manufacturers than its own cops and children? The mentally ill, Republicans say, shouldn't be allowed to purchase a gun? Fine. That means all of us should not be allowed to purchase a gun. We are all sick. I believe we lack the compost mentis to own a gun. It's time for American police chiefs and police unions to say their officers, just like our school children, refuse to be cannon fodder for gun manufacturers. Now, I'm seeing a huge swing against the police coming from the right. I've never seen anything like this. You know, during Trump, they went, the right went after the deep dark state, the FBI, to blame away all of Trump's imperfections. Now, they're actually going after the police. I, I guess it was inevitable. So police chiefs and police unions, you better decide quickly. Who do you speak for? Your officers or the NRA? Right now... It sure sounds like it's the NRA. Protect your officers and demand an assault weapons ban because they're coming after the police now. The NRA, they're blaming the police because the NRA cares more about the gun manufacturers than they do the police. And that's to be expected if... The NRA couldn't care less about school children. Why would they care about the police? 
That's your NRA. Today is Memorial Day, and I'd like to honor the brave men and women of the National Rifle Association leadership who served our nation in the time of war. All, none of them, all, none of them, nobody in the current National Rifle Association leadership ever served our nation in the time of war. Now, in all fairness, Colonel Oliver North was president of the NRA briefly, and he did serve in Vietnam, but the NRA got rid of him because he kept asking too many questions about the NRA's finances. When Colonel Oliver North was president of the NRA, three years ago, he launched an investigation into NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre's financial improprieties and concluded that if the IRS and the government ever discovered what was going on with the NRA's finances, the NRA would lose its tax-exempt status. Oh, by the way, the NRA has t- doesn't pay taxes. So just when you think you can't hate the NRA enough. So there was a brief civil war within the NRA. Wayne LaPierre won that civil war, and Oliver North quit And the investigation into Wayne LaPierre's, at least the internal investigation into Wayne LaPierre's finances stopped. Oliver North quit the NRA. That is how corrupt the National Rifle Association is. It's too dirty for Oliver North, the guy who took a huge dump on our Constitution by performing an end run around Congress by illegally selling weapons to Iran, our nation's enemy at the time. And he took the proceeds from that sale and violated the Bolin Amendment, which specifically prohibited Americans from uh, giving weapons to the Contras in Nicaragua. He's a criminal. Oliver North broke an entire constellation of laws. He is a criminal. He defiled our Constitution. He is anything but a patriot. Oliver North disgraced the men and women in uniform. And even still, the NRA is too filthy for Oliver North, who was perhaps one of the filthiest Americans of the 20th century. That's how filthy Wayne LaPierre is. So how do we get the guns off the streets? A lot of people say, let's get rid of the Second Amendment. Hey, I'm all for that. Uh, But what are we going to do right now? I don't want to wait 20 years to get rid of the Second Amendment. That's how long it's going to take. And we're not going to get rid of the Second Amendment. What are we going to do right now? There are 400 million guns in this country. And it's just growing. Ghost guns. We don't even know how many guns are in America. 12 years ago, gun makers sold 5.4 million guns. This year, they are expected to sell more than 12 million firearms. I don't know what to do. I have some, some ideas. If I have time, I'm going to talk about them. And then I'll finish up at the end of the show to tell you some other suggestions. Professor Adam Winkler was on our show about 10 years ago. He's one of America's leading experts on the Second Amendment. He wrote in the Atlantic magazine about a decade ago that 43 state constitutions here in America specifically protect the right of an individual to own a gun. So it's not just the Second Amendment. It's just not 
the U.S. Constitution that's the problem. We have 43 state constitutions that are a problem. So, yes, we can, I can make an argument against the Second Amendment. Uh, Professor Winkler does he, he in that piece in Atlantic. Uh, I'll link to it in my newsletter. He says that the same founding fathers who gave us a Second Amendment also believed in gun control. For instance, our founding fathers uh, said freed slaves were not permitted to own guns. Men who refused to swear an oath to the revolution were not allowed to own a gun. And in 1792, three years after our Constitution was ratified, any man who served in a citizen-style militia had to register his rifle with the government. So there is a convincing argument for gun control. We're losing it. We're losing it. I think because the gun manufacturers want to make guns more than Americans want to keep their schoolchildren alive. Personally, I think all guns should be illegal. I think the only people who should be allowed to carry a gun are the police. And if you don't like our police, then vote, run for office, become a police officer. I think the police right now are more dangerous than they've ever been because so many civilians are packing. I know I would like to come for the guns. Uh, I wish we could. If I were president, I would. But I know that we can't. Because I think uh, people, I, I don't like people who collect guns. Uh, I think they're demented. And I think their love of guns, for the most part, for the most part, masks a hatred for freedom, democracy, and anyone who isn't white. Underneath the NRA is a hatred for black people. They never support black people who get shot by cops. Uh, whenever a, a black person is shot to death by a cop and they find a gun in that black person's car, the NRA never, ever comes to their defense because the gun culture is rooted in a hatred for black people. In the Dred Scott decision, Judge Tawney, he wrote the decision, he wrote that freeing the slaves would be a threat to our Second Amendment freedoms because freed slaves would be allowed to own guns, and nobody wants that. That was in the Dred Scott decision. Tawney wrote, if we free the slaves, we'd have to get rid of the Second Amendment because we can't allow black people to be citizens because that means they would be able to get guns. One of the justifications for not freeing the slaves was guns. If freed blacks became citizens, then they would have a right to own guns. And according to the Dred Scott decision, therein lies madness, the madness of allowing freed slaves to buy guns. The black codes after the Civil War in the South did not allow freed slaves to own guns. According to Adam Winkler, however, this is still not, uh, we're still not going to win this argument. Uh, and we're not going to, I don't see how we get rid of the Second Amendment because of, I don't know if that does it. 
according to Adam Winkler, too much of our gun culture is rooted in the 14th Amendment. Not the Second Amendment, the 14th Amendment. So much of legal precedent for gun rights is based not so much on the Second Amendment, but the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection under the law. Equal protection means the right to bear arms. There is, in other words, a panoply of laws and judicial precedents that would make it next to impossible to get rid of the Second Amendment. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I think we start right now. I think we should get rid of the Second Amendment. But what else could we do right now? Uh, Well, it pains me to say this, but believe it or not, there are responsible gun owners. I hate those words coming out of my mouth. In fact, three out of four NRA members support background checks. They support making it harder for people to buy assault weapons. The problem is the National Rifle Association doesn't represent its members. The NRA represents gun manufacturers and gun manufacturers only. Smith Wesson, Six Sauer, Sturm, Ruger and Company, Glock, and Kimber Manufacturing make up nearly two-thirds of all the gun sales in America. And they, they use the NRA as their lobbying group. Now, these are corporations who feel, who, their people, who feel a responsibility. These corporations feel a responsibility not to school children, to teachers or cops, but to shareholders and shareholders only. They must grow each year. They need to show more profits. They need to increase sales. Uh, And they do business with the federal government because our military needs these companies to make our weapons. And these weapons must be tested. I can assure you Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas, were seen as proving grounds for these gun manufacturers who studied the shooters to see how their AR-15s held up in the field. Did they jam? These shootings are proving grounds for the gun manufacturers. The gun makers are no different from Exxon, United Healthcare. They don't care if their product kills Americans. Their job is to increase profits. But here's something we need to remember. United Healthcare and the gun manufacturers, Exxon, their profits depend on the purchasing power of the United States government. You see where I'm going here? We, we, we don't need to get rid of the sec- Second Amendment. We need to remember the purchasing power of the United States government. The fossil fuel industry, the health insurance industry, and the gun industry all spend billions convincing Americans that government isn't the solution. It's the problem. And yet, when it comes to solutions for these corporations, the government has all of them. All the solutions for these corporations come from the government. Fossil fuels, for-profit health insurance, and gun manufacturers need the government because our government is their biggest customer. Uh, 
the American government is their biggest customer. I told you this last week, and it's important to keep reminding you of this. One third of the American economy is what federal, state, and local government spends. One third of our economy is what our government purchases. You know who knows that? The people who tell you we need smaller government. They want you to stop depending on the government because the less money for us, the more for them. Your tax dollars subsidize Exxon because the government is the single largest purchaser of its oil. Plus, we subsidize their drilling and we provide them with tax breaks. But we are, our government is Exxon's biggest customer. Our government is private health care and Big Pharma's biggest customer. Forget the subsidies and the tax breaks. We are Big Pharma and for-profit health insurance's biggest customer. Medicaid and Medicare all go through for-profit health insurance companies. And that makes our government their biggest customer. Big Pharma, who do you think buys all the drugs? Medicare. We are Big Pharma's biggest customer. And our government is the biggest customer when it comes to purchasing weapons. And when I say weapons, forget the military contractors who make the bombs and the jets. I'm talking about the gun makers. The Pentagon doesn't manufacture its own assault weapons. It must purchase them. The police in America subsidize the gun makers because the police do not make their own assault weapons. The government is the single biggest customer of these assault weapons. Daniel Defense out of Georgia made the AR-15 used in the massacre last week at Robb Elementary. According to the New York Times, Dan Defense, Daniel Defense received $3.1 million from the Paycheck Protection Act. Why are gun manufacturers getting your tax dollars? Biden could stop that right now. That's how you get reelected, Joe Biden. This year, the Pentagon signed a contract with Daniel Defense to provide $9 million worth of weapons. Joe Biden is the commander-in-chief. Cancel the contract. Start punishing the manufacturers of AR-15s right now. You can do that with a stroke of the pen, Joe Biden. You say, you want to do business with our Pentagon? Then you can't sell 18-year-olds Assault weapons. You cannot sell the same weapons to 18-year-olds that you sell to soldiers. According to the New York Times, the CEO of Daniel's, Dan, what is it called? Daniel, Daniel Defense. More like offense. Uh, according to the New York Times, the CEO, Marty Daniel, got his start back in 2002 when U.S. Special Forces paid him $20 million to produce accessories for combat rifles, and soon they started buying his assault weapons. He made more and more deals with the American military, and that wasn't enough. Marty wanted more. So in 2009, Daniel Defense began marketing 
to ordinary consumers. See, they knew their rifles had the military's stamp of approval. So Daniel Defense began advertising to American consumers with the slogan, use what they use. So not only is Daniel Defense profiting off the Pentagon, without our permission, they are using the Pentagon to sell their weapons to consumers. That's not legal. That's copyright infringement. You don't get to use our Pentagon to to sell weapons to consumers. After Sandy Hook, Daniel Defense told Forbes that gun sales surged and he had to increase production. And he became consumed with marketing to consumers, especially children. He marketed his assault weapon, the AR-15 that was used on the school children in Uvalde, Texas last week. He marketed his AR-15 to children. He placed ads with the assault weapon, the AR-15, in the lap of a child coupled with Christian language about raising your kids right. Four of Daniel Defense's military-style weapons were found inside the hotel room of the Las Vegas sniper who killed 59 people in 2017. Why are we giving him our business? He's irresponsible. You can keep your Second Amendment, but why is the government doing business with a threat to the community? So one of the ways Joe Biden could move on gun control right now is stop going to funerals and issue an executive order mandating the military will not purchase assault weapons from any manufacturers who sells those same assault weapons to consumers. Right now, Joe Biden can sign an executive order that says local police departments are forbidden from using federal dollars to purchase any weapons for manufacturers that also sell to ordinary consumers. That would change things because gun makers rely on the government, that evil government, for their profits. They demonize the government. They get consumers to buy assault weapons by demonizing the government that is responsible for all their profits. It's very simple, Joe Biden. Stop feeling our pain. Issue an executive order that says, if you want government contracts, then stop selling your assault weapons to 18-year-old sociopaths. The president could do that right now. Yeah, It'll be challenged in the courts, but it's something, something that will get you and your party reelected. It will energize 80% of the American voters who want to put an end to these killings, who want universal background checks, who do not want AR-15s sold to 18-year-old sociopaths. This is how you win elections. By taking on the NRA. Do it. Take it to the courts. Let the Supreme Court overturn it. It'll give you more political clout. You make 
you you get political clout, Biden, by making enemies. Make enemies with the gun manufacturers. You're the commander in chief and you're being bullied by the gun manufacturers, you coward. Stand for something, Joe Biden. Don't tell us how hard it is to get the guns off the street. Fight. Fight as hard as the NRA fights to keep these assault weapons on the street. Tell the American people that the NRA is your enemy and that you as president will do everything you can to put the NRA out of business. Fight. And when you lose in the courts, dust yourself off, stand back up and fight again. Why is it Letitia James, the attorney general of New York? Why is it Letitia James? Why is she the one suing to put the NRA out of business? Why isn't the Biden administration withdrawing the NRA's tax exempt status? Stay home from these funerals, Joe Biden. Get to work. You want to win elections? This is how. There are millions of ways to keep hitting the NRA and the gun manufacturers. Your Justice Department should be prosecuting the gun manufacturers for the way they manufacture to kids the same way other Justice Departments of the past took on cigarette companies for marketing to kids. You have an FTC, a Federal Trade Commission. Use it. Sue the NRA. Sue these gun manufacturers into oblivion. If the NRA won't give up, then we can't give up. We need politicians and lawyers constantly dreaming up new laws, new lawsuits to bankrupt the gun manufacturers into submission. Keep your Second Amendment. Keep, keep it. We need leaders in the Democratic Party. They're all these hyper-educated lawyers. They lack the creativity these lawyers lack the creativity to sue these gun manufacturers into bankruptcy. This is not about winning. It's about punching and punching and punching and wearing the National Rifle Association and the gun manufacturers down. We don't need to get rid of the Second Amendment to get rid of these guns, get rid of the guns. We need to elect governors, mayors, sheriffs, presidents who will get down in the gutter and fight the NRA the same way the NRA fights for the gun manufacturers. There are more of us than there are gun manufacturers, NRA members, or people who don't want an assault weapons ban. More Americans want an assault weapons ban. This is a game of inches. That's what politics is. It requires a ground game of dedicated professionals who never give up. And that's the problem with the Democratic Party. It's filled with dedicated professionals who always give up. There is no deus machina that will solve our gun problem. There's no easy fix like getting rid of the Second Amendment. That's never going to happen. It's a ground game. 
You have to stop feeling paralyzed and start fighting the gun makers in the courts, in the state legislatures, in the executive branch, in Congress, in the FTC, in the Justice Department, OSHA, by any means necessary. Teachers unions should be demanding gun laws. Cities, mayors, sheriffs, cops, and police unions should be suing the gun manufacturers for getting their people killed. Sue them into bankruptcy. The NRA is our enemy. We can break them. Demand that your tax dollars don't subsidize gun makers who sell to 18-year-olds. You want to sell to 18-year-olds? Fine, you can't sell to the military. Well, I will, uh, we're out of time, uh, but I'm going to talk more about gun control and mental health uh, later on on the show. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. I think we have a new friend who's going to be coming on in three minutes, Benjamin Hernandez. Uh, this is who I'm talking about. This, this is our leadership. He ran for Congress out of Texas. I don't think he won the primary. We'll find out. But he knows how to take on the NRA. So we will talk to Benjamin Harrison, Hernandez, Benjamin, Benjamin Hernandez. And then we're going to be talking with our old friend Kelly Carlin, author of the book, A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. And she's executive producer of that fantastic HBO documentary that Judd put together uh, on the life and career of the greatest stand-up comic who ever did it. Nobody will ever be as good as George Carlin. Uh, we'll be talking with Kelly Carlin. We'll be back with Benjamin Hernandez right after this. Oh, it's one of those days. That's right, my, my computer crashed. So I can't... Well, let me see if I can do so. All right. Uh... I've got one minute to try something. It's Memorial Day, so we're going to have tech problems today. It's one of those days. I might be able to do something. I doubt it. While we're waiting to see if my computer will reboot, uh, maybe it'll work. Let's see. Uh, let me just try this. All right. Let's see. Distraction. We wake every morning 
like the Rolling Stones, cause we just can't get no satisfaction. Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. All right. The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, 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 slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Now we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare. 
that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. Well, we're living every night. A distraction We're living every day Living every night In the USA A distraction We're living every day All right. Sorry about that. We're having technical problems. I'm really honored to introduce our next guest. Go to BenjaminHernandez.com. Friday night, Ted Cruz spoke at the NRA convention in Houston. And like a typical Texan who's just celebrated the Second Amendment, he decided to go out for sushi because nothing says man of the people more than sushi. And a gentleman, this gentleman, Benjamin Hernandez, walked up to Senator Ted Cruz and asked if he could uh, get his picture taken with Senator Ted Cruz. And he put his arm around Senator Ted Cruz and then uh, struck up a conversation with the senator about gun rights. And I'm having technical problems, but I want to see if I can play this because it's very important that you see what real leadership looks like, not what Beto did, although I was glad Beto did what he did, but this this is real leadership. Can you see this? Here we go. Please welcome Benjamin Hernandez. Welcome, Benjamin. You have to unmute yourself. Are Sorry you about that. Hey there. So you ran for Texas 9. Did you run against Al Green, the Democratic congressperson for that seat? I did. This was, though, uh, a, a few years back in, in 2018, actually. I uh, had actively avoided politics until... 
you know, 2016. And when I saw Trump and everything that he represented uh, to me, I was like, I have to get involved. And, and to that point, honestly, I was like, oh, politics, gross, Democrats, Republicans, that's not my thing. But I think that year, like many Americans, I think it was a call to action. And for me, it was like, well, what's the best way to uh, get a crash course in this thing that I've avoided all my life. And for me, that was running. And, and of course, running as an independent is a suicide mission. Um, but for me, it was, you know, how do I get involved in this space that I haven't been in? And, and I need to catch up quickly because things are happening too quickly. Um, and of course, you know, I, 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 I lost, uh, I mean, I got 4% of the vote and I'm rounding up. I think it was closer to three, but I, it somehow makes me feel better to say 4%. Right. Um, but the point is I'm, I'm actively involved in the work now. You know, I quit my job and career and have pivoted to be involved in the, in, in the political space. You're now. with Indivisible Houston. Yeah. So also with, with, so I'm a board member of Indivisible Houston, you know, we're a grassroots organization that we are about holding politicians and their corporate funders accountable. Um, you know, but also from my business, you know, one thing that I learned from running for office is that, Hey, the world, the political world is changing. And so I, I started up a company. I run now a digital advertising company that we focus on, uh, you know, working with political candidates, mostly women and people of color to get them to run for office because, you know, running as an independent, that, that's hard. And, you know, the lack of infrastructure, what I realized is it's not only for independence, the lack of infrastructure is there for the candidates who aren't part of the establishment or, you know, you, you know, part of that group. So part of our mission is really to help people run for office. Right, right. So I want to talk to you about briefly, I'm sure you're sure. sick of talking about confronting Ted Cruz. Now it's important. We we have to talk about these things. Here's now, what's so. important. To, here's what's important to me. Was his wife Heidi there? She was. There. Were, were his kids there? Looked they like, were there. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important for the wife and children to to see that. People mm -hmm. will say to you, "How dare you do that in front of his wife and kids while mm -hmm. they're bearing nineteen school children because of him." You you weren't menacing him. You weren't threatening him. You were. He touched you. You didn't touch him. He put his arm around you. He won, and he was condescending, and went with "You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about." And that's what you say when you're just taking more money from the NRA than anybody else in Washington and can't defend it. What here's what made me happy. Were you arrested? No, I wasn't arrested, no. His no. security guards, the people who were holding you back. Yeah, they were his security guards. Mm -hmm. They let you speak. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to waste that opportunity. Um, you know, I think that... Um, you know, Ted Cruz has got to be the unluckiest guy in, in the greater Houston area. You know, what I tell people, there's six million people here and that that guy showed up to dinner at the same place where I'm having dinner, you know. Um, oh, you you didn't plan this? This was spontaneous? 
oh, no, 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 no. Let's lay like, yeah, out. Let's start there. I think, no, no, no. Yeah, this wasn't planned. I mean, that's why I think like to me, it was like, I have to do this. You know, so earlier in the week, my friend, I'll, I'll get to, I'll come back to this. But earlier in the week, my friend, the, the president and co-founder of Indivisible Houston, uh, you, you know, we're known for this kind of actions, right? So the one I'm going to describe, but uh, I'll tell you how this all came together. Um, so we, uh, he calls me Wednesday night and he says, hey, I got this idea. And I was like, all right, this is 10 o'clock and we're both busy as hell. Like we both got businesses to run. And he tells me, hey, I've got these cutouts of Ted Cruz. Let's put on them. I murdered teachers and children and take them to the George R. Brown Convention Center the next morning, right in front of the doors with the NRA labels. So there we are the next morning. We're putting them there. We take the pictures. Right. And then we push them out locally. You know, that's the kind of stuff Indivisible does. And so then on Friday, my company, you know, we volunteered to do all the live streaming services for the uh, NRA protests, right? And so I'm in this space where we just did this thing of the cutout. I'd spent all day doing the live streaming at the protest, supporting it. And I'm just trying to go to dinner, right? I go home and change and my wife and I, you know, uh, end up going to Uptown Sushi, a place that we've been there before. We, we, we like their sweet old rolls and their avocado rolls. Um, so, but anyways, that's why I say like, Ted Cruz has got to be the most unlucky guy because in a city of 6 million people, right? <laughs> you know, this guy, like an activist, part of indivisible and then you show up to the same place and to me that's just fate i'm like i just like i gotta do this because our paths don't cross and if you're gonna come into the space where i'm having dinner i'm gonna let you have a piece of my mind right yeah no it wasn't planned it was that's what i'm saying like ted cruz man it's got to be unluckiest guy Uh -uh. right you know i i i don't think he's capable of shame but i think his daughters and his I don't know about Heidi, but his daughter should see that. They should know who their dad is. Uh, You know, peacefully, he did it peacefully. You didn't address them, but they should bear witness to who their father is. It's a ground game getting uh, these assault weapons taken off the street. Mm -hmm. I get a little tired of people saying we have to get rid of the Second Amendment or get rid of Citizens United. That's what mm-hmm. hyper-educated people who don't want to do what you do, that's mm-hmm. what they come up with. And then mm-hmm. they say our hands are tied. It's unoriginal thinking. We have old mm-hmm. sclerotic leadership in the Democratic Party. Joe Biden flies home from Buffalo saying we have to do something. I just don't know what. How about you retire? What, what mm-hmm. could the Democrats, what could the president do right now? Yeah, I think we have to be, you know, and we have to be able to stand up and challenge the status quo. You know, people call me a hero because, you know, I I stood up to Ted Cruz. I'm like, hero, man. I was just I was just doing what I needed to do in the moment. And, you know, I was listening to you earlier and we have to do more of this stuff. We have to get more in people's faces. And you're right. People are like, well, the family is there, the children there, who knows who else was there. To me, I'm like, look, listen, if you're an elected official and you're going to take these extreme and radical positions, then it goes with the territory. And I think we have to be able to, you know, bring up the courage to take on these big fights and in unconventional ways, you know, that beltway thinking and, and the way that that is business as usual isn't going to cut it. And I think, you know, what I want people to get out of this is like, hey, you too can confront your elected official, right? We're not talking about violence. Heck no. I'm saying get in their face and ask questions because 
they should be able to give us answers. And I think that's that's what we have to be able to do more of. You know, in a, in a way, it's kind of like we have to be more ruthless, you know, on the Democratic side and how we approach these problems. And I, I don't think we're ruthless enough, you know, for the for the problems. The experts, the adults in the room who are advising Joe Biden and most of the Democratic leadership is, of course, we should take away the guns. But you have no idea how angry gun owners can get. Well, they need to know how angry, ordinary, law-abiding Americans can get from these shootings. Uh, What is going to change in Texas? What kind of trouble, politically speaking, and I, I have no problem with making things political because not doing anything is political. Going to funerals instead of passing meaningful legislation is political. Grieving instead of action is political. What what is the calculus now for Greg Abbott? Yeah, I mean, I think Greg Abbott has not had a a good week, right? Uh, Or a good year and a half, you know, starting with last winter when he let people freeze, right? For, for, with ineptitude. Um, And I think that, you know, you see this, these, the the changing timeline around the police, the the events of, 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 of the Rob Elementary, just those kinds of things and the way that he's approached it, um, you know, even having Beto O'Rourke confront him at the press conference. I mean, these are not good looks, you know, you know, even though he spoke via video at the NRA convention, these are not good things. So I, I you know, I think that the calculus for Greg Abbott is like, look, how do I get past this quickly? How do we start talking about something else? Because that's, that is in his best interest. And I think what we have to do, and what I mean, we is, I don't mean just Democrats, like everybody who fed up of this and say, wait a minute, we're not going to move past this issue because we have done nothing, just like every other one where we've done nothing, just like El Paso where we did nothing, just like Santa Fe where we did nothing. Um, and that's the kind of conversations where we need to be having and pushing um, in front of people. Texas, you know, last year, you know, and we have to remind people that last year we passed no less than 20 laws that made it easier for guns to get out there in the streets. That's like, like, what kind of thinking and bragging. is that? And so, and they bragged about yeah. it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we're behind. I think it was something like, you know, we're behind others in gun sales. Like, what the heck is that? You know? Right. And, and you know, it, I'll bring another dimension to this, too, is, you know, as a person of faith, like, it bothers me when, when there's a political party like the Republicans who talk about God and the Bible and all of that and, and life, but yet all of their actions are against life and humanity. And I think that needs to be called out because they're sitting here elevating this thing, you know, that they call life and and God in the Bible, but yet their actions are completely opposite. Uh, Especially when we idolize guns, like, come on, you know, we like, that's not, that's incompatible with the faith that they preach. It's interesting because uh, Texas takes a lot of ribbing on this show and rightfully so. However, (laughs) I have a very special place in my heart for Texas. I've oh, yeah? visited. Tell me about it. Well, I, Texas is another country. You're another. <laughs> you're another people. Yeah, yeah. And you. We were another country, right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, as bad as your leadership is, you have great people, great yeah. progressives. Yeah. And every time I go there, I find. Uh, 
Well, you know, Ted, uh, Ted Cruz only beat Beto by something like 500,000 votes. Out of, a little less. I think it was around 300,000, yeah. Out of yeah. how many millions? Oh, man, I'd have to go back and check six or seven million. Or yeah, like something so like that. It's, I mean, it's not like Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz speak for Texas. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Is it getting bluer? I remember I Biden. So. I, I remember on election night of 2020, we thought Biden might win Texas. And then he lost by a couple hundred thousand votes, but it was still pretty close. Yeah. 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 I think it's getting closer. You know, I think every cycle that we go through and every cycle that we see the failure of Republican leadership in the state, I think people are fed up, right? And and that doesn't, you know, that shouldn't put, you know, leave Democrats off the hook. I think Democrats have to provide real answers and real solutions. But I think at least what people are seeing is the failure of Republican leadership and the extreme positions of Republicans in this state that is not compatible with who we are as a people, you know, because um, when you take a step back and look at Texas as a whole, we're, we're a changing community, always changing, always right. evolving. And I don't think anybody should take that for granted. I think we should do what is right for people. And I think that's, I think what Democrats are trying to do and what Republicans are failing at. Henry Cuellar, the pro-life Democrat, mm. I think he was leading Jessica Cisneros by about 170 votes. Where, where does it stand yeah. right now? Yeah, yeah, something like a couple hundred votes less less than that. Um, well, what, know, what is the count? What is the latest count? Yeah, I don't know. Actually, let, let's see. But at the last I saw it, it was like 150 some odd okay. votes. But now I'm curious because I haven't seen this And does recently. she have enough money for a recount? Does she have to pay for the recount in Texas? Man, that's a good question. I don't know. But if she needs money, I'm definitely going to be donating to that campaign to make sure she so has do we know money. where that is right now what the, no i'm trying to look here I okay don't. and beto yeah there is he the best texas has to offer he is problematic i hope he wins but yeah uh, yeah i i hear a lot of people you know say that i I'll tell you this. And to me, it's not a, you know, anything's better than that, but no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I think that, you know, I think that Beto has built a ground game and he's been working on it, you know, through several cycles, through the Senate campaign, through the U S the presidential campaign, and now through this. And I think, you know, he's got an advantage of, of putting in that hard work and building those lists and building those volunteers that I think is going to get him a lot, uh, uh, you know, a lot closer than it was last time. And that's where I'm putting my hope is, you know, cause we have to, we have to get Greg Abbott out. Just, is Dan you know, Patrick, he's the Lieutenant governor. Isn't he the real power in Texas, isn't the lieutenant governor more powerful than the Texas? Isn't Abbott kind of like a figurehead? Well, I would say they both they both have power. So Dan Patrick, you know, being at the head of the legislature, I think you have a lot of power there, right? And and being there on the day to day stuff. But I think, you know, the with the governor, you also obviously, you know, be able to sign laws, but you also control a lot of the narrative and being able to call the legislature into special session and, and dictate what they should do. I think that's a the heck of a lot of power. And so, you know, it's important to do a sweep of those positions. And then let's not forget Ken Paxton, right? Are indicted, you know corrupt attorney general. Uh, I mean, come on, like that, you know, like how are we going to reelect somebody like that? I think we have to work hard to make sure that those three are out. Yeah. Well, we've been talking with Benjamin Hernandez from Indivisible Houston. What can we do to help? Tell us what to do. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people have been hitting me up, you know, like they, they want my Venmo, they want my cash. And I just tell them like, listen, if you want to support the work we're doing, you know, go to indivisiblehouston.org and support us there. Um, you know, if you're in the Houston area or you hear us, you know, somebody who's in the Houston area and who wants to get involved in grassroots action, you know, have them hit us up on the website. There's a volunteer button there because at the end of the day, what we have to do is we have to continue to get in people's faces because the the old civility isn't working anymore. And, and I hate that we are where we are, but I need to fight the battle that we have now. And this is the battle that we have now. If Ted Cruz isn't going to make space to listen to constituents, um, you know, heck, we were kicked out of his office in uh, 2017, you know, just trying to talk to him. And so if he's not going to take meetings, if he's not going to respond to emails or calls, you know what? If we see you in the street, we're going to corner you and ask you the questions. And it's not even hard. It's not even like we weren't doing like gotchas. I'm not, I wasn't doing a gotcha. I was like, listen, can we start somewhere basic on background checks? I mean, come on, you know? And so if you can't even answer that, then you, you, you have problems. Right. And so that's what I want them to know. So anyways, if you want to get, are you pushing, we have some questions. We have some questions from our audience. Are you pushing for buyback programs? Voluntary gun buyback programs. Yeah, I think that would be great. Buyback programs. Absolutely. Let's fund them and let's get them done. I mean, if these are voluntary, then why not? Right? Like what harm is there in that? So I think so. But I think like where I, where I'm trying to unmask is the entire unwillingness to do anything because, you know, buybacks can, you know, people will react to them a certain way, but we know how Americans react to universal background checks. We know that, right? The vast majority of people do. And so when you see that they don't even want to take on something like that, that has the support, then you know what they're really all about. Right? So yeah, ask me, you know, raise the minimum wage, uh, the, the, the minimum age, sorry, to buy firearms. And right? the minimum Eight. wage. And the minimum raise wage. The, yeah, that, exactly. that should be your and. next campaign. <laughs> raise the, the minimum, minimum wage and the minimum oh, age to Texas, uh, man, yeah. Texas. Uh, yeah. I love home, but it, we, we've got a, we've, we've got a lot of things to do, but anyways, like a, what I'm trying to do is start, like, where is a good ground to start? Because like you said, like, we're not getting rid of the second amendment. People use guns like, you know, for recreation, for work, you know? So I think that's a reality, but my gosh, do these weapons that just murdered 19 kids, do they need to be out in the streets and they, do they need to be so easily bought? Absolutely not. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Benjamin yeah. Hernandez. Please come back. Uh, by the way, before we go. Yeah. Sure. Immigration. Yeah. Were you a dreamer? No, I was not a dreamer. I was brought uh, undocumented to this country, you know, when I was eight months old. I was lived here in Houston all my life. I didn't naturalize until I was uh, in my teens, in 98, actually. And that was a surprise to me to know that I was undocumented. When they told me, I was like, wait, wait what? This is, this is the country that I've always called home. Um, and so, you know, gosh, that's another challenge that we have to address in this country, uh, starting with dreamers, right, who contribute so much. But then there are 11 million people that are living in the shadows. We have to do something. Yeah. And in, in we have four minutes left. Sure. What is it like to come here as a, as a child Mm-hmm. to blend in, to be what you think is an American citizen, and then wake up and discover that you're called an illegal and you have mm-hmm. a governor who wants to deny you education. You have a governor right now in Texas who wants to uh, throw undocumented 
Americans out of our public schools. What does that do to a uh, to a person? You know, even though I, um, you know, have been naturalized since 1998, um, you know, so, so so almost half of my life now, I never felt more not a part of this country until 2016. Because when I went in 2016, when I heard Trump and Republicans speaking about immigrants, I started thinking like, oh my gosh, do people look at me like I'm not a part of this country? And a thought that had never entered in my mind. And that's me, you know, who, who had a, you know, I was a, the CFO. I was a six, six figure salary corner office, right? Great education. That was me. Can you imagine people who, you know, were undocumented and they're listening to that rhetoric and living in the shadows. My gosh, that's a terrible existence. That's inhumane, right? And all of the things that are said and all of the policies and everything, all the rhetoric behind it, that is inhumane. Is it Christian? Is it Christian? It's not Christian at all. Not Christian at all. That's not what that what Jesus would be doing. In Uvalde, Texas, Mm -hmm. ICE announced a reprieve after the shooting, that they would no longer be conducting raids on the families of Evalde, Texas. Is it safe to say that many of those kids could have been undocumented? Yeah, maybe not the kids, um, but, but the families the parents. And I just say, just because of the age and and kind of like the way things play out usually in in immigrant families, but certainly the families and the relatives, but it is conceivable that those kids uh, saw their fathers or their grandmothers sent back home, right? By ice. Yeah. Can you believe that? Can you believe that this country, you know, is robbing families of, of their children, you know, and then the leadership in the state is robbing for their inaction, robbing families of children. And then forget the reprieve, right? Like, great, congratulations, drop in the bucket. But then when that goes away, then just imagine the future when after this country did that to those families and, and failed those children, then one of those family members gets picked up or something, gets sent back. Who are we? Who are we? Right. You know, definitely not the Christians that, that they claim to be. Constant... You, it's a game of inches. You have to fight. Mm-hmm. They don't give up. Uh, we have to mm-hmm. go, but yeah, I yeah. know who Republicans are. Thank you, Benjamin Hernandez. Thank you. And how do people follow you on Twitter? Yeah, go to the Benjamin HDZ. Um, just follow me there. Fine. Thank you so much. All right. Thank honor, you. Honor to meet you. We're going to bring uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn in and his special guests. I can't wait for this. You know who the Republicans are. They never give up. They are like a pit bull on a a bone. And they don't quit. They wait till you get tired and they chew you up. Whatever advances we make, they will keep digging in and trying to take it away from you. There's no such thing as security or safety. You have to fight for every inch. Just because Roe v. Wade became law, that didn't mean you could take a break and think abortion rights were safe. You have to fight every day and stop this this, uh, imaginary thinking of 
that someday we're going to wake up and they're going to get rid of the Second Amendment, that they're going to overturn Citizens United, that we have to get rid of the Electoral College. Yeah, all that stuff makes you sound smart, but progress is a ground game. It's not just moving forward. It's keeping what you already have. You have to get in there and fight these Republicans. You got to fight the NRA. You got to fight the gun manufacturers in the courts, in the legislatures, state by state, city by city, sheriff by sheriff. And the reason we're losing is because we have people like Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and his Harvard educated kids who have a sense of entitlement. They don't know what it means to lose because they've never won anything for themselves. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is an ordained minister as well as a a lawyer. And uh, thank you for joining us. Take it away, Reverend. Let me unmute you. Let me unmute, unmute Monica. Hang on. There you go. And I have to unmute you. We're having technical problems today. You have to unmute yourself, Reverend. I'm. There you go. Here we go. Well, thank you. I know this is not the general day that I show up, which is Thursdays, but it's happy to. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I met Monica Miller because she is an extraordinarily good church state litigator, and uh, she's the legal director of the American Humanist Association's Legal Center. And then some years ago, I also learned that she's an attorney with the Non-Human Rights Project, which is trying to get personhood status for, well, we'll let her explain exactly what kinds of animals. But Monica Miller is with us. Monica, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. You were involved in an extraordinary case, truly unique case in American jurisprudence a few years ago, seeking habeas corpus. In other words, a release of the body of one elephant, Happy, who has spent the last 40 years incarcerated in the Bronx Zoo. Let's talk a little bit about Happy. How did the zoo acquire Happy? In the first place, we know that she was kidnapped from from Thailand from her family Um, and she was put into some sort of performance thing in in Florida. And then after about seven years, she was bussed up to the Bronx Zoo. Um, Yeah, where she was also then forced to perform tricks and do stuff that we now know is completely wrong. Um, But they still kept her in a a very small enclosure um, for her needs. And there's been sanctuaries that have been available since uh, for quite some time now. Where is she living right now at the Bronx Zoo? And and it's seasonal. I mean, it's bad enough in the summer. It gets much worse in the winter. That's right. So they have like a barn um, with these like two by two cells, like these cells are basically like half, like twice the size of her body. And that's basically where they keep the elephants. There's only two elephants now, which is also just horrific because they're both female elephants and they need um, to be part of a pack and be social species. And these two are actually, they don't get along. So they're separated. Um, So they're both isolated in a small enclosure and they're either at most they have access to a one acre pen um, where in the wild they'd be moving up to 20 hours a day, which is sometimes like 50 miles. Um, 
you know, over ancient migratory routes. So it's really, um, it's really tragic how she's being confined. What the people at the zoo, among other lies they tell, Mm -hmm. they tell lies about Happy's inability to get along with other elephants. So what's the history though, of the times when there were a couple of other elephants there that she did have social contact with, most of, I think, two of whom have been euthanized uh, since she was there. Yeah, which really just breaks our heart that they keep having these situations where they have to euthanize elephants. Like, they don't die like this in, in the natural free-living world. Um, but they put four elephants in, a, like, this one-acre pen, which, again, is just, like, putting four humans in, a, like, a closet or something. Uh, we have expert witnesses, expert scientists that are top-of-the-field elephant scientists around the world, and they're like, this is absolutely too small for one elephant. And so Patty, the remaining elephant that's with Happy right now, um, she attacked Grumpy, who's who was Happy's, um, I think it was her sibling, if not her cousin, but I think it was her sibling. And so she, you know, elephants have very astute memories. They have extraordinary minds. And she remembers that Patty uh, was the reason that Grumpy is dead. So, um, yeah, so it's really sad, but, you know, they've had other situations like at these sanctuaries where they've taken in elephants that were considered dangerous and antisocial and, and didn't get along with other elephants. And the second they were like released into the, you know, rolling hills of California or in the Tennessee sanctuary with acres and acres, they were like getting along. So it really is a testament to their needs. When, when you talk about Tennessee, because the relief you're seeking is not that the happy is let back into uh, sent back to Thailand, but to be moved to a sanctuary. And there's a big one in California and there's one in Tennessee. In comparison to the one acre they're living in now, what's what's the acreage in a place like the Tennessee sanctuary? So those are both about 2,300 acres. Um, and it's sometimes like, it's hard to, to picture that, but what you can picture is just hill after hill after hill. Like you have choices of where you want to roam. Um, and so it's much, it's almost the equivalent of being released to the wild. It's just that it wouldn't be practical to free her onto the streets of New York. Um, and her native Thailand isn't available either. Um, in large part, cause we've destroyed the habitat in these elephants countries. So it's really horrific on both ends, but the best we can do is these amazing sanctuaries. The um, the number of people that have filed friend of the court briefs, amicus briefs in this case is extraordinary, including uh, Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe. Mm-hmm. And um, I think sometimes people wonder, does it make any difference to have friend of the court briefs filed? But you think it does. And I think it does. How, what other kinds of amicus briefs were filed and what were the central messages that they were adding to the incredible work you did in filing the briefs in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think they absolutely, one, propelled us to get to the Court of Appeals, or at least helped us get there. We had previously filed um, some chimpanzee cases, and we've always actually had Lawrence Tribe filing briefs for us, um, which is awesome, and I think that's really helped. But I think at this stage, we ended up having not the bulk that were filed at the merit stage, but still quite a lot of amicus briefs. And they were all from philosophers, like experts in the, in the fields that were supporting Happy's Freedom. So like experts in law, experts in habeas corpus law 
We had religious and moral scholars saying that their religious texts, despite all the disagreements around religion, which Mm. Barry and I are both familiar with in church state land, for some reason, they all were able to unite around Happy's freedom. You know, the Jewish brief talked about how this was a violation of Torah law because she's being detained for no purpose at all. It's not like she's for food or for, you know, some benefit to society. Obviously, Peter Singer is a huge name in animal sure. rights and in philosophy, and he filed a brief in our support. And um, to answer your a question about, you know, the importance of these, in oral argument, I was being asked a question from one of the judges about, you know, could there be some sort of utilitarian purpose for keeping animals? And I didn't want to personally say yes, because I'm personally like a vegan and or, you know, veganist sometimes, sure. very, but yeah. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to say this, but I was able to be like, look at the religious briefs. And then the judge was sure. like, or oh, what about the Peter Singer brief? And so I was like, yeah, or that one. So it really gave me like an opportunity to say, it's not just us, this, these crazy animal people is these experts too. The non-human rights project you mentioned uh, did some chimpanzee, uh, amicus briefs and in the case of uh was it tony the chimpanzee tommy the tommy Tommy the chimpanzee tommy the chimpanzee the court ruled against uh his release claiming that you can't give to animals something akin to personhood i think i'm quoting this correctly because only beings capable of having social duties and responsibilities can possibly uh, possess legal standing. Now, we know corporations can be people. And in certain cases in maritime law, individual ships are Mm -hmm. treated as people. So what kind of a cockamamie idea is this, that you have to have social responsibilities and duties in order to possess a right to have someone claim on your behalf that you deserve to be out of jail? Yes, great question. So this whole thing started, right, with our chimpanzee cases, which were the first ever cases filed uh, back when in 2013 when we started this this project, which was to use the common law rather than statutes or the constitution, but the judge made law that's flexible, adaptable, and that's, you know, case by case. So we get happy free. It is only for happy. Um, But we were really surprised that the courts were, like what we were thrown, you know, like, cause we, it just is a testament to how strong our cases, but it's the law is never defined a rights bearer as needing to have duties. Um, children, for instance, right. do not have to shoulder duties. Um, you know, the mentally infirm people in permanent comatoses. Like there was actually a member of the court of appeals of New York who wrote a concurrence for us in one of the chimpanzee cases saying, you know, I think we were wrong to not take this case before. Um, now the lower courts are really wrong because now they're creating this new standard that's never been the case. And now this threatens humans. Um, so we have to take this to overturn that. But he said that the, that they were wrong on personhood, that they've never had this requirement that you have to have rights uh, to have duties. And it's based actually off of some uh, really oppressive version of the social contract theory, which is basically would exclude women and slaves and everyone else who was not part of this hypothetical contract at the start of our country, which was cited, by the way, by the court. So it was really kind of apparent that they were trying to shut out uh, people. (laughs) Yeah, very dangerous precedent. I read some of the transcript of the trial, and one of the things that bothered me for a minute was uh, one of the judges said, well, if we free happy, do I have to give up my dog? 
And I thought that was kind of insulting. But then, ironically, I live in Washington, D.C., in a condominium uh, townhouse development. And we have a lot. We have 70 townhouses. And ironically, there is a guy who lives in the townhouse development who has a dog named Happy. And Happy <laughs> does seem, in comparison to some of the other dogs, um, reasonably happy that is to say the dog comes out it always has a ball in its mouth it wants joanne and i to throw the ball so it can go chase it but then i started wondering uh there there are no backyards in this development and there are people who have two and three dogs in these townhouses and i just wonder if we should start to rethink the idea of pets regardless of what happens to happy the elephant mm-hmm. um because it's just it's simply too it it can't be good for even domesticated animals to live in a place with three bedrooms and no backyard so maybe it wasn't an insulting comment. How did you think that comment, what was his intention? Mm-hmm. And then did you generally think that the judges were treating this case in a respectful way or were they just, uh, you know, some, some goofy questions they wanted to yeah. ask? No, thank, thank you. Those are really, that's a good question. Um, so I think the question came from Judge Rivera, and she was the one that was asking me questions kind of out the gate. And she was asking me the questions that I know would be the concern of her, like, colleague, like the other judges on the bench, sure. um, which were floodgates related. Like, if we rule for happy, yeah, what, what about other species? So I actually took Judge Rivera's question to be helpful, to not waste my time with any dumb questions. Like, she basically tried to, like, I felt like she was trying to ask the questions that needed to be asked rather than let another judge ask me some <laughs> sure. dumb question. And by doing that, then the other judges were asking me serious questions. So I think I took it as a, a helpful one. Um, and... Yes. I, I mean, as I answered in, in, in the argument, the science for elephants is so compelling that we don't have the same science. It doesn't mean that, right, like we shouldn't evaluate whether dogs need more liberty. Um, but what we know for sure is that elephants need a lot more space and that they are, you know, extraordinarily socially complex. They have high altruism and empathy and things that we consider uniquely human is proving that elephants are like on par with us in a lot of ways that we don't have for dogs. We also know that dogs kind of co-evolved to be with humans. I think there was like a whole Cosmos episode dedicated to this series, but like, you know, but to your point, this, our cases are unearthing, even though we are trying to like, this is not about welfare. It's not about improving the Bronx Zoo. It cannot be improved for happy. It's too small and there's not enough elephants. Like the fact that that's even allowed, the fact that the legislation has not picked up the pieces and like the you know we don't we would rather not have to do this like it'd be much better if there was like laws in place that were already recognizing that they have a liberty interest that should be at least you know like a bare minimum right to just be free from this kind of confinement um with respect to dogs you know yeah like we wouldn't necessarily say they should have habeas corpus rights perhaps but something you know a statute that would not allow for them to be confined without proper state. sure yeah. The, the um, 
One of the things that uh, I didn't know about until reading about Happy's case some weeks ago is that this elephant, Happy, passed something called the mirror test. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what the mirror test is and uh, what's the consequence of that when you start to look at the, the wealth of animals that might be eligible for habeas relief in the future? So the mirror self-recognition test is a barometer of autonomy. And when we say autonomous, we mean not just making basic choices like up or down, but that you have a a sense of self and a sense of other, you know, we've got that internal voice talking to us, narrating our lives. Um, They have that too. Like I'm going to go over here. And so it's, 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 it's showing that they are able to recognize themselves. They basically put like a piece of each animal they'll do differently. Um, But with elephants, happy, was the first elephant to pass this test and it turns out they were using two small mirrors for the other elephants but um (laughs) they put some chalk i guess like on her shoulder or on her ear and then they do like a placebo you know feeling so then they go up to the mirror and they just instantly start taking off the um, Uh. chalk and a few other species have proven to do this including i think magpies so it's not like the end all be all um but there's only a few i think it was just like bonobos chimpanzees elephants and like dolphins and, and magpies. Um, but if you watch elephants doing this, like if you YouTube uh, just elephants doing mirror self-recognition because there's more videos now, it's they're so human-like when they go up to the mirror, they start checking out their teeth and like nice. looking under their tongues and it's so goofy and cute. And you're like, how could we deny that, the, you know, what kind of hubris do we have to think that these other species are not thinking and processing the world similar to us when they've evolved around the same time and in, in a way that we have, so. Well, the it, to what degree does it matter if if a, an animal is sentient? What does that word mean? Because it does show up in a number of the amicus briefs. Tell us what that is and why it's relevant. And is it enough? So we've never we've never argued that sentience is enough. We've argued that autonomy is enough, or mm-hmm. sufficient but not necessary for habeas corpus because sentience is really like. And I'm no expert on on this stuff other than just the legal side of things. But as I understand it, sentience is sort of the ability to suffer and to feel, but maybe not to make complex analytic decisions or compartmentalize the way that elephants can but that doesn't mean so there's sort of like the famous uh, jeremy bentham quote of you know can they the question isn't can they reason but can they suffer i think it was something like that and i think peter singer sort of expounds that view so we had amicus briefs that were far more liberal than our approach which was like uh, martha nussbaum filed one that said like all animals should have rights based on their capabilities and Personally, I think that would be lovely, but, you know, we have to also be realists and we're not, we don't even have rights for a chimpanzee who was stuck in a basement in upstate New York. Um, So like, if that's allowed, we're not going to get chickens rights tomorrow. So um, yeah. The, um, this idea of giving rights to some, at least to some animals, uh, it may be, that this is the most important case argued in in an English-speaking country. But there were successes in recent years in Colombia, in Argentina, and even in Pakistan. What were those cases? What kind of animals did they involve? And what was the fundamental argument there? Because they weren't 
in general dealing with English common law. Right. So we cite them for the notion that this isn't, you know, the idea of giving rights at all to non-humans because they keep going, well, corporations are made up of people. And we point to the ship case and that doesn't still sink in that you don't have to be a living human being and the corporations, you know, yeah. So, um, so we point to those to say, look, other countries have had no problem giving rights to these highly autonomous beings um, like Sandra, the orangutan, and Kavan, the elephant from Pakistan. Um, I think Kavan's case was a writ of mandamus, and they think there was only one that used habeas corpus, but they're still significant for the point that you know, there's a growing body of countries that are recognizing um, the you know, inherent worth in the other beings that we share a planet with. Um, for about six months, I worked for Kathy Douglas, who was, of course, uh, William O. Douglas, the great Supreme Court jurist's uh, final wife. And it was a, not a project that uh, went too far. But one of the things about William O. Douglas, of course, is that he wanted there to be a whole different way we look at standing, not just for people and animals, but even for the natural world. And there was a case called Sierra Club versus Morton, Mm -hmm. where the Sierra Club went to court trying to say, we have a right to protect. Uh, It was a a big lake in California and the Walt Disney Company wanted to uh, develop it. And and the Supreme Court said, well, you don't have standing. As it turned out, in a Long story short, uh, it was not developed for a series of other reasons, including that Governor Reagan decided it uh, was too expensive when he was governor of California. But I always thought that there's something to be said for, as William O. Douglas said, I'm quoting him here, if we fashioned a federal rule that allowed environmental issues to be litigated in the name of inanimate objects about to be despoiled, defaced, or invaded by roads and bulldozers, and where injury is the subject of public outrage, that ought to be the standard. And there's a certain sense in which... um, The outrage that people ought to feel when they see the mistreatment. I mean, luckily, you know, elephants are not in circuses anymore. That was a lot of public pressure. I don't think it was any uh, lawyers that that won that. But people just look at it and say, this is disgraceful. This cannot stand. When you look at dogs, people understand cruelty to dogs. Uh, They don't maybe think it's cruel to lock them in your basement, but they sure think it's wrong to have dog fighting and other things. But I just wonder, is there something fundamentally that we could do as a culture that would understandably move this whole issue forward and allow us to think of who's, on whose behalf we are bringing cases, whether it's a, a lake or an elephant. What is wrong with this increasingly compact system we've got where it's more and more difficult to litigate? And you know this from church state law too, that just to get standing, just to be able to bring your case into court, you have to go through uh, circles that shouldn't exist except maybe in hell. I I mean, a hundred percent. I just 
weeks before doing Happy's case, I came out of the 11th circuit where my clients were personally witnessing a, an, a religious event, went to the event, and they're trying to say that there was no standing because they witnessed the event and therefore mm. subjected that. And I'm like, where's the, like, there's no precedent. There's no like principle anymore. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think that standing is is um important i think with pe- with what people can do i mean definitely stop supporting going to zoos that have elephants and if they do have elephants you know write write them letters write talk to your city council um canada was successful in removing moving mm-hmm. several the the toronto ones because the the mayor was outraged and um you know aoc has tweeted about happy she hasn't done it in a while mm-hmm. and folks put pressure on some of these politicians who have hearts sure. they care they just don't have all the time but if you if people say this is important then the politicians usually respond. So that's, that's probably the best thing to do. One of the things um, that uh, I think you've, you've been at least one of our virtual house conscious, but one of the things that Joanne and I did for several years was to work for the state of New York's environmental protection organization, running nature centers in the bear mountain state park. And the greatest part of it, I mean, it was great to be able to show kids who had never seen an animal except a rat or a dog because they lived in Harlem or they lived in the Bronx. But to release the animals at the end of the the summer, we generally got them because they were hit by it. The mother was hit by a car, baby raccoons, baby skunks. But I remember doing a video once, a little eight millimeter film to the tune of I shall be released <laughs> where we just, where we just released the animals. And because now three months or so, they, they have at least a reasonable chance of being able to survive in the wild. And it was just an extraordinary thing of, for us to do. Yeah. And I wish we could get to a point where we could find more places oh, yeah. where, where we could do this, where we could release them into sanctuaries and, there are um, there are places in Texas. I, I know uh, Kinky Friedman, the Texas songwriter, has a, a place, a no kill center, where he keeps any anything as long as necessary, so that it can't they they will not be killed. But I I do think it's um, it, we we have to find a way to make cruelty of this nature become a big part and i'd love to say that i was optimistic about that but on the other hand we seem to be getting more and more mean-spirited certainly in the senate in the house and in the supreme court yeah well i'd like to think that yeah, I was going to yep. say, I like to think that we could unite around elephants. And, you know, I was as I was flying back from the hearing, I was picturing like all the state kind of creating some long migratory path for elephants, you know, to get, <laughs> you know so they don't have to ride, like they don't have to do that miserable ride. And just instead of having CAFOs, you know, the big animal feedlots that are not providing nutrition to America to use those, you know, we say we love elephants. We want to protect their habitat abroad. Why not protect it here and create more sanctuaries for the remaining elephants and retire them. One of the things that happens in the wild, every 25 minutes, there is an elephant killed as an elephant killed for ivory. And the United States is one of the worst in trafficking in illegal ivory. Mm -hmm. And what do you what do you do, though, 
in a world where we know that so many elephants and so many other animals, gorillas, are being slaughtered in Africa just so that they can make uh, waste baskets out of the bottom of their legs. So if that's, though, the argument, and that is an argument used by some zoos, at least we're protecting some animals. And there's a piece of me, I have to say, that finds a certain sympathy to that argument. Yeah. But yeah. Tell me what your thought is on that. It's really not in competition. (laughs) It's not in competition. We totally support the conservation efforts of the Wildlife Conservation Society. They have like legitimate scientists that work at the Bronx Zoo that did not file affidavits against us. Um, Mm. They only had the the zoo employees file affidavits. So it's really telling that the Wildlife Conservation Society is not in support of the zoo stuff either. Sure. Sure. You know, Wayne LaPierre, David. Wayne LaPierre and his wife went on a hunting trip to Africa where they shot elephants. And his wife broke several laws to smuggle the elephant back to their home so they could make chairs out of the hooves and everything you mm-hmm. just said about them. When you look at a sociopath, a psychopath as a child, you judge how they treat animals first. You say, mm-hmm. how? wow, this person... Like Jeffrey Dahmer, tortured animals. Mm-hmm. The way America treats animals is a leading indicator of how it treats each other, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. And we have gotten more cruel. When you look at the chicken industry and the slaughterhouses, the way we prepare our meat, we are a much crueler nation. As bad as it was when the jungle was written, we're killing more animals now than ever before and consuming more meat than ever before. This is the issue of our time. It, it, it really is. We are out of time, Reverend. Thank you. Please ask Mana, you. Please ask Mana to come back and, and let's get all the important information. Monica, I want to tell people how they can keep up with this fight. Yeah, so I was just going to my um, Twitter to see what my Twitter handle is because I'm really bad at social <laughs> media, but it's at mon underscore L underscore Miller. Um, but you can also just go to at nonhumanrights.org. Terrific. Thanks, Monica, for doing this. Thank you, thank Monica. You for me. Please come back and thank uh-huh. you, Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Go to barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of the Reverend's sermons, lectures, appearances on television shows, and follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. Stay out of trouble. <laughs> Only good trouble. Okay. And, and thank you <laughs> so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, let us now go, I hope, to California, where Howie Klein is standing by. Howie, are you there? I'm here, although I thought it was Sunday, and I was really surprised to get your call. Well, I'm sorry. Hang on for one second. I'm sorry. I said it's it's uh, Sunday. I mean, it feels like Sunday. It does feel like Sunday. It absolutely does. But we're we're loose and relaxed. A lot to talk about with you tonight. I, I want to oh. want to ask you about what happened last Tuesday. Besides Texas, we had uh, the, the a lot of people stopped paying attention to what was going on with the elections because of that shooting. As well, they should. But we had elections, primaries in Alabama, Arkansas, 
Georgia and that big runoff with Jessica Cisneros and Henry Cuellar in Texas. And then we have a week off. And then June 7th, primaries, midterm primaries in California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota. Tell us what happened last Tuesday besides that tragedy. Uh, well, so, uh, okay, so in Texas, uh, there, there, were, uh, there were two runoffs in South Texas. So you only mentioned uh, Jessica Cisneros, which is still too close to call. Um, and uh, they'll, they'll definitely be, uh, well, obviously they have to count all the votes first, which they haven't done yet. And then they have to um, do a recount because they're extremely close. And in fact, uh, the last I looked, they were 175 votes apart. Right. But there's another district, uh, Texas 15, where there's a progressive running. And it's very much the same situation. Uh, Michelle Vallejo. And she's, um, she's about a hundred, no, she's 27 points ahead. I believe I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it keeps changing from uh, hour to hour. Votes or points? No, um, yes. Votes. I'm sorry. She's just a few votes ahead of a much more conservative uh, Democrat. Uh, It's a, uh, it's an open seat. Wow. So, yeah. So there are two South Texas races that we have to watch as they unfold. So that's what happened in Texas. What is your in, gut on uh, what is your gut on Jessica Cisneros? As I understand it, there there's no such thing as automatic recounts in Texas, and you have to pay for an automatic recount if you well, want it. Well, no, there will be. An, I don't know. If, I don't know. It doesn't matter. There will definitely be an, a, a recount, whether it's automatic or not automatic. Right. Uh, they, they, you know, she's got uh, she's got the resources to insist on it, and, and she will uh, be able to. Um, the, my God, it doesn't really matter that much because, you know, I very much want to see her win and see uh, Henry Cuellar lose. So it, it twists my gut up. So I, 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 I can't, I can't say. Okay. Too difficult to say. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this though. <clears throat> the counties that came in at the very end are machine counties. Just, you know, they, they, they operate very much the way Tammany Hall used to operate in New York and they are, they're owned by a, a machine that is, incredibly corrupt, tied to um, smuggling uh, through Eagle Pass. Uh, and, you know, everyone who is working for any level of government in those counties are, is, are, are getting paid off. And the money just goes, you know, that's some real trickle down there. It goes to everybody. So they're really corrupt places. And uh, Cuellar held them till the very end to see how many votes he needed. This is the way Tammany Hall used to do in New York. Right. And then when he saw what he needed, he just said, okay, these are our votes. So that's not that uncommon. I'm so do. glad you I, said that. I was going to ask you that, and I didn't think I'd get, uh, I, I didn't think you would respect the question. I was going to ask you, are these elections really that close or something? And this is exactly what I thought was going on. They're holding back the votes and then deciding how much they need to put their candidate over the top. That's right. I mean, that isn't, I mean, you're saying they, I don't know how common that is. I don't, I don't think it's common in, in many, I mean, it's common in some places, uh, but not most, but it is, that is the area of Texas, by the way, where LBJ uh, helped uh, JFK beat Nixon. Right. I mean, Nixon never forgot that, but he was cheated out of the election 
in, in both in the Chicago machine where Daley held back uh, the votes and right. in uh, South Texas where Johnson held back the votes and said, okay, this is what we need. And they got it. And, that, and, and those two states, Texas and Illinois, went to uh, JFK and it, perhaps they shouldn't have, right. in which case Nixon would have won. In all fairness to the Republicans, this is voter fraud. Yeah. Which we say doesn't exist. We complain about voter suppression, but this is voter fraud. Well, I call it electoral fraud. Electoral uh, fraud, right. But uh, yes, it does exist. It absolutely exists. Most of of it is Republicans, but you you see it among Democrats as well. Now, Cuellar, it's kind of questionable... He does have a D next to his name, but even when he was in the state legislature, he was the Republicans' favorite Democrat. George Bush, George W. Bush was the governor of the state at the time. He used to, you know, always talk about that. He would always say that Quay was his favorite Democrat. He would take him on the governor's jet, uh, you know, on trips and stuff. They were very, very close, and he supported Republicans, and Republicans have been very supportive of him. They just, in fact, uh, in the in the newest gerrymander, they actually made his district bluer. They uh, they like the guy. Okay, before we move on to what happened in Georgia and what's going to happen next week, let's stay in Texas for a second because you have a, a a new piece over down with tyranny. It came up about three hours ago about gun laws state by state. The constant refrain we heard at the NRA convention in Houston is gun laws don't work. Tell me about Massachusetts. Tell me about New York, New Jersey. Tell me about the gun laws in these states. Yeah, well, they, 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 they do work. I mean, Massachusetts has very, very strict gun laws. They're very sane. I mean, you, it's not like you can't get a gun there. You can, but you have to, uh, you, you have to go through a, a lot of testing and you have to, you have to train in a serious way. And, uh, and guess what? Massachusetts has the lowest um, gun death rate of any state in the country. New York is number two, where all, they're also very strict with, with guns. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter to Republicans. Like I said in, in that piece, it would take a million dead children and a dozen dead Republican members of Congress. It should only happen before they would uh, ever agree to uh uh, um, uh, you know, serious gun laws and serious gun laws to me are not necessarily, you know, what's about to happen with some red flag laws or raising the, um, uh, raising the age limit from 18 to 21. Those things may happen, but a serious gun law would be, uh, ending the sale of, uh, of military equipment. That would be a serious law. And the Republicans will never go for that. And, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, what do you think they're going to do? Go around and take everybody's uh, AR-15 away? Uh, uh, yeah, that's what they should do. Yeah. Exactly what they should do. They should reimburse them, but they should take them away. And if they put I mean, up a fight, we know to arrest kill them. them. Kill them or okay. arrest them. Right. Kill we, them. We, we, know, them. we know they're criminals. One of the yeah. things I suggested on the show that I have not heard from anybody but me that is, right now, Joe Biden, as commander-in-chief, issues an executive order that says we will not do business. The military, which is the biggest purchaser of weapons in America, we will not purchase rifles from any company that sells to consumers. You either sell to the military or you sell to consumers, make a choice. 
That's how you get reelected. Would probably get challenged in the courts, but that's no, 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 no about that. I don't know how it could be. On what grounds? Uh, the second, the, the commander in chief is defiling our Second Amendment. It doesn't matter. That's how you get defiling. Re-elected. I don't, I, I don't know. That's not in the uh, defiling. Not in the Constitution. Well, why don't you write a piece? Based on that suggestion, why don't you write write it for me as a guest host? I'd be happy. I to I, I might. I I, I oh, just I would might. love that. Okay, that'd be wonderful. Thank and, you. And, and it's a very good idea. Did you think of that idea? Or what yeah, I, yeah, I saw Bernie holding hearings about uh, uh, not giving government contracts to Amazon because of the way they treat workers. And you can do that. The government can say we're not going to do business with any contractor who doesn't pay prevailing wages, who violates OSHA rules, EPA rules. Or civil, or civil, or civil rights law. Or civil rights law, and the government won't do business with them. The government yeah. is the biggest purchaser in, of arms uh, in America. Do, does the government buy, uh, buy uh, the military, buy weapons from uh, the same companies that do sell them to consumers? Yeah, this, the, the AR-15 that was used in Uvalde, uh, that is sold by Daniel Defense. They got their start selling these weapons to the military. They have like a $9 million contract with the Pentagon that they got last month. Yeah. And, and what, uh, what would the uh, military do? Uh, are, there, are there other companies that, that uh, they could buy it from? There are other companies they could buy them from, or you know they, th- these companies would have to make a choice. You either you either make the weapons for our military, or you make them for consumers. Right. Well, that's the idea. But if the military knows that the Pentagon can't buy them anywhere else, they could say, "Oh yeah, screw you." Who says that? Uh, the Daniel, the defense Prote- uh, the, uh, the defense production act. I think the commander in chief can actually seize factories and order them to make uh, cars, tanks, and I would assume weapons. Yeah, well, now, now you're talking about uh, leadership. You know, uh, yes, and and progressive policies, and Biden has nothing to do with that. Yeah. Anyway, let, let, to be con- let, let's move on. Uh, Georgia, what 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 do Georgia. we? Have? Georgia. Georgia. <laughs> so. Uh, so the, the, most of the action, the, the, the big action in Georgia was um, on the Republican side. Now, let me get to that in a second. But there, it is worth noting that there was a there was a very important uh, Democratic race as well that uh, pitted two incumbents. Now, neither of them was great, but one of them was putrid. So Carolyn Bordeaux is a, a blue dog. She's just as bad as you can expect from a Democrat, uh, from a Democratic blue dog. She's she's just terrible. And she uh, she was thrown into a district with Lucy McBath. And Lucy McBath isn't my idea of a good uh, member of Congress. She's good on one issue, which is guns, uh, because her, her son was shot and she wound up being, you know, making that her issue. But other than that, she's any good. She's a new Dem, not quite as bad as a blue dog, but bad. Uh, and she won. She beat uh, Bordeaux. There's no question that Bordeaux is worse. So, so far uh, this cycle, we have two... Uh, two blue dogs who have been defeated. The other being Kurt Schrader, who's much, much worse than Bordeaux, but but they're both blue dogs. They're both terrible, and Congress would be better off without uh, both of those two. Now, did we talk about Kurt Schrader? Because it was just announced this week, or last week, 
that he uh, lost his uh, that he did. Yeah, lose we, his we, we did talk about Kurt Schrader in Oregon. Yes. 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 Well, you know, and did I mention Biden's kiss of death? He endorsed Schrader. It was his first endorsement of the year. And uh, he's only endorsed two people so far. Schrader was the first. And then the second was um, the uh, that corporate shill who ran against Nina Turner. And Biden endorsed those two. The corporate right. shill won because of the immense amounts of money that were thrown into that race, like millions and millions of dollars from APAC and some of its allies. And uh, But uh, Schrader lost. And then Bordeaux lost. So now we're down to... Uh, two blue dogs, and that's good. And then if Cuellar loses as well, that'll be three dead blue dogs. Right. There's never enough dead blue dogs. Right, right. And so, uh, speaking of... Uh, and then, if, if, if you want to stay in Georgia, you know, what we, what happened there, <clears throat> that was the big news, of course, was on the Republican side of the ledger, where uh, there was a, um, a gubernatorial race and a secretary of state race. And um, <laughs> can you hear that, that ringing now in my phone? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's Roland telling me that uh, Greg Abbott got booed. So that, that happened yesterday. Right. And every day, Roland tells me what happened yesterday. Right. I, 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 wrote, I wrote about it yesterday. In, in any case, um, uh, so all of Trump's candidates lost. All of them. Which is important because we... Very. Yeah. First of all, the governor's race, I mean, Trump endorses candidates for various reasons, and and it's just a game to him, and he's playing. But in in Georgia, it was very, very important to him, and so important that he gave over $2 million from his own PAC. Now, he's very tight with that because he knows that the laws about uh, PACs are very lax and it's very easy to, to access those, that money and, and use it. It's not, I mean, theoretically it's illegal, but they all do it because there are ways to get around it. In other words, he could hire Melania right. to supervise it for a million dollars a year. Right. So he doesn't, give, he doesn't give that money away, but he did spend two and a half million dollars in the gubernatorial race. And then he was just, just absolutely gobsmacked uh, when not uh, just Kemp won, against his own uh, candidate that he campaigned for in person. Purdue. But also, yes, Purdue, David Purdue. But also, um, not, and, and I should mention, he is the one that convinced Purdue to run. Purdue had no intention of running and resisted, didn't want to run. And Trump talked him into it and convinced him that he had what, it, that Trump had what it t- takes to make sure that Purdue would win. And then by the end, uh, Trump pretty much just uh, bailed on him. And then Trump was even more shocked when uh, Raffensperger, the uh, Secretary of State, who is actually going about to testify against Trump, uh, when, when he won his race against Jody Heiss, a, an insurrectionist and a, and a Trump fanatic, who Trump also persuaded to run. Uh, and so this guy is now out of a congressional seat and a career and uh, didn't even come close. He only got 30 percent of the vote. So and the you know the attorney general who Trump didn't want also was reelected, and e- even Trump's favorite congressional candidate Vernon, his name something Vernon, uh, I can't remember his name. Who who actually it doesn't matter what his name is. He just calls himself literally. I'm not making this up. He calls himself the Black Donald Trump. <laughs> so he, that's what he calls himself, and he was going to run for governor. And Trump persuaded him not to run for governor 
but to run for Jody Heiss's seat. Jody Heiss, right, is running for Secretary of State. So Trump says, here, you take that seat. And he, and he ran against this guy, Mike Collins, who's, who's also a right-wing, insane person, fanatic, Trumpist. So here are these two Trump lunatics trying to prove that each one is more crazy than the other one. And Collins won, but, there's, but not by enough to prevent a runoff. So there will be a runoff in that race. Right. And a, the grand jury in, in in Georgia has been impaneled and they're now taking testimony on that. From, among other people, Rosenberger. With the election results, it's going to be easier for that DA to pursue it. She's not Alvin Bragg here in Manhattan who chickened out. She might actually be able to come forth with an indictment, especially since the evidence is, I mean, we just need 11, I'm looking for 11,000 more votes. I mean, how much more? That's, and that's, I believe that's on tape. Is that yes, correct? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, like I said, rap, rap, the Secretary of State, who was just reelected, is going to testify in, I mean, if, I mean, it depends how you want to use the words, but he's going to testify against Trump. So Trump, before we talk about uh, next Tuesday's primaries. No, no, we, we, we didn't get to Alabama yet. Oh, okay. But you wanted to I wanted to ask you, more? well, how did Mo Brooks do? Because Donald Trump turned on him. And yes, our, Donald Trump. Tell me about Mo Brooks. Mo Bro- yes, so Mo Brooks is a nut, and Donald Trump turned on him. And uh, he came in second, a fairly distant second. So there will be a runoff. Now, these runoffs don't always, uh, just because you came in second doesn't mean you're not going to win. They, they, you often do. So there's no way to know who's going to win this thing. It's going to be tough. Um, a lot of money that went to the, the uh, I forgot her name, uh, this Republican woman who won, uh, Katie something or other, uh, a, lot of, a lot of that money is no longer available. She spent it all. Uh, so it may be tougher, but, but Mo Brooks isn't a, a great fundraiser either. So we'll see. He was on, he made news. He was on Fox news Sunday yesterday, uh, you know, proving to the world that he's insane. Mm-hmm. For anyone who didn't know it, carrying on about, uh, you know, single mothers being the cause of Uvalde shootings and, you know, just this kind of, uh, you know why they're uh, single mothers? Because the fathers have been shot. Got shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he he's on there like making you know all these moralistic uh, um, uh, pronouncements uh, basically against black people, and he's a uh, you know he's just showing showing people in Alabama what he is. They want to hear this stuff. They love this stuff. I mean, the national audience, even on Fox, uh, is shudders when he when he speaks about this stuff. But not in Alabama. They just think it's it's wonderful. And she's doing the same thing. She's just, you know, just not letting him get an inch to the right of her. They're just both fighting it out as crazy as, as can be. It's just amazing to me that, uh, you know, but that's the state. That's the, what the, the electorate wants. They actually want that. What is Trump thinking? Is he going to run? Will there be challengers? Is DeSantis? If you stand up to Trump in the Republican Party... It used to be you pay a price. That's still not, that's not true anymore, is it? Well, I don't know about that. Uh, just because, uh, you know, a popular governor won in his, in his own party doesn't then mean that DeSantos can, you know, who's fairly young compared to Trump, 
doesn't mean that DeSantis can challenge him and not pay a price. So, so I, I don't know. Now, Pence, you know, Pence's people are saying that Pence is running, doesn't care if Trump runs or not. Uh, and there are, there are a few other Republicans who are saying the same thing. I don't think Trump is going to run. I've never thought he was going to run. I think he's just, you know, using it to milk as much money as he can out of this and fame. And, you know, people are at Mar-a-Lago kissing his ass constantly. And, I mean, if he wasn't going to run, would he be getting the same amount of attention? I mean, the, the day he says, I'm not running, is the day that his attention got the attention that the media pays him just starts going down and down and down and down. And Trump, more than anything, likes to be in the spotlight. Doesn't he so, need to run to stay out of prison? Uh, I, you know, I think he'd like to be president again. I don't think he wants to run again. And, and you know, did you watch him uh, reading from the teleprompter uh, in, uh, at the NRA convention? I couldn't do it. Where he lists the names? I couldn't yeah. do it. It was just sad. It's, you know, it's, it's like, I mean, it's actually worse than Biden uh, when he's talking in the teleprompter. I mean, they're just both so awful at it. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm, look, I want Bernie to run. He's older than either one of them. So it's not about age, but it's about your condition, which deteriorates with age on different, different ways for different people. So one person could be 90 and show up as a tech like Bernie, and one person could be 80 and completely deteriorated. We've like been Biden. told Bernie's not going to run. Mm, I'm not hearing that. Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that he'd, he'd run against Biden, but but I don't see Biden running. And, you know, and the media is trying desperately, or not, I shouldn't say trying, although they are trying, but they have been brainwashed by uh, Buttigieg's, you know, Mayo Pete's uh, uh, media team that he, he's the best, uh, the best alternative. So they're, you know, who? Mayo Pete, who the hell is he? People don't even know who he is or care. And they're going to they're gonna run him. That's like a, that's, that's like a suicide pact. Uh, you know, and it'd be a fight between him and a woman who claims to be black they would be fighting it out. Uh, and no, neither of them is any good. And then, you know, Amy Klobuchar wants to run. It's terrible. I mean, if Bernie wants to become president, he should run together with Elizabeth Warren. Yes. Just on day one, say, the two of them should say, we are running what a together. Great, what a great idea. What a Thank great you, idea. I, I think, I mean, I thought of it on my own, but I think a million people have also thought of it on my own. It's, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's just a, an obvious idea. And, and, and I would love it. And I mean, they could, I don't, they could be co-presidents in reality. I mean, in other words, you know, one would have to be president, one vice president, but they, but they could announce they're going to operate as co-presidents. Yeah. I mean, we have problems with Elizabeth Warren, but There'd be no Consumer Protection Financial Bureau had it not been for Elizabeth Warren. She, you know, she gave us Katie Porter, right? Yes. Katie Porter is one of her students, right. and she helped her to win, and they're close. Right. Katie Porter is great. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren would be, I, I love Elizabeth Warren, and, and no one is perfect. Everyone has flaws or, you know, or has made mistakes, everybody. 
And uh, I would love to see her as, as uh, president or vice president. I mean, my, my ideal would be to see her and Bernie in, 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 uh, together. But, but if Bernie decides not to do it for some reason, Elizabeth Warren would, would be um, second choice for me. Although there are others who, who I think are great, too. I was kind of hoping to talk uh, Jeff Merkley into it, but he's not biting. I can't understand why, but, you know, and, and, and you know, I mean, Rob Khan is a very, very smart guy, and he's not going to run unless he feels he has a real shot at it. And uh, so I, I don't know that he would actually run. And, and people who say, well, isn't he Indian? Uh, uh, no, he's Philadelphian. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's born in Philadelphia. Well, you know, yes, his parents, his parents, came to America to study. Uh, but, you know, how about your parents or your grandparents? Where'd they come from? Right, right. What do we have to look forward to a week from tomorrow? Oh, God, all these wonderful candidates from California are, are running. And some are going to win and some aren't. And, you know, I'm sad already at, at the thought of it. You know, I've been talking to a lot of them. And a lot, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of high hopes, a lot of very, very high hopes. And I hope they, they know better than me, uh, you know, what's going on in their districts. There's tons and tons of good candidates. But is that what you want to talk about, California? Whatever, whatever. Uh, I know Josh Gottheimer isn't even being challenged in New Jersey. So is there anything in New Jersey, uh, New York? Yeah, there, there are some good candidates in New Jersey, but I don't see uh, any right. of them winning. Okay. So, uh, unfortunately, let's talk about who you're excited about. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong about New Jersey, but, but I, but I don't, you know, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, clear headed and not just, uh, you know, wishful. And you talk about JD Shulton. He's been on the show several times. Thanks to you. He's yeah, running yeah, yeah. in Iowa. I wish I could find somebody to, to bet me on that one. That's one race I, I would like to bet on. Why? Because I think that the chances of him, uh, winning are about a hundred percent. So I would give pretty good odds to somebody who wanted to bet. Is this he, is this Steve King's old seat that he's running for again? He, oh no, he, he's it's part of Steve King's old district, but it's a part of Steve King's old district that JD won by a landslide. So he, he's running for legislature. Oh, he's not running for Congress. No, he's running for the state legislature in right. a Sioux City uh, district that is quite blue, and that loves him. It's his district. And uh, no other Democrat would even consider running against him. He, he, he's, he's the Democratic candidate. And so far, there's no Republican. It's just right. him. How's our, friend, how's our friend Tom Winter in Montana? Uh, I wrote him a few minutes before uh, you called, and I haven't heard from him in a while. I don't know how he's doing. It's, it's a very, very tough situation. He's, you know, he's up against big candidates, and he doesn't have money. So that's already a problem. That's in the in the primary, and then uh, whoever wins the primary is going to be up against, uh, in all likelihood, Ryan Zinke, uh, the former uh, Secretary of Interior under Trump. And he's probably going to be the Republican. And it, it, even though it's not as Republican a district as the district in the eastern part of the state, it's still a, a, a pretty Republican district. Remember, a Republican legislature and a Republican governor put the map together. So they didn't, they didn't create a district that's going to be easy for Democrats or even, you know, they didn't want it to be competitive. Now in, in a non, um, 
wave, it's kind of a red wave year now. And in a blue wave year, it would be a much easier district to win. Now, Tom is a really good candidate. As we've talked about in the past, Tom won a Trump district. While Trump was winning it, Tom was winning it. It's a very red district, but they like Tom. And he's, try- and he's trying to you know, do that on a much bigger level now. I mean, he was a state legislator when he won that seat a couple of times. And now he's running uh, you know, in a much bigger district, almost half the state. Well, before you, before you go, we still have another week to talk about June 7th. Who are you most excited about in California? Who are you most worried about? Well, uh, there's a lot of people uh, who fit both of those things. But I, I will say this. So uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's strictly legal. It might be. I'm not sure. Somebody uh, wanted to buy a, uh, a platinum record to give to a friend. Uh, and he asked me if I would sell him one. And he had someone, an artist in mind that I didn't even want. Uh, do you remember the group called Bush? Was uh, Vaguely. What it... Very vaguely, right? I mean, like, yeah. it was not kind of music. Right. So I had this Bush uh, multi-platinum record. And it's nice. it looks pretty. And if you like Bush, it's a great thing. So the guy uh, said he'd give me 500 bucks for it. So I said, awesome. I don't, you know, I don't want your money. But if you feel like uh, donating to a couple of my candidates, uh, that would be just awesome. And he said, do you have any suggestions? I said, yeah, why don't you donate to uh, two long shots? Or I shouldn't say long shots, but two candidates that really need the money who are having a tough time. And one of them is Christina Garcia. Uh, down in uh, 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 southeast LA and Long Beach, and the other is uh, uh, Ruth Uevenos, uh up in the very northern tip of Los Angeles County. She's she's up against uh, again some really bad conservative Democrats, plus uh, Mike Garcia, who's a Republican, uh, you know, an actual Republican, um, and it's a jungle primary, so they all run together. So Garcia is going to be one of the winners of the, to go on to the uh, general election. And then one of these Democrats will, too. I'm hoping Ruth is the one. She's a great candidate. And the others are really bad. They're, I mean, really bad. Uh, and then uh, in the case of Christina, she's running against a Republican as well. But he calls himself a Democrat. He's a lifelong Republican. He organized uh, Republican clubs. He was, a, uh, you know, on, on the Bush election uh, team. And he's very conservative, and he's terrible, and she's fantastic. And literally, the Progressive Caucus endorsed him, and all of the California uh, uh, Democratic Congress people who were endorsed, they all endorsed him. Correct. And it's just, it's just absolutely terrible. It is terrible. And every time he does something wrong, which will be every time, uh, I will shove it up their asses. <laughs> Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, and he writes Down with Tyranny where everybody should go every day. Read him over at Down with Tyranny and follow him on Twitter at Down with Tyranny. We'll talk to you next week, Howie. Thank you. See you next week. Take care. Great job. Thank you so much. Well, we're joined now by uh, someone we love here on this show, an old friend. It's been too long. Way too Way long. too long. Yes, Kelly Carlin, writer, author, speaker, producer, performer. She's the host of the Kelly Carlin Show on Sirius XM. 
and the podcast Waking Up from the American Dream, author of this fantastic book. It's a Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. She's also executive producer of the new HBO doc, George Carlin's American Dream. It's about her father, George. It's directed by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio, and it features some of my favorite people and Jon Stewart. So, uh, <laughs> welcome. welcome. I see you haven't changed at all. Uh, you look great. Uh, Thank you. Looks good. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, and and hopefully this we will resume uh, these visits. I don't things people leave, they move to New York, and they never come back to Los Angeles. Some of my happiest times in Los Angeles were at your parties, the Poly Mind community. I'm antisocial, but everyone at your parties, I could talk to anybody. Anybody. Yeah. Hey, family. what was the name of your dog? Uh, the big tall one? Yeah. Ned. Ned. Yeah. Now, we all love Ned. Am, am I allowed to talk about Ned? Of course you are. Ned, in his later years, like all of us, <laughs> began forgetting things, right? Yes. Do, do, what would he do? And this is cruel, but I just I, sometimes I think about it, and it warms my heart and makes me giggle at the same time. Well, he was one of those older, tall dogs that had lost, you know, communication with the the backside of his body. So <laughs> sometimes he would just collapse. And then sometimes he would just, you know, participate by sharing him more of himself than we wanted inside <laughs> of the house. I'll just put it that way. But sometimes he would he would start barking because he forgot that you weren't a stranger. <laughs> yeah, he was a little senile at the yeah, end. Yeah, near the end. Sure. Like he would be barking was, at me and you'd go, oh, that's okay. He forgot that you're a guest. He thinks you're a stranger. Yes. <laughs> he was he, a beautiful uh, dog. He was one of the best humans we ever, we ever knew. Okay. A Carlin home companion growing up with George. Let's talk about the book and hopefully we can have time to talk about the documentary, which is kind of based on the book. People Parts of it were. Yeah. I mean, Judd and Mike really took my story to heart and really understood that I was going to be, the, I'm the only one left. So I was going to be the one uh, to talk about the Carlin family. And uh, so, um, and yeah, in fact, when I was, you, when they, when, when they interviewed me here, um, you know, Wayne Fetterman. Yes. He was, Wayne was here and he was one of the producers and he had my, book that book and it was just marked up with 10,000 post-its and everything and they'd be interviewing me and they'd you know ask me about something and I wasn't quite sure on the year and I would just be like Wayne what year <laughs> what year was that and he'd go 1975 Kelly I'm like thank you Wayne Wayne's the keeper of my life now I just right. he just walks around everywhere with me and has all my memories right we have to have Wayne back on the show you found a place for your dad's stuff I did. I, I did. The I, National Comedy Center up in Jamestown. I remember you're incredibly generous and 
I remember you taking me into a room and showing me the evolution of a bit, the, the series of cocktail napkins that led mm -hmm. to uh, a bit. Uh, so it's all in safe, it's all safekeeping now. Yeah, it's been in Jamestown for about five, six years now. I donated the the arc about ninety percent of what I had to them, and uh, and so the documentary accessed all of the archives there, and then everything I have here too. So the handwritten notes, the calendars, the minutia that my dad saved because he was a little OCD, uh, you know, like the. The, the the bill of sale for the first car he ever bought mm -hmm. like you know he kept everything right. and then what was interesting was um they had shown me a rough cut and because i was an executive producer and i obviously know my dad i needed to give them notes so i watched this rough cut and then i was trying to find something and i went up in my attic to find it and i was looking for something else and i turned and there was this envelope it a big vanilla envelope in my dad's handwriting that said uh, George and Brenda's love letters. Mm. And I was like, what? I, my mother's been dead 25 years. I have no idea how I ever missed this envelope. It was outside of the trunk. I was looking at, I don't, it was like my dad came and like placed them right there in front of me. And I kept, went back downstairs and I started reading them and I started taking pictures and sending Judd and Mike pictures of these letters uh, and Judd tells the story uh, on someone's podcast that you mentioned earlier and that um, they'd kind of pretty much locked picture, but then they were like, oh shit, <laughs> now we've got these amazing love letters we've got to fit in. And I have to say, I'm really happy they did uh, because it shows my dad's true, most sentimental, gooey love bug heart of his uh which i i think is really important for people to understand because i wanted the documentary to really represent 360 degrees of my dad and right. it does and i'm super 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 happy about right, that right he left them around so he wanted them to be read clearly clearly right this stuff you want you think there's going to be eyeballs on it at some point so right, right. You, yeah. didn't, you didn't feel maybe this is something that should be no no not not 14 years after his death not right. no because part of what needed to be told in this documentary was my mother's story that right. without brenda carlin there's no uh, there, there's a, there is a George Carlin, but it's probably a different George Carlin and it probably didn't happen. It wouldn't have happened the way it happened because she was there early when he was with Burns and Carlin, you know, with Jack Burns on the road. Right. And I mean, there, we also show letters of, you know, them starving and having to borrow money from everybody because they have $3, you know, um, and her just undying belief in his talent, uh, which, uh, I think is really, really essential for young artists to have someone who really, really believes in them. Right. And uh, my dad had a lot of confidence and a lot of ambition, but he always needed that person here to right. mirror back to him. Go for it. I'm here with you. Let's do this. We have a lot of new listeners because I tend to alienate the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
see that? That's why isn't that something to me? But one of the benefits of having new listeners is I get to use old material. The way I love describing you, whenever I talk about you, I always say you are the daughter George Carlin should have had. <laughs> and you and you always say, but I am the daughter. He should have had. I, I am his daughter. Yeah, I go, I go, I am the but one. it never turns out the way it's supposed. You are a Jungian psychologist. You studied Jung. You have a degree. You are absolutely brilliant, loving, and caring, as well adjusted as anybody who grew up in America wow, can work, be. But you work my ass off for it. <laughs> you are truly the daughter George Carlin should have had. Ah, oh, thank you. Baby. And because it never turns out that way. It, ne it never, you, you meet, you're, when you meet George Carlin's daughter, you're supposed to say, he should, I was expecting her to be, that's kind of, I guess he was on the road. He didn't have time and didn't. Well, you know, you know David, you met me at the right decade of my life. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. Because in my 20s, you would have been like, yeah, oh. makes a lot of sense. Oh, okay. Perfect sense now. Well, it's in the book. So I, I want to talk about the book. For, okay. Okay. You're pretty open. Yeah. Can I, I, can I bring up something in the book that may be difficult? It's in the book. Go if for it. If it's in the book, I can go for it. Okay. Yeah. 20, we're talking about guns this week. Yes. 20 million Americans have either been shot or threatened by an intimate partner with a gun. Now, the, you are a, a princess. You're a comedy princess. Whether, you know, you, whether, I know that makes you feel uncomfortable, but you're the daughter of the greatest stand-up comic who's ever done it. Nobody will ever come close to George Carlin. I watched him the other night, a special, and I'm going, it's more relevant today than it was 20 years ago. There's, there's, yeah. there's George Carlin, and then there's stand-up comedy. You're a princess. You also grew up, you, you know, horses and there were private jets and privilege of west right. side la private schools bmws right. yes so i would like to think that our princess of comedy has no experience with guns is that true once once again we were bringing up my 20s that that famous decade of mine where i made some interesting choices my first husband uh, when I met him, he was on probation for a federal weapons charge because he was one of these people who at nine years old was building television sets and he helped Jerry Lewis uh, invent the in-camera video. The, the video assist? Yes. Your, your first with husband invented the video yes. assist? He was one of the, and he was one of the people who figured it out. He was 19 years old on the set with Jerry Lewis figuring that out. Genius guy, was bored, went and had a lot of um, rich friends in Beverly Hills who had guns. And so he would go to hardware stores and make silencers just out of hard things from the hardware store for them so they could shoot their guns in their backyard. No way to, fi to figure out how to silence Jerry Lewis. 
No, unfortunately not. Okay. No, he did not. But I was just uh, I'm reading so, Mel Brooks's book, and there's a chapter on how he had to spend uh, money on lawyers to get his name taken off a Jerry Lewis movie. <laughs> Go ahead. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Wow. Anyway, uh, when so I you're, met you're, my, yes, the silencer. So when I met this gentleman, when I met my first husband, Andrew, he was on probation for a federal weapons charge for making these silencers. The, the ATF stormed into his apartment. He had a newborn at the time, back when he had this happen, had a newborn child and all this kind of stuff and was on probation for like, I don't know, four or five years for this. Uh, so he, he loved guns, my first uh, guy and uh, husband. And uh, so for my birthday one year, I was with him from age 18 to 29. We got married at age when I was 22. He was 11 years older than me. Uh, For my birthday one year, he bought me a gun (laughs) thinking this is what I wanted. Now, I went out and I shot. He taught me how to shoot a handgun. He taught my mom how to shoot a handgun, actually. Uh, He bought a a shotgun for the house for my parents for protection. Um, But he also uh, had an, he bought an AR-15. He had an AR-15. He was one of those guys. Um, I did shoot it a couple of times. It is thrilling. I do really get it. Like I guess shooting a gun is thrilling. I do. I get it. Um, But one of the things we did was we were part of this thing called single action shooters society where you pretend like you're cowboys and all the guns are single action shooters. And so you would dress up in, stuff and then you'd go do these like scenario shootings and stuff and I did that for like a year it wasn't my thing uh, it just wasn't my thing but I've been around guns I have I have a beautiful bird shotgun thing in our in our house here still I don't we don't have handguns handguns are very terrifying to me uh so you know guns guns exist my dad had a had had, had a gun Andrew bought him a gun too so yeah, but, uh, you know, I think people should be uh, definitely, um, I don't think, I don't think machine guns, people need machine guns in America. I just don't know what do we do. What do we do with these? What are like 400 million guns? What are we supposed to do but with all these any fucking incidents, guns now? Any negative memories? Oh, yeah, yeah. Of the gun? So um, when we, my husband, my first husband and I did a lot of cocaine. That's how we met and bonded. That's a good mm. recipe. Guns and cocaine. It's, it's, it's fairly bonding. And then, yes, guns. And so he was uh, he was in the depths of, I had quit doing cocaine and gone back to school, UCLA, uh, to get my life together because I knew I needed to leave this man because he was a narcissistic, controlling person who worshipped me. It was great. Uh, <laughs> and um, he had an wow. automotive shop. Hang on, was, hang on. Um, wait, wait, hang on for one second. He was a narcissist. He was controlling, controlling and he worshipped yeah. you. He did. Yeah. Yeah. I needed, all- I had a self-esteem issue. So I, the worshipping part was what sucked me in and the cocaine. Uh, but he was on, he was freaking out on cocaine. He was like, he was in the dark edges of that addiction and I had quit. And um, I was really looking for ways to get out of the marriage. Um, but pretty terrified. Because he had guns and he was controlling and we were at his automotive shop. And he worshipped you. And he worshipped me, (laughs) uh, except for this day when um, we had some sort of an argument 
And I don't remember what it was about, of course, or anything like that. But I just remember saying, like, I'm done. I'm done with this. And I went to turn around and walk away. And he pulled a gun on me. And I peed in my pants. I fucking, I mean, like, bodily response to the threat of death. Your body does these things. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and so that was the low. That was the part of the, part of, the low of that thing. And, and I did get out, and I did get out safely from the marriage. I did sleep with a gun that he gave me under my pillow the first three weeks I left him for fear that he would come and find me or harm my parents. He ended up not being that guy, the harming mm-hmm. type. But, but the um, trauma. But I understand the the threat of it and the feeling of that as a woman to feel um, that um, unsafe. And the trauma of just yeah. that. One of 100%. The tra- yeah. Of the, the, one of the 20 million uh, Americans who have been threatened by a, a loved one. The, the- and, and if you have, a, I mean, it is so, you know, because if, if there's a gun in the house, and right. something like some insanity happens. If if there's no gun there, then there's no possibility of that happening. But if right. there is one, you know, and right. yeah, you you're you've been talking about the statistics of this. You know, it's it's a nightmare. We yeah. only have nine minutes left. Are you, will you come? You're gonna? Can I corral you into? Anytime. Keep okay, good, good, good. I miss you. I miss so you much. too. I moved to New York, and I. And somebody got somebody got custody of all my West Coast friends in the divorce. Oh well, that's yeah. not true. I know, but, but um, I know. But let me, I miss but, our KPFK days when we would make silly songs up with Gary Shapiro. And and your father cost KPFK about twenty million dollars, as I recall. Well, they chose that. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. He did not cost them anything. They chose to go to the Supreme Court and fight that. Right. Well, that's for another AI. Yes. Uh, we only have eight minutes. Here's why I don't smoke dope. I'm telling you, when you told me that you, the your ex-husband, who pulled a gun on you, helped Jerry Lewis invent the video assist, I'm telling you, if I were stoned, I'd have to be hospitalized. <laughs> that, that, that little touch that that he and he and Jerry Lewis invented the video assist, which is like one of the most important things in filmmaking. Everything. Like my head, just Jerry Lewis, thinking of Jerry, I, my head would explode. You are a Jungian psychologist. You studied. Yes, I consider myself post-Jungian, but let's not get into turf wars. I, I just learned how to pronu- pronounce Jung. So Jung. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, yeah, that's fine. That, right. You're doing great. Thank you. He wasn't the guy, he wasn't Marcus Welby. Or, no. no. Or, or from Father Knows Best. That's a different young. So when you look at the NRA, when you look yes. at the gun conversation, this yeah. lo- the lunacy in this, how do you filter it as a young hen? What? How do you explain mm. this? Well... Uh, I, I mean, part of it is this, this um, exceptionalism, individualism of America, the, the 
the cowboy, the go west young man, the, you know, the man out in the the prairie, you know, whatever that kind of expansionism, you know, manifest destiny bullshit. So there's there's that kind of archetypal energy. Some of, collective, some collective subconscious yes. that they all share. And, and and so and then there's this uh but 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 so there's there's part of it's that that rugged individualism part. I get that. Um the part I don't get is well, I think there is a type of personality that is, you know, the, the libertarian part of all of us. We all have a libertarian living inside of us. We all just have different issues that we're willing to fight for that. My dad was a First Amendment freedom of speech libertarian, you know, First Amendment absolutist. Uh, but a First Amendment absolutist doesn't do as much damage to the collective as a second amendment. Absolutely. That's what the Reverend Barry W. Lynn said to Wayne LaPierre. That's yeah, a, yeah. It's like, it's, it's like, you know, and the thing is, is that the, the picking and choosing of that second amendment language, you know, that, that lovely video that's going around about the, I don't know, some ex-military guys talking about, you know, well-regulated. How are we ignoring that part of the phrase? And then, of course, militia, which is such a, an, an outdated concept. And these people had muskets back then. Right. You know, it's all of these this originalist, this obsession with uh, the original, the ideal. We all have parts of us that are also obsessed with the ideal, uh, you know, the perfection of the city on the hill, all of this, you know, kind of energy, but we, but we're living in the real world. So it's this, it's this interesting cutting off of reality to serve this idealism that doesn't fit in, in modern life. It's important to have ideals for all of us, but, but we also have to learn to live with each other and get along. And so I, and I see it as a form of mass insanity at this point. I, I, I don't see how there's any other way to talk about this, you know, and I also see it as pure political cynicism also, right. you know, pe- people talk about my dad being a cynic, you know, and my dad, it's just the, the biggest thing he ever taught me about that word was, he said, you know, I'm not a cynic, you know, I'm a disappointed idealist. The cynics are the people who know better and use their power anyway to, to keep right. power, to keep their wealth. Those are the cynics. Right. So, you know, it's a form of narcissistic um, power of, you know, the inner authoritarian. I mean, it's, you know, you can't even have a conversation with these people about it. It's just, it's just a power grab in the end. Right. Right. And, you know, as we know, that's going to be the downfall of this particular species. Kellyanne Carl, Kellyanne, <laughs> Kellyanne. I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Wow. Her marriage is falling apart. Well, it's shocking. It's been yeah. falling apart on Twitter for five years. I know. I, know. I, I feel guilty. Like you should. I should not wish bad <laughs> for bad people. Right. I so well. Okay. That's but that's that's the charm. That's your charm, David. Yes. Well, 
I want you to meet Dr. Harriet Fraud in a second because we're going to be talking okay. about this. Uh, let me just remind everybody that Kelly is the host of the Kelly Carlin Show, which you can hear on Sirius XM, as well as the podcast Waking Up from the American Dream. She is executive producer of the new HBO doc, George Carlin's American Dream. It is about her father, George. It's directed by Michael Bonfiglio and Judd Apatow. And I was going to watch it over the weekend. But first I picked up a Carlin Home Companion growing up with George, and I reread it. It's hard for me to watch, like Judd's thing on Gary, uh, it, it, Gary Shandling, is mm-hmm. a ma- it's a masterpiece. It is. And, it, and-, and it's really like, it's like watching, and the um, I have to be in the right frame yes. to see the yeah. George, like I want to make sure that I can, uh, watch it because I I don't want to watch it with one eye. I mean the Shanling thing, yeah, is a masterpiece, and uh, I can't imagine how great. The, the, I mean you're you're you know. I'm I'm I look forward to hearing what you have to think afterwards because I'm blown away by what they did. So it's, yeah, it's a great well, documentary. Uh, yeah. If it's you know one tenth as good as the Shanling thing, it's yeah. going to be a masterpiece. Uh, yeah. It's uh, so, uh, and I watched Ricky Gervais's special over the mm-hmm. weekend. I know he got into trouble with some stuff. He is so effing funny. Is he really? Th- this I, latest, I watched one a couple of years ago, and I just was completely unimpressed. But I'll this watch one, this new one. This and one see and it's it. offensive, and he pissed me off. Really, yeah, really, I just find it sometimes him a little lazy. Like my dad was so good at constructing a good argument. And I just sometimes find some of these people attempting to do that. And they're not my dad. And I, know. I just have a huge bias. Like so I said, there's there's George Carlin and there's stand up. Nobody. Yeah. Seriously, nobody. It, it's not even, you know. Uh, before you go. What was your happiest moment before the age of 10 being George Carlin's daughter? What was a moment where you felt, I am cradled by the universe, it'll always be this way, I am safe, secure, because I'm George Carlin's daughter? Do you have I think any, any time getting to sit with my dad and my mom and watch comedy on TV and get to witness them laughing and to learn and figure out why they're laughing at it. And, you know, that has always been my fondest memory, whether it was the Carol Burnett show or new heart or, you know, or even Carson people on Carson and stuff. So, yeah, he enjoyed other comedians. He did. Oh, my dad had an easy laugh. Yeah. Kelly Carlin, come back next week. To be continued. So much to uh, talk I'll, about. Always, Please. I'll always come visit you. I love anytime. you. I miss you. I miss you too. Give my best to Mr. McCall, please. I will. Yes. I will. And everybody, Thank you for having everybody, me. watch the HBO doc and listen to the Kelly Carlin show on Sirius XM. But most importantly, for me, go buy a Carlin Home Companion. Growing up 
with George, written by Kelly Carlin. It's even better the second time around. I want to introduce you to Dr. Harriet Fraud. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us, and we're very grateful for that. She's a mental health counselor, hypnotherapist. She's a founding member of the feminist movement and the journal Rethinking Marxism. She is the host of the Capitalism Hits Home podcast, and she sees her clients and has helped me uh, see my neuroses through the many prisms of capitalism. Welcome, Dr. Harriet Fraud. I'd like you to meet Kellyanne Carlin, who... Uh, it's not Kellyanne. I'm sorry, I got old. Dr. Fraud, you need to help him with this. Kellyanne, how's George? Isn't Kellyanne Carlin, Kellyanne Conway married to George? George Conway? Yes. There's a lot going on in my head. Not, not of any use. Dr. Harriet Fraud... Uh, has a show on WBAI, Pacifica Radio. Oh. Yeah, and Kelly's dad cost uh, you guys a couple of million dollars as well, I believe. 70s. Oh, he did lots of benefits to make worth, up for it. He's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. No, no question. Right. Such a gift to us. Right. I wish he was still around. Yes, we need yeah. him. We need we him now more than ever. However, his stuff is more relevant now than when oh, he... That's right. It's more relevant all the time. More relevant than when he said it. Yeah, because people are paying attention now. Yeah. Now America is waking up to the disaster. Yeah. Yep. That's important. Agreed. Thank it's you, Kim. I'll share emails. I think you two should talk. Thank- I would I would love that. Nice Th- to meet you, Harry. Thank you, Kelly. I'll, hopefully Bye, I'll see you next week. Kelly. Kelly. Kelly Hand. Thank you. <laughs> Say hello to George. Kelly Ann Conway is married to George Conway. So Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. Obviously, we're going to talk about the, the shootings uh, that are going on. I should mention that George Carlin had the famous routine about the seven dirty words you can't say on television. And Pacifica Radio asked if you could say it on radio by, by playing it. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And I believe the ruling was you can't play it when kids are listening. I think that was. And how do they know? Of course. Right. Right. Welcome, Dr. Fraud. Thank you. Uh, last week, we were talking about the shooting in Buffalo. Yeah. Now we're talking about two teachers, 19 kids. Uh, um, how do you yeah. talk to somebody like Greg Abbott? How do you talk to Wayne LaPierre? How do you get to them? Are they impenetrable? I don't think I could. I think they're completely corrupted. You know, I think that they decide to be good is to get a lot of money and get whatever they can to hustle those guns. That's what good is to them. And they're good at it. And they are bribed servants of the NRA and of they, they even had a, they got some Congress people to introduce a, a law that you can never, ever do research on 
guns and the damage they do. But, you know, now, first of all, America is number one in uh, mass murders. There's right. no... I, I think they over... I think, I, I think the CDC now reversed that recently. I think you can now study the damages. Yes, they can. Now they can. Yeah. But they, they tried to get that across, and yeah. now you can. Yeah, but That's how they came couldn't. up with news, that more now in the United States... Gun deaths are the biggest killers of children, not only grown-ups, but children. Incredible. Because ours is a nation where bribery holds the day, and gun manufacturers and armaments manufacturers are the most successful sectors of the U.S. economy. And I think we have a, look, we have a bought-off legislature, and we have a bought, we have a bought off Senate and a passive Democratic Party that is also corporate control. And so, you know, the good news is people are waking up. The bad news is they're falling apart. They were falling apart because our empire is declining and people's lives are eroding. But now with the hyper availability of assault weapons and the lack of help for children, their abandonment to their families who are going crazy. There's no help. Texas, which says, oh, it's a case of mental illness, has the least funds for mental illness per capita of any of the other miserable states. And they rejected the Medicaid funds that would have included mental health aid. Help. It's all, it's all hype. And these troubled kids, all male, of course, suffering from a the gender restriction of not being able to show longing and loneliness and sorrow, but fueling all their emotional energy into manly aggression, and also who are even the more abandoned because they can't reach for each other to hug and cry and talk to each other about their pain at home. This killer's mother was a violent drug addict, and so was her boyfriend with whom he lived. Then he went to his grandmother's, who I, with whom he didn't have a good relationship. He came to school with cuts all over his face, and when his friend asked what happened, he said, I did it myself, and I was glad. And... He was utterly lost, and he at 18, in a country where you can't buy baby formula, but you could buy assault weapons, he went in and bought two assault weapons and over 3,000 rounds of ammunition and shot up a school. And he announced it on Facebook, and they didn't do a thing. Right. And the cops didn't help. They stood outside for between 60 and 90 minutes while the children were screaming, help me. I mean, this is really at the same time as our mayor in New York, Adams, said, we need more police, obviously, to stand there and watch while people are. Exactly. Right. You know, and when they and the police did quite a bit of violence themselves. When the parents tried to rush the school, they tackled them, pepper sprayed them, handcuffed them. One woman then got away, ran in behind 
the school and through another door and rescued her child. One of the cops on the scene rescued his own kids. Oh, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, that was in the news. I mean, that there's a level of despair and corruption. Also, I think there's a level of male entitlement, which is why they're all men or boys, because men are supposed to be able to have a future, even if it's a future working in a factory where you have seniority. Okay, it's a future and you have a place in your community. He had no family. He had no place in any community. He has no future. His life is over. And he's abused. And of course, not every abused child commits mass murder. You have to have the availability of weapons. You have to live in a culture like Texas, in which which has had more than its share of mass shootings. <clears throat> you also have to have permission to kill people. You have to be in a country where which kills people to solve problems. Right. China is getting on us. <coughs> Finance Zelensky. Right. Why don't you take some water? I will. I'll get it. We'll be right get, back. And I'll talk about what the dangers of religion while Dr. Harriet Fraud is getting a glass of water. They will tell us evil visited Uvalde, Texas. That's what Greg Abbott will say. They'll just say, we were visited by evil. Let us pray. It's religion. You know, we have to pray harder. Well, they weren't visited by evil. Uh, the kid did something incredibly evil. He may have been born with some bad impulses, but the culture neglected him, and it made him act out. He was he was identified. Nobody helped him. Right. And at the school, he stuttered. As a child, he stuttered, stuttering, which everybody who's in any psych field knows is a sign of terrible difficulty. He was ignored. He never got any help. Now, of course, all the kids who don't get help and are ignored and brutalized don't shoot people. But also there's the availability of guns and there's the entitlement of a male that you're entitled to act it out. And the privation of a male, that you don't have comfort and you can't admit your vulnerabilities. They are all males. Right. Every last one. There's a a paralysis that I will not put up with. Americans are saying there's nothing we can do. Yes, 80% of us want gun control. Uh, Yes, three quarters of the NRA want universal background checks, but there's nothing we can do because of the NRA, even though three quarters of the NRA want these assault weapons off the street. I, I am not going to put up with paralysis and defeatism. Life is a ground game. Politics is a ground game. When you win something, you have to fight to keep it. And then you have to keep moving forward. This is what the NRA, the reason the NRA keeps winning is our side are not just defeatists, they're 
our side is ruled by entitled, hyper-educated, highly credentialed cowards who never fought for anything in their lives. It was all handed to them. And so they don't value what gains we made and they don't try to keep them and they don't play the ground game fighting any way legally by any means necessary to defang, destroy the Mm -hmm. NRA. Yeah, well, look, it can be done when people mobilize. Alcohol and alcohol-fueled accidents used to kill many more people than they do. Mad, mothers against drunk driving got together, organized millions of people, we're there at the hearings. We now have regulations about alcohol. And yet Maybe Paul Pelosi and yet Nancy Pelosi's husband yeah, is husband. out on bail. $5,000. Not just drunk driving. He almost killed somebody. Nancy Pelosi's husband almost killed somebody this weekend driving drunk in his 2021 20, Porsche. And, they, and he's released on $5,000 bail. Wow, that's outrageous. But they have gotten laws passed. They have gotten restrictions because people mobilized. And I think one of the things people have to mobilize on this across this country, we really have to support a socialist party that covers all the issues and includes everyone. And of course, this should be a platform. It's the slaughter of the innocents every year. Well, already we've had 27 school shootings this year, which is not even half over. Right, right. And these, these are troubled boys. No one has helped them. Their isolated, crazy parents haven't either. Look at that Ethan uh, Crumbly, whose parents got him his assault weapon early before Christmas because he was so eager to have it and who wrote notes at school saying help, help, and having someone killed in pools of blood. And they did call the parents in, but the parents wouldn't take him out or get him help. Talk to me about red flags, psychiatric holds. Not that easy to put somebody in a psychiatric hold, is it? No, when anyone in an abu- with an abuse history, a domestic abuse history, would have a red flag. That's one of the things people are pushing for. Because if you are willing to beat up somebody who's a child or a woman who's no match for your physical strength, you don't deserve a weapon to enhance that strength. And people who've been caught with a, a, in a violent incident, raping people, shooting people, and so on, they should be off the list. And um, I think it's not so difficult. I just think that the main thing is there's a lot of money in the gun trade. Right. The U.S. and the the U.S. military. I mean, right now we're solving our problem of China's ascendancy and America's crumbling empire having lost four wars. So we're arming the Ukrainians to slaughter the Ukrainians and to slaughter Russians. They're very cute today. 
they, uh, I saw in the news that the Pandora Papers, when they were published, Zelensky's millions were there that he was hiding. This comedian, where did he get millions? Well, probably from us as we keep giving billions of dollars to the Ukraine. And he's responsible in part for leveling a third of his country, killing thousands. It's disgraceful, but America is pushing this. Right. To solve our problems, we're pushing the military as we are in those, what is it, 103 bases around the world? To assure our dominance, so that it's also that we are the we are the most militarized nation. We have four more four times more weapons than the nations below us. The next seven nations that are armed. Now, what is this? And we've never gotten off of a war economy ever since World War II. I think they've decided, Doctor Fraud. I really do think that the David Rubensteins from the Carlisle Group, the war profiteers, have realized there's no longer any appetite to send our men and women overseas to right. fight wars. Ever since Vietnam, they didn't want to go, you know. And Ukraine is the new model. Mm-hmm. Just give, make sure you give weapons, sell, it's a $40 billion, $55 billion, and you're on your own, we'll just give you the weapons, and isolate regions where one power seems to have hegemony over another. That's right. Crunch them like they surrounded Russia. All those Russian republics were taken over to NATO, which is America's imperial arm. And both in 1989, Gorbachev asked to be admitted to NATO in Russia. Of course, they said no. But he said, this is the end of the Cold War. We can, no way was it. There's too much money in it. In 2014, we made an agreement that Ukraine would be neutral for the rest of its existence because it has a 1,500 square mile not square mile, 1,500 mile border with the the Soviet Union, which was the Soviet Union and is now Russia. So that that doesn't work, just like Finland would be neutral. And we are slowly bringing them all in to choke Russia. I'm not saying Putin's great, he's horrible. But we are provoking wars in order to, and that's, Leon Panetta said it, Uh, Lloyd Austin said it, that we want Russia to exhaust itself. And this is the way to do it, by sacrificing the whole country and its people who are stupid enough to go along. Right. And those Nazis were into it. They do have the Azov battalions are Nazis. They killed 14,000 people in the Russian republics over the years since 2014. So there's a lot of trouble there, but we are inciting a war in the name of democracy while we're propagandizing our people. And I think one of the reasons this kid went nuts and killed all those people is this is a terrible time in America. 
The good news is people are realizing that labor is organizing like never before, except in the 30s with the CIO. Right. It's huge. Women are standing up like never before. There's an openness. There's now a candidate running for the L.A. City Council, and he lets everybody know he's a communist and he's running and he wants to do something for the city. No problem with the average person. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is calling everybody a communist. So what? Right. It's, as know, long as you're going to be called a communist, Joe Biden, you might as well be one. Well, that would be nice. Right. He'd be a lot more progressive on a lot of things, but right. the country's falling apart in many ways. And people, some people are fighting for racial equality. They're fighting for climate help. They're fighting for sexual equality. They're fighting for labor being respected at the same time as it's falling apart. And I think these are instances of America falling into the violence that we perpetrated. It's like fighting Ukraine to the last Ukrainian. Sure, let them all die. Yes, for democracy. What? It's... it's, um, Carlin could have done justice to it and did, but the corruption is overwhelming. This young man had nothing to look forward to. We we have a a problem of leadership in America. Yes, we do. America, we're a republic, and that requires leadership. You need somebody like Roosevelt who keeps throwing things against the wall That was how Roosevelt ruled. He said, I'm going to keep trying something, and if it works, let's keep doing it. If it fails, I'm going to threaten to pack the Supreme Court. And if that gets out, you know, and he scared the Supreme Court into accepting his alphabet soup of of the administrative state. So he didn't get to pack the court, but he intimidated the Supreme Court into approving all his agencies. So what you need is an activist president who comes in and says, I'm declaring war on gun manufacturers and the gun lobby, and I'm going to throw everything I've got at Wayne LaPierre. I'm going to revoke tax, his tax-exempt status. I'm going to put them on trial for marketing to kids. Uh, I'm going to find any ammo gun and ammo store that sells to underage children and you just exhaust you exhaust the gun manufacturers you exhaust the gun lobbies you say i'm the commander-in-chief i've just signed an executive order that says make a choice you either sell assault weapons to the military or you sell it to consumers it can't be both and any federal money that goes to police can't be spent on uh assault weapons uh, made by people who also sell assault weapons to consumers. That's all well, stuff. They allow consumers to have assault weapons. This is, no all stuff that a, that, this is all stuff that a leader would do. He would overwhelm the gunman. He would, but he wouldn't need um, over $3 billion to get elected. One of the problems is that in the pay-to-play system, 
They need to raise billions and then they owe their soul to the company store that paid them. But the NRA doesn't own Biden. He's not in no, debt. No, own Biden, but Biden doesn't want to go against the corporations in a big way because he is a corporate man. That's what his state is a harbor for sheltering corporate taxes. You know, leadership is leadership is if you're a hedge fund and you own stock in Smith and Wesson and, and uh, uh, the makers of Glock Remington, Remington yeah. uh, we're going to tax you at a different level. Yes, and and challenge so. me in the courts. I welcome you to challenge me in the courts. Go go up against my federal government. Spend all that money on lawyers. That's what an activist president does to protect the American people. This president, this Democratic Party, is the definition of chicken shit. Yes, they are. And also the definition of adherence to the same corporate sponsors that sponsored the Republican Party. It's the Republican Party light. Yeah. Now, on social justice issues, they are better. There's a good labor cabinet secretary, which is one of the reasons that the Amazon labor union could win. That's very important. He's progressive on issues of women's, lesbian, gay, trans rights. That's important. But in terms of class... He's abandoned the American people. Look, the most people get when they go on strike is like a three and a half or 4% raise. Not the corporations who averaged, I was reading that 17% raise during the pandemic, but three or 4%. If the inflation is 8%, you're wiped out every year. If you win and go without and strike, people are economically destroyed and the class the classes are divided, the employer class and the employee class. And we don't have a class-based movement in the United States. And we desperately need one. That's the alliances that have won. That's what won Chile. That's what's looking like it's winning in Colombia, um, South America. That's what looks like it may win in France with Mélenchon, who has united the Green Party, the Communist Party, and his party. Very quickly, in Colombia, we, we have two populists, a conservative populist and a left-wing populist who are going to going into a runoff in June. This That's is, right. This is exciting. It is exciting, and it shows that we need what we need here to fight the gun lobbies and everything else, the whole quality of life here, is we need a unifying movement that doesn't monitor each other's microaggressions all the time, but can point out if someone's insensitive, but really has a class-based message that we have to stop this. We have to start worker co-ops. We have to raise people's salaries. We have to do what even Nixon did. Nixon froze profits and wages, unfortunately. Here we could just, Biden could just, freeze profits, add Supreme Court judges, fire DeJoy, and give community, make community college free and forgive to uh, college tuition. I mean, these are things he actually could do, but he doesn't because he is a corporate man, like Nancy Pelosi is a corporate woman. Right. 
Right. They don't have those values. We need a movement that champions those values. That's why they won in Chile. Right. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, as well as It's Not Just in Your Head. You can hear her on WBAI here in New York City every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. How do people contact you? hfraud at gmail.com. And I'm not the only person on the podcast it's not just in your head. Liam Tate and Ikoi Hero are also in that podcast. Fantastic. I hope to see you next week. Thank you. I will see you next we week. We love you. We love and you. I do beat this unity drum, but that's because I believe in it. I do too. I do too. Good. And I don't believe in defeatism. There's a, Me neither. There's it's a, hope keeps us alive. Ralph Nader who gave us practically everything that's good in America, was asked during the Reagan administration, do you find it depressing that the Reagan administration is taking back all your gains? And Ralph Nader said, depressing? I don't do mood swings. <laughs> I move forward. And that's, that's, that's what the left has to learn how to do. Is that's right. And move forward on a class basis. All these issues are very important, but without the unity and without the class transformation, we won't have labor. Exactly. And labor is a crucial part of every success, whether it's abortion rights or anything else. Know who your enemy is and accept the fact that sometimes you have to vote for your enemy. Right. Sometimes if you, you know, if you don't know who your enemy is, sometimes you find yourself voting for somebody who's, you know. Also your enemy, but less so. Less, we less in, of your, yeah. Uh, New Orleans, one year we were in New Orleans and David Duke was running against some corrupt Democrat and there were bumper stickers. Vote for the crook. It's important. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. Great. You realize the Democrat, before you go, the Democratic Party, our vice president, we, we had primaries in 2020. Somehow the Democratic Party picked the two least favored candidates of all the candidates who ran. The least favorite are now president and vice president. And probably the most acceptable to corporate America. Right. Nobody One wanted face and the same values. The other with a white face and the same values. Nobody wanted Joe Biden. Nobody. And no. nobody wanted Harris. Nobody. Nobody. And then no. when Bernie started winning, they circled the wagons and said. Right. And yeah. circled the wagons and ran the wagons over Bernie. That's right. right. Thank you, Dr. And that was the Democratic Party that stabbed him in the back. We have to remember that. Thank you. We have an exciting. Thank, thank you, Dr. You. Harriet Fraud. We have an exciting guest mm -hmm. who's returning. Let's go up to a much better country called Canada, where Professor Adnan Hussein is joining us. And Professor Schmidt is joining us, who I know from the teaching company. Oh, I just muted him. Uh, and we're going to learning company, right? The, the, the learning company. Uh, and did I say teaching company? Yes. Go ahead, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein. This is an important conversation. 
Please go. Absolutely. Ahead. Thank you so much, David. Um, and I'm really um, well happy to uh, be speaking again with a colleague and a friend, David Schmidt, who is associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Buffalo. And he teaches uh, courses in British and American fiction, cultural studies, popular culture. He's published on a wide variety of subjects, including the nonfiction novel, celebrity, film adaptation, Dracula, crime fiction. Uh, but as we know all too well from one of his previous uh, visits and discussions with us, he is a scholar uh, whose work is focused on violence and popular culture in America. And he's the author of Natural Born Celebrities, Serial Killers in American Culture, co-author of Zombie Talk, Culture, History, Politics, and the editor of Violence in American Popular Culture, as well as co-editor of Globalization and the State in Contemporary Crime Fiction, A World of Crime. Um, he's currently working on a book about crime narratives in the Black Lives Matter era. Um, so, David, welcome uh, to the show again. Hey, Adnan. Thanks very much for having me on. Yes. Well, unfortunately, uh, just over a year ago, we first had you on to talk about the Atlanta spa shootings and the whole problem of violence in America, yeah. something that you're an expert on. But uh, even more disturbing for you, I'm sure, is the fact that um, this kind of mass shooting and violence has uh, uh, touched home uh, in a uh, profound way in your own home community of Buffalo with the recent attack there. I'm wondering if maybe you could start by telling us a little bit more about what happened, <clears throat> the response uh, um, of yourself and of the community. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the first thing I want to say, I think, is that as a scholar, especially when you're working on something like violence over a long period of time, you tend to build up a kind of immunity or a shell, however you want to describe it, that helps you to look at the issue objectively uh, or as objectively as possible. And that shield uh, quickly came down a couple of weeks ago um, when the Buffalo massacre took place. It was really uh, felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. And in theory, it shouldn't make that much of a difference when it happens in your home community, but it does. Um, and I think especially because for anyone out there who knows Buffalo, they will know that it's a small city, not so much in terms of size, uh, but in terms of feeling. And an injury to one is an injury to all, as they say. And I think everyone in the community uh, was impacted by this and felt the horror of what had happened. Um, now, with that said, it's equally important to acknowledge the fact that Buffalo is a highly segregated city, like many other American cities, and is also segregated by design, um, which is one of the things that allowed the shooter to be able to target this particular community, this particular grocery store. Um, and so that segregation uh, materially enabled what happened uh, on that day. And so part of the reason I emphasize that is because whenever I'm looking at something like this, um, I'm always very leery of individualist interpretations. 
And I always lean towards structural interpretations. So for me, even though we're talking about an individual who committed this appalling crime, I'm also interested in thinking of this as a structural phenomenon, which means, amongst other things, that the solutions have to be structural. We can't just keep it at the level of individual psychology. We can't just keep it at the level of family dynamics, even though we need to talk about those things. We need to understand how what happened in Buffalo, what happened in Evaldi, connects to how our whole society, our whole culture is structured. And if we don't do that, then we really do uh, condemn ourselves to simply repeating the same thing again and again. Okay, I was not able to <clears throat> unmute there, but thank you, David. Okay. Um, so um, that's a very important and interesting point that you've raised there, and I think. Excuse me for know, one second. Don't unmute yourself, please. Okay. Uh, right. So um, the, what what it reminds me is that what you what you said about the way in which it's so segregated uh, yeah. geographically is what enabled uh, the killer to express his racist violence by finding a place where he could target black people essentially exclusively. But that's a structural condition. In mm -hmm. some ways it suggests that, um, I mean, would you say that in, in some ways the whole structure of segregation is a kind of systemic uh, form of violence? Uh, you know, this was a, a upsurge of direct uh, kind of cataclysmic violence, but that there is a structural violence um, that is also killing people uh, as a result of uh, enforced poverty, lack of opportunities, degradation of of health um, that is also part of this kind of racist segregation. I would agree with that, absolutely. And I think in a situation like this, one has to strike uh, a very difficult balance between, on the one hand, acknowledging the horror of what happened, and on the other hand, setting that event in a larger context in a way that does not minimize what happened. So, for example, another very frequent um, phenomenon that I've come across again and again in, in my work is that certain types of violence in American culture tend to be what's known as mediagenic. You know, those are the kinds of violence that are highly visible, highly dramatic, and that news organizations, for example, are attracted to for that reason. And mass shootings are obviously very high at the top of that list in terms of what makes a mediagenic violent event. Now, that does not mean that these events should not be covered. But what it does mean is that it's up to us to also bring into the conversation those types of violence that you're referring to that are not highly visible that are not cataclysmic, 
that don't take place over the period of a few minutes or a couple of hours, but take place over years, over decades, over centuries, and that can be just as important and just, if not even more, necessary to analyze and understand the impact of um, than the highly mediagenic events. So, for example, I'll give you an example of why this is important. There's obviously been a lot of discussion in Buffalo since the massacre about how we move forward as a community. And I'm not talking about the rhetoric of thought and prayers and healing and, and that type of thing. I'm talking about, you know, how do we address those structural issues that allow this individual to target this community. And one part of that that is ongoing has been, I think, conversations that have been very difficult for some people about the limits of charity in general mm -hmm. and the limits of white charity in particular. Now, this is not a comfortable conversation for a lot of people to have, but it has to happen. Because if it doesn't, what we'll see is, again, the repetition of a similar pattern. The east side of Buffalo right now is being flooded with charitable donations, gifts, food, supplies, etc., etc. But no matter how well-intentioned that generosity and that good feeling is, everyone knows it comes with an expiration date. Everyone knows it is not going to last for much longer. And when it dries up, things are going to be exactly the same on the east side of Buffalo. And in fact, in many ways, they're going to be even worse because now Tops, for example, is closed indefinitely. That supermarket is probably not going to reopen. So what we need is structural investment in the east side of Buffalo, and I'm not talking even at the city level or the state level or the federal level, but the recognition of the fact that there are already African-American community organizations on the east side who have been doing this work, who will continue to be doing the work. Those are the organizations that need to be invested in. And so this may sound like a strange thing to say, given the circumstances, but I do believe that tragic events of this kind do provide us with an opportunity. Because if I can take a phrase that Dashiell Hammett uses in the Maltese Falcon, these events take the lid off life and allow us to see how it works. And with that knowledge, we can begin to have those conversations about how to prevent this from happening again. Now, gun control is obviously a big part of that conversation, but I would sound a note of caution that it can't be the only part of that conversation. And this is where I go back to what I said earlier. Not only is the solution structural, but the solution has to be taken on on multiple fronts simultaneously. So gun control is one of many, many, many different subjects that we need to be discussing in the aftermath of these events. Yeah, I'm really um, thinking about um, 
how and whether change can, can and will take place in Buffalo as a result of this um, uh, terrible event. Um, I'm thinking also a little bit that very recently it seemed that Buffalo had an opportunity to bring in to at least the city's governance, somebody who had a more structural analysis, who really intended to um, uh, target the inequality in the city. Uh, you know, your mayoral election uh, where India Walton, a uh, very progressive uh, candidate, was unfortunately not able to defeat this incumbent. And it's that kind of continuing, repeated pattern of, of leadership that has been based on maintaining this structure and system of neglect and right. inequality that really has contributed. Hopefully that can uh, be challenged. Well, I mean, let me point out as well that the people who sank India Walton's primary campaign were not African-American residents of Buffalo, it was white liberals. They were the ones who got scared of the prospect of having a socialist mayor in Buffalo. And they were the one who, you know, had Byron Brown as a writing candidate. And Brown's response, one of his responses to the Buffalo massacre is to give even more money to a police department that is notoriously brutal. So, you know, you reap what you sow. And this is one of the reasons why, even though I agree with what David and the previous guests were saying about the need for federal action, I also think it's very important for us to understand that the government is not going to save us. We can't rely on these systems that are built to dominate and control us, not to help us. We can't rely on them to save these communities. We have to do it ourselves. And that's why I think I take a perverse kind of comfort in the fact that pretty much anything you do can have some impact on the problem of guns in America. You can take on toxic masculinity. You can take on white supremacy. You can take on mental health causes. You have lots of options for activism that don't have anything to do with guns directly, but that will still have an aspect, uh, have an impact on that issue because everything is connected. You pull on one thread, you're pulling on the whole fabric. So that to me is an important point to emphasize because again, I think one of the negatives of only focusing on uh, gun control is that it very easily plays into this narrative of despair and hopelessness, Mm -hmm. that nothing's ever going to change. And that obviously becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy very quickly. So I think one of the most important things to remind ourselves of at moments like this is that we have, we have for our own survival to keep believing in the possibility of change. And I'm not just talking about, you know, Antonio Gramsci's well-known adage of optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect. I'm also talking about the Welsh Marxist, Raymond Williams, who's never very far from my thoughts, when he said to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair inevitable. And that is what we need to continue to focus on, those resources of hope that are already there, but that need to be nourished, that need investment, that need encouragement. So to me, the bottom line is if you find some way 
of becoming or continuing to be an active participatory member of your community, that is the best antidote to these individuals um, who express hatred through these attacks than I can possibly think of. Well, um, I really appreciate that uh, hopeful uh, turn point, turning point because I think you're right that one thing that we've seen, and of course, we're, this is a, in some ways a repeated conversation. We've had it. Everybody in America has been having these. We had it with you uh, on the show uh, uh, just over a year ago. It's very possible to feel as if nothing can or will mm-hmm. ever change. Right. And I think one of the things you've pointed out is that there's multiple fronts. One of the problems it seems on which we can act. Uh, uh, it seems that one of the problems um, in our attempts to address it, or as part of our discourse, is that uh, there's a very polemical or polarized form of discussion and dialogue around it. Republicans come up and say, oh, it's mental health so that they can diminish, uh, you know, the or change the topic from gun control. And, you know, liberals and Democrats and others uh, almost exclusively emphasize this one point, but then bemoan how the gun lobbies make it impossible that we can ever do anything. Uh, and w- in some ways, what you're suggesting is that you have to break the cycle by saying, yes, it is a concern. Mental health is a concern and there's things we can do about it. We should be doing things in our communities, putting in resources. Uh, There are other social services. There's many, many fronts uh, on which we can be acting that will help improve the situation. Well, I think um, coincidentally today, May 30th is the 29th anniversary of the death of the great Afrofuturist and jazz legend Sun Ra. And Sun Ra once said, we've tried the possible and it's failed. It's time to try the impossible. And that is something which I can really relate to uh, in terms of what you were just saying, Adnan, that we do need to continue to work on multiple fronts simultaneously. Yes, let's continue to build on conversations that we've already had that are ongoing, but we also need to be willing to sort of think outside the box so that we don't find ourselves in this almost literally nightmarish scenario of a kind of repetition compulsion where the whole culture just keeps going through the same ritualistic moves again and again and again while we wait vainly for something um, to change. It's like a horror film version of Groundhog Day um, where we just feel we're going to do the same thing again and again. And for me personally, the turning point for for me on, on this particular issue was Sandy Hook. I remember, you know, when Sandy Hook took place, I was utterly convinced. So it's like, okay, now this is the turning point. This is what's going to be needed to break the logjam and to get sensible and substantive gun control. And of course, as we know, it didn't happen. Um, And at that point, when I realized that there were powerful elements in our culture that put the rights of gun owners above the lives of children, that is a very easy way in which you could just say, I give up, you know, I give in to despair. But instead, as I've been saying, I think what it is, is a wake up call that we have to be more creative. We have not to sort of think of things as business as usual and to try something different. Do you mind if I ask a cultural and political que- question? This sure. is uh, 
really important to me. As I'm listening to you, I'm not a fan of all of the above. Mm -hmm. I, I think I hear that with climate change, and that's not working for me. Mm -hmm. I find myself saying, agreeing with you about all of the above when it comes to the the gun violence. I I, right. I, I had this thing in my head, uh, you know, just get rid of the guns, and then I realize, okay, that you know, Deus Machina isn't going to happen, so we have to try all of the above. I want to ask you politically if a president treated the gun epidemic like COVID and mm -hmm. did we learn anything about bringing the numbers down on COVID? If a president said last year, 45,222 people died from gunshots, I want to cut that number. And I'm willing to jawbone the industry. I'm willing to talk to anybody. I want to figure out how to get these numbers down. If I want to speak to emergency room physicians to make sure people survive these gunshots, to frame it as we would COVID, all of the above. How, you know, blame the cops, blame the emergency rooms, blame, start blaming everybody. So eventually Americans start saying, you know what? Maybe we should get rid of the guns Is mm -hmm. there, or, or work with, I, I don't think you can work with the gun manufacturers. I don't rule anything out. I right. think anything is worth a try. But with respect to the example that you mentioned, the COVID issue, I think what's instructive about that example is that it gave us a glimpse uh, into the pushback that um, the president got, even when you're um, arguing for something right. as politically neutral, one would think, uh, as vaccines. Now, imagine the blowback from uh, gun control times 100 and 100 times more lethal. So, for example, um, in Australia, after a shooting at Port Arthur in 1996, the response was to ban assault rifles. But then the government, which, by the way, at the time was a right wing conservative government in Australia, the government realized that there were still thousands upon thousands of assault rifles out there. So what they did was to institute a mandatory and that's the key word here, a mandatory buyback program for assault rifles. Everyone who turned in their rifle would be paid a fair market price for their weapon. People who had these guns illegally could also turn them in, would not be prosecuted, but they wouldn't receive any money. A total of 650,000 guns were turned in. It's estimated that was about 20% of all guns in Australia at the time. Yes, there was pushback, but not as much as the government at the time was anticipating. Now, what do you think would happen if Biden tried to institute a mandatory buyback program for all assault rifles in the United States? We would have a literal civil war. So I don't think that, you know, it's not worth talking about. And I think that this is a problem that's so profound that we need to do anything we can to address it. But the example of COVID does not fill me with optimism about this particular um, 
uh, line of uh, this particular approach. Let me because ask you a difficult question. If there's that much opposition to get in a, a shot, uh, how much more opposition is there going to be to someone turning over their rifle, especially when it's the federal government ordering them to do so? Well, you've studied and you write about how people process horror movies and crime and violence. Mm -hmm. There was a piece in the New York Times about showing these victims, you know, Emmett Till's mom. Yeah. Open she wanted the world to see what they did to em Emmett Till. Jackie Kennedy wouldn't take off the dress from Dallas. She wanted, the, right. she said, I want the world to see. Right. Culturally, would, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible question to ask, but I don't want to see the damage, but would that move the needle? I don't believe so, no. Um, and I, I say that not because of this familiar argument that often has a conservative inflection, which is that, you know, we've all become sort of inured to violence and therefore popular culture needs to be censored and controlled. I simply believe that um, most people who see that and who support the rights of gun owners would not be swayed by that because they would find it a horrible sight, but they wouldn't put that down um, to the easy availability of weapons. Right. Right. Um, and I think that <laughs> the other reason that would not have the impact is that violent images and violent entertainment are such a constitutive part of our culture, for better or worse, um, that... I don't think it's going to shock anyone. I mean, just to give you an illustration, uh, the first time I taught a class on horror film to American college students, there were some films I didn't put on the syllabus because I thought they might be too extreme. And you already know where I'm going with this. You know, not only did it turn out that they had seen those films, um, but they'd seen them on average when they were around 10 or 12 years old, which just kind of blew my mind as, as naive as it sounds. I, I literally could not believe that. But also look at some examples that critics have referred to as kind of societal slips of the tongue. Uh, the season four of Stranger Things debuted on Netflix last Friday. Um, Netflix had to hurriedly put an opening statement um, right before the opening episode of season four because that opening scene uh, showed a, um, a schoolroom full of children being murdered. Um, and when I say that's a societal slip of the tongue, it illustrates how much that type of violence has integrated into our culture so that it's not shocking anymore. Uh, I can give you another example. The same week that Ted Bundy um, broke into the sorority house uh, in Florida and killed female students in that sorority house, one of the networks was about to air a TV movie of the week about, guess what, sorority house murders. And they had to pull that from the air. So these are moments when you can see what is normally hidden, um, some kind of mirroring effect between what happens in our popular culture and what happens in the quote-unquote real world. Now, like I said, the lesson that I take from that is not we need to control popular culture. It's rather that our history as a culture is so deeply um, engaged with violent forms of entertainment and violence in entertainment 
that we can't walk that back. And one of the consequences of it is that it's very, very difficult to expose people to any type of image now that would shock them enough to say, I've changed my mind on this issue. We need to act. Right. Can you stay? How, how are you on time? Sure, I'm good. Okay. We're, we're talking with Professor Adnan Hussein, and our very special guest who's back is Professor David Schmidt, and he teaches serial killers, he teaches zombies, contemporary crime fiction. Uh, he has a class over at The Learning Company entitled The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. I've taken that class, and you're currently working on a book about crime narratives in the Black Lives Matter era. I want to give it back to Professor Adnan Hussein, and, uh, and I want to invite uh, Ethan Hershenfeld to join us if you have any questions about violence in our culture. Before I throw it to Professor Hussein, would you say we are witnessing more violence in our culture then obviously our movies, novels, writing is way more violent today than it was 20, 30 years ago, correct? Uh, are you asking me that, yes. David? Yes. Yeah, I mean, for example, in the film industry, when the production code came to an end um, in the late 1960s, that um, opened the doors for much more explicit content that had been controlled by that code previously. But the point is that part of the reason the production code was junked in the first place is that American society had changed so much by the late 1960s that the production code was a relic. So I think we need to be very careful, and I'm not implying that you were doing this, David, but I'm, I think we need to be very careful of constructing cause and effect narratives here. Um, so, you know, there is a very popular line of argument that goes, you know, because uh, video games, for example, are getting more and more violent, this leads to more and more real world violence. I'm extremely skeptical um, about those kinds of arguments. Um, but there's no denying the fact that, you know, the popular culture has gotten more violent, but that's because our culture as a whole has gotten more violent. But the other thing I would point out here is that it's always important to bear in mind a kind of a disconnect that exists between actual levels of violence in our culture and public perceptions of those violence, of that violence in emotion. So for example, if you track the FBI annual reports of crime over the last 20 years or so, you'll see um, in general, declining rates of violent crime across the board. Yet over the same period, Americans' perception of the level of violent crime and the amount of anxiety they feel about crime and their belief in how likely it is that they will become a victim of violent crime, all of those things have remained basically in the same place. So in other words, there is, as I said, a kind of disconnect between actual violent crime levels and people's perception or anxiety about being victims of crime. And I think that's really important to factor into the discussion, not least because, you know, it opens up the possibility that one of the things that leads to those fairly stable levels of anxiety is not just popular culture, 
but also news reporting of violence, the massive overrepresentation of crimes of violence in the media in general, not just in popular culture. Oh, and also the fact that, you know, for most of the last 20, 30 years, the U.S. has been at war with someone or other. And, you know, so we are receiving the message day after day after day, a kind of schizophrenic message that violence is something both to be deplored, except if you're conducting it on the level of foreign policy, which is in which case it the way to go. So unless we start sort of, you know, looking at that, the big picture at that level of generality, I think we're never going to be able to really um, have a, a productive discussion. Professor Hussein, you're living now in Canada. How would they respond to these shootings? Well, I think in many ways they wouldn't respond in exactly in, in dramatically different ways. I mean, there's a lot that's shared in North American culture, but it is definitely the case that um, that there are far fewer. I mean, there's no country that has the kind of rate of mass shootings that the United States does, and there are you know more significant gun control laws. I think it's also relevant that even though we don't have extensive mental health, free mental health coverage, we do have broadly universal health care, and so there are some structural differences that make the society and the culture different. Um, and even you know the story of I think maybe you know some of these narratives. I'm not a literature person, so uh, perhaps um, David uh, Schmidt will correct me here on this, but I think some of the national narratives are very different as well. I mean, the, these are both settler colonial countries, but the colonization and settlement of Canada, at least the narrative that's told about it, uh, while there's uh, a lot of violence in it, there are also a lot of treaties that were created between the British, uh, you know, and uh, indigenous peoples. And these rights are not respected the way they should be, but they do inform the discourse. And so there's a kind of narrative of negotiation, of trying to create some kind of working relationship between indigenous First Nations, as sometimes they're called. Whereas, for example, America is about the sort of violent settlement and suppression of the indigenous peoples, wiping them out in order to create this new culture that is bathed in blood. That's just part of the, the cultural narrative. And so there are, I think, differences like that. Um, but I guess one thought or question I had in terms of uh, what happened recently is looking at the other shootings that happened in addition to the Buffalo case that uh, we were just talking about, which is the way in which the Uvalde, although I think that the you know shooting of the Taiwanese Americans at the Geneva Presbyterian Church got some coverage that has not mm -hmm. been talked right. about nearly as much, but that the Uvalde shooting at the school um, kind of uh, allowed a replay of the pattern of the Sandy Hook, you know, because it's a school shooting and, you know, we could talk about, about it in that way and in such a way as to displace perhaps an even more uncomfortable discussion about a mass shooting that involved this, you know, racist attack, uh, the role of white supremacy, the great, you know, replacement theory that immediately was polemicized in a very different way. And so I'm just wondering... I think in Canada, for example, we would have had a much more exhaustive discussion if there had been a racist attack. And we have had that when there was an Islamophobic, um, you know, killing recently. There has been a way of really talking about this 
um, in public discourse collectively as a racist attack and really confronting that. And I don't see that happening in the U.S. As soon as it is discussed, it is part of some kind of partisan, uh, um, you know, partisan polemic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about the way that has displaced is because we moved to the more comfortable discussion and pattern of uh, the school shooting, the mass shooting, and didn't want to uh, continue to think uh, deeply about uh, the racist dimensions of this, uh, of the Buffalo shooting? I certainly think that's true, Adnan. Um, and there's no doubt about the fact that the Uvalde shooting how can I put it, short-circuited the possibility of more extensive discussions of the the racial dimensions of the Buffalo massacre. However, with that said, I would have to say that even if the Evalde shooting had not taken place, I would guess that the Buffalo massacre would already start to be receding from the media's uh, attention. We all know that for many reasons, uh, the media has an incredibly short attention span when it comes to reporting on incidents like this. Mm -hmm. And the Buffalo massacre, I don't think would have been an exception uh, to that rule. And in fact, you could even make a, not exactly a counter argument, but a different argument that says, these two events come in so close to each other along with the shooting in California, um, potentially sort of energizes a more far-reaching and more consequential discussion of of gun violence Mm -hmm. than if the Buffalo massacre had taken place and, and the other shootings had not happened. But I come back to what I said earlier, that, you know, those kinds of national, federal level discussions, the ones that tend to be characterized by these repetitive platitudes are not where we should be focusing our attention precisely because they are so platitudinous and so repetitive. Um, I keep coming back to this emphasis upon uh, the local um, that to me is no less structural than if you think of things um, at a national level, because the complexity of a local community is, I think, a strong antidote against this feeling of hopelessness that people feel that they can't make a difference. I think the other advantage of thinking in local terms is that you can um, much more easily see the impact of your activism um, and your participation. So again, I'm not arguing that we should favor one over the other or pay no attention to the national discussion and only focus on the local. But I think that there is a tendency that we need to guard against to only judge the outcomes of these events by discussions that are taking place at the national level. And I think that's one of the things that has to change. I also just wanted to take this opportunity just to say very quickly that on that subject, it's also important to emphasize that mass shootings only occur, um, only constitute a fraction of the gun violence in America each year. The majority of gun deaths in America, year in, year out, are suicides. 
And that is another fact which is important to bear in mind that mass shootings, for understandable reasons, tend to dominate the narrative about gun violence in America. And that's another tendency I think we should push back against and make an effort to contextualize this um, this issue in all of its complexity. A question about the culture. And, and feel free, Ethan, to, to jump in anytime. We were told in the past that these shooters are, they tend to be white men, you know, before their frontal cortex has been developed, and they are doing it because they want to be famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that true? And is the media... Could the media do a better job by not saying their names, not showing their pictures, not telling their story, just telling the story of the damage? I know, you know there could be an unsaid code of ethics among the, of the media not to report the, the shooter's name. I would just uh, say that. As someone who's tried to get famous through acting, I think they're right. It's a lot easier to get famous the way they do it. Right. (laughs) I do think that there is a move underway um, to make the elimination of the shooter's name more and more routine. Um, In the immediate aftermath of the Buffalo Massacre, um, when it was still an ongoing news story, the local cable companies here in Buffalo announced on air that they would not be using the shooter's name. And that was an editorial decision that was made as the events were still unfolding. So I think that's becoming more and more um, the norm. Whether or what, not what about the have... writings? Again, this is, we have a First Amendment. Yeah. But the copycats, they, it's almost as though these mass shootings mass shooters uh, built off precedents like court, yes. r- court decisions. I or- do think that this is where I would make a distinction personally, although it's not an absolute distinction, where I would make a, a distinction between serial killers and mass shooters because it used to be that the conventional wisdom for, you know, when one was talking about serial killers is that they were driven by the love of publicity. They were driven by the desire to become famous. And there are certainly some cases that fall into that category, but I always felt, and my research supported this, that that was a narrative, um, that was hugely exaggerated. And I think it was more a reflection of the fact that the average American wants to be famous more than it was um, a good diagnosis of the average serial killer. Most of whom just want to be left alone did, um, to did, do what they do. In the coverage of the Buffalo shooter, yeah. I noticed that they dignified him as though there was stare decisis, I don't know if that's the term, where they were building, where white nationalists who take up arms build a case against black people that's, and it was reported in the New York Times. Right. They're, they're building off, they're as though these shooters are building off other shooters. I do think that's true to some extent, but I see that again, this may be too Pollyanna-ish, I see this as an opportunity. And what I mean by that is that 
every time that happens, it becomes clearer and clearer, to me at least, that the best way to understand mass shootings like the one that took place in Buffalo is not as the actions of a lone wolf, but that the shooter is acting as a representative of a community. And that these are, again, structural crimes. They are community crimes. Um, at one point, the Buffalo shooter posted online, it's time to stop shit posting and to actually, I'm going to go and do something. And that, I think, expresses very well the relationship between a racially motivated shooter like the Buffalo shooter and the online community of which he's a part. The other thing I would say, David, is that I just want to come back to what you were saying about the um, the gender of mass shooters. And that seems to me another conversation which, you know, the media is not keen to have. And in fact, it's so taken for granted that mass shooters are going to be male that it's never remarked upon. <laughs> but I think for obvious reasons, it's important to remark upon it. And it's important to try and understand why it is that we don't have female mass shooters um, at the same to the same degree anywhere near as often as we have male mass shooters so add that to the long list of things that we need to be folding into the conversation why do you think that is why do you think, I think women a lot of it I, I think a lot of it has to do, and this is where it's interesting to me that it crosses racial lines and it crosses ethnic lines. I think a lot of it has to do not just with, a, let, let's call it the gender version of white replacement theory. And this is a narrative that's been going on, you know, in one way or another uh, ever since the 1960s, that the traditional authority and power of men, that men are socialized to believe is their right, is part of their inheritance is being chipped away at um, by, well, let's just call it the world in general. And this builds, I think, among some young men, a tremendous sense of uh, resentment um, and that is, I think, not directed towards the people who actually do keep them powerless and not directed towards the structures that do keep them at the bottom, um, but they lash out at other people who, you know, they perceive as being themselves as being superior to. So again, it's an eminently structural problem that needs um, structural solutions. But this is where, you know, you bring in the mental health issues as well. And it's a demonstration of why you can't have this conversation without considering the mental health dimension. Well, why don't we wrap this up? I would love to have you come back. Uh, I'm honored that you, that Professor Hussein. I'm honored Professor Hussein is here. I'm honored you're here. Uh, uh, it's it's great to see you. And uh, I, I have to say, I, I was so happy to hear from you because partly because, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, this Buffalo thing hit me very personally in ways that I wasn't expecting, and not to minimize anything that happened, but talking about it with other people feels deeply therapeutic as well as necessary. So I'm always happy to, to be a guest on your show. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Ethan. Thank you for saying that. Ethan, you have to, oh, you have to unmute. Okay. Sorry. Unmute. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about that. I got muted somehow. I just know I just want to say that the other reason that you don't see a lot of women uh, committing these shootings is because it's really a driving issue. You have to drive to the shooting and there there's challenges there. <laughs> OK, thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> st- stick around, Ethan. We'll, uh, Professor Adna Hussein, why don't you wrap up the interview? Well, I please. just want to thank uh, yeah. David uh, Schmid for joining us uh, again. Uh, it's a very sobering occasion. The second time we've had you on to discuss mass shootings mm-hmm. in America. Um, we have had you on for other topics. And so hopefully the next time we can discuss maybe spy fiction and, uh, you know, other genres, imperialism, uh, and so on. Um, but we really, really appreciate, uh, um, your thoughts and analysis on this, uh, important issue and hope you'll come back again soon. Um, how can people follow you on Twitter? Um, I think, I think I'm David at David Schmidt one on Twitter. Um, I also, if you don't mind, wanted to give a shout out to an excellent book. I just finished reading by Carolyn Elkins called legacy of violence, uh, history of the British empire. And uh, it's been much in my thoughts uh, for the last week or so while I've been reading it. And uh, maybe we can talk about, about that in future as well. Oh, I I hope we can. And in fact, actually, I saw that title and wanted to uh, interview her for Guerrilla History. Uh, I interviewed her for a previous radio program I had about basically Kenya, because that's what she did her first work on was, uh, you know, the camps in Kenya. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We should also thank you very much. Thank you, Professor. I should also mention the professor has a series of video lectures for the learning company entitled The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. And he's currently working on a book about crime narratives in the Black Lives Matter era. Everybody should check out the learning company. It's amazing. It really is. Uh, I've been subscribing to the learning company ever since they went to a Netflix model. I've been uh, buying their lectures since 1999, since two, uh, 2000. You can get them at the library, the learning company. Uh, it's building blocks of your intellectual development. And if you want to keep uh, your uh, building blocks getting higher and higher, listen to Guerrilla History, co-hosted by Professor Adnan Hussein. He does that show along with the great Henry Huckamaki and the Mudgeless podcast. Who do you have on the Mudgeless podcast, Professor Adnan Hussein? Okay. Uh, he has stormed off. He's Oh, he's back. He's thought twice. He, who's, oh, I have to unmute you again. Who is on the Mudgeless podcast? So sorry, David. I don't know what's going on, but if I mute, I can't unmute. Yeah, there's uh, a some right kind now. of setting that I can't fix. Right. right. It's, okay. It's Memorial yeah. Day. Well, um, well, on guerrilla uh, uh, guerrilla history, um, you know, we had a recent discussion with uh, two uh, activist journalists from India about the farmers' protests. That's our latest. Um, uh, the year-long farmers' protests that uh, were really, really profoundly uh, significant um, for labor and agriculture, maybe globally. So do check that out. And on the Mudge List, we had another Indian-themed um, episode, which was about uh, storytelling uh, and genres of storytelling uh, in uh, Indian romance. Uh, so check that out on the Mudge List, M-A-J-L-I-S. Thanks Thank again. You. Thank you so much. Professor Adnan Hussein, and catch him over at Office Hours, where he's been generous enough to teach 
uh, early in the morning on office hours. Ethan Hershenfeld, comedian, actor, new comedy special, Thug Thugs. You were running a little behind schedule uh, today. Where are you? Oh, Fafi, quiet. Oh, I'm home in Brooklyn. I'm just That's in, no in way. a different are you talking to your girlfriend angle. Who are you just talking to? No, that was that was the dog. Fafi, oh. quiet. She's quiet all all day, and then the second we start they, talking, she they has pick to, up on that. The dogs pick up wow. on your energy, don't you think? They know yeah. when you're like it's you know, showtime yeah. and your adrenaline is flowing, and you're excited. But it's my show. Why would you have adrenaline and excitement? Did you do any comedy this weekend? No, I did that narration yesterday in Queens in the park with the Queen's Symphony of the Lincoln. The Lincoln Lincoln Portrait by Aaron Copeland. It was interesting. The weirdest thing happened, which was when I was about to go on stage. This sounds like a joke, but this actually happened. I'm about to go on stage, and they get some kids from the park. They put Queen's Symphony t-shirts on them and give them little flags because the concert begins with the Star Spangled Banner. And these kids are very excited. They have a little adrenaline before going on stage. And one of them literally says to the other, this is crazy. This is backstage, just like a band shell, like in Central Park, but this is in Forest Park in Queens. One of the kids, in his excitement, he just says, white power. And he says, I'm the new Adolf Hitler. And he does the Nazi salute to his friends. And they're laughing. And I'm about to go on stage and read, like narrate, it's like Gettysburg Address, it's Lincoln talking about tyranny. How old is this kid? And he's, he's probably 11. And he's holding an American flag. It was so bizarre and disturbing. And, you know, I said I was I was, I was kind of a, admonishing him and scolding him. It was it was it was a terrible moment. Did I said, you hey, sing the house funny. I yeah. live? Didn't you sing the house I live in like Sinatra did with those? <laughs> I didn't have I just said anyway, I said to him, you know, you, you can't really. You shouldn't talk like that in public. I said, you also probably shouldn't talk like that at home. <laughs> but you definitely shouldn't talk like that in public. Things could go really badly for, you know, anyway. And then I talked to the adults who were with him. And they said, oh, no, no, no. Don't, it's just something he sees, you know, they see it online and they're just repeating. And I said, well, that's a problem. Like, what if... <laughs> He just sees it online. Don't worry about it. Like, I thought our country is so screwed. I couldn't, I, I really it connected to what you were just talking about with the professor. I just feel like there's all these, there's all this violence. Kids are joking about that. They know nothing about history. They have no sense of anything. The adults around them are saying, eh, it's not a big deal. I just thought we're, we're screwed. Democracy is actually being undermined in all sorts of ways. And then on top of it, you have kids who don't understand thing one about the fact that we had to go to war several times to preserve democracy, civil war, World War II. And it, it's, I don't know. I love what uh, what David was saying about uh, act locally to right. not think into pessimism and despair. I was interested in the mechanics of that because right now I'm having fun cracking jokes and doing what I do, but I have zero hope for, for well, our let civilization. Let me get back to these 11-year-old kids those 11 year old Nazis well, with the American but, flag. But now think back. I'm, I'm not defending it. No, but think back to when you were 11 trying to get a rise out of your friends. Of course. Right. But the kids were, they were really, the they other kids mean, were kind of, do they mean it? Well, they don't even know what it means. So in a, okay. in a sense, they don't mean it, but it's still just, 
Yeah, no, you're right. They don't mean it in the in the most pernicious sense of it, because they don't know anything. He just thought, oh, this guy Hitler he's heard about, he knows that really gets a rise. That's the baddest cat. Right. That's the guy. It's so taboo that that's right. exciting for him to say it, of course. But, boy, that was bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about, you know, I had kids uh, that age. I was a kid that age. I mean, yeah, you know. No, it's true. It's not. It's it's not like he uh, did. He get a laugh. They were all just kind of a Twitter about it. They were all just so excited. Were they laughing when he said that? Um. Yeah, they were kind of laughing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then they were all. This was what really freaked me out. He did the salute, and then they did it to him. <laughs> so right. it was like a rally. It was right. So, it was so weird. Right. I'm reading Mel Brooks's autobiography, which is so much fun. Yeah, and have I you think read I have it? it right here behind me. Yeah. This one? No, Funny that, Man. That, that's an indictment of Mel Brooks. Oh, oh, this is Miguel. Oh, this is Funny Man. Yeah, this is not an autobiography. The autobiography just came out. That the the Funny Man one is not all not okay. completely flattering to Mel. Okay, haven't read it. Yeah. Oh, I, I recommend it. It's really okay. Great. So the Aaron Copeland concert went great. That was fun. Before, right before the Copeland, there was, it's like a medley of West Side Story, without the singing, just the symphony, just incredible. That music's incredible, and then one hit after the other, and then after the uh, Copeland, there was uh, Irving Berlin, God Bless America, with a narration where it's that that Colossus, that Emma Lazarus poem. Right. So we got to speak. Now, God Bless over. America should be our na- our national anthem. My Absolutely. only home. It's my, I remember seeing Diane yeah. Keaton sing God Bless America at a Democratic mm-hmm. fundraiser in 2007. And it yeah. was at the height of our disenchantment with the war in Iraq. And she sang God Bless America almost like a whisper, like it was like a, a candle flickering out. And mm-hmm. that should be our national anthem because. Absolutely. I think it was for a long time, wasn't it? Well, not I think but it says it, it's my only home, which means I love this country because it's my home. It's it's not talking about yeah. exceptionalism or right. war. It's Dorothy yeah. waking up after that dream right. and saying, oh, everything I want is in my backyard. Yeah. Um, yeah, it always uh, baffles me, the lack of self-awareness when people get pumped up about patriotism and the chest thumping, the lack of awareness that every single other country says the same thing about themselves. Not the way we... That's not the exceptional or interesting or good thing about America. We're not tougher. We're not badassier or any of that. It's the exceptional thing is the democracy, which is is so tenuous at this point. Favorite national anthem? Canada? The Marseillaise? The the Russian um, national anthem, Polish. Uh, the the Polish. Yes, Chipolskin, yes, Gineva, Stedemi, Jemi, Sonaobsa, Chemoswe, Marsh, Marsh, Dombrovsky. It's the Dombrovsky march. He liberated Poland. That's the best. How do you song. know that? I sang it at some. Polish cultural event at the Waldorf Astoria 20 you, years ago. You should come on the show 
and sing national anthems. I would love to do that. You should find like a selection. Okay. We should start your segment off with, you know, we're going to go to Ecuador and sing their national anthem. Okay, David, I love that idea. I, I do had too. I a fantasy once of doing a CD of the anthems. The, so I, I, I love this idea. I would love to hear okay. other people, because I think Canada is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, was it you who wanted I, to make, replace the national anthem with the horse vessel song? Was it you? I, <laughs> it sounds like something I might have said. <laughs> <laughs> no. You never. No. Um, but you see now that you talk about the eleven-year-olds. I know that's why when I was saying it, of course, yeah. there's hypocrisy there because depending on who you're with, yeah, I'll make jokes like that with friends or with you, right. or you know, right, right, right. But on the other hand, uh, anyway. But um, horse yeah, vessel yeah. was like horse vessel, as I as I remember, <laughs> horse was like the Ashley Babbitt of the beer hall putsch. I think well, Ashley I Babbitt was the insurrectionist who got shot by. The Capitol Police, oh, right? I see. I, I think see. so. Okay. And they and they try to turn her into like a horsed vessel uh, I character. And I think horse vessel was shot by the German government at some kind of big Nazi uprising. Horsed. You got me. Horsed. Nobody I was names just... their kid horsed anymore. I was just imagining that guy, Casey Kasem, introducing that song. It was number three last him. week, and now it's number two, dedicated to Horst Vessel, who got a little cut up at the last beer hall push. Here's the Horst Vessel song. Casey Kasem. That's a good... You did it. Uh, um, yes. No, I didn't do any comedy this weekend. I did that, and then... Uh, um, yeah, I'm just uh, excited. The book that I that I wrote, which is now out, you should get it. It's it's called Today Is Now, by my alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin, coach, guru, therapist, healer, visionary, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. His book Today Is Now. It's out on Amazon, and it it's now crawling up the bestseller list on uh, 90 minute short read uh, uh, self help books. And so I, I encourage people to get it, not just for the laughs, but because it's deadly serious and it will change your life. Not for the better, but it Today will change your life. Today is now is the name of the book. Yeah, with an exclamation point. Today is now. Dr. Samuel Benjamin. And Dr. Every, Samuel let, Benjamin. Let's get it. Let's get it to number one on Amazon. Yeah. Thank you. That's what I'm that's what I'm talking right. about David. I appreciate. It. I'm going to I'm going to put in the chat right now the Dr. Uh, Samuel Benjamin. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. Everybody he's very, he's, he's very arrogant this doctor. So that look on his face is Dr. Samuel. He, uh, he he calls himself chief emotional officer and founder of the New York American Institute for Eclectic Modality this Therapy. This is great. Today is now is the first book from Dr. Samuel Benjamin, founder and chief emotional officer of the New York American Institute of Eclectic Modality Therapy, EMT trademark. It's trademark. Dr. Benjamin's revolutionary methods take written form here so that all of humanity can benefit from his vast knowledge, his unique perspective, and his decades of clinical experience. As he so eloquently puts it, perhaps the most compelling and persistent of my visions is the vision of you and your world in full bloom. Wow, that's fantastic. 
Everybody, uh, every, hang on. Everybody go to Amazon right now, right now, and buy Today Is Now, the Kindle edition. Now. Do it now. Seven, it's just seven bucks, and uh, it'll change your life. I mean, seven bucks, it, it's, it'll change your life. Do it now. Today is now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Do it my now. My alter ego. And you my are Samuel ego. Benjamin. I am Samuel Benjamin. You can tell from the photo. But we're keeping that under wraps. Just for your audience, it's known. Um, but um, because a mockumentary is coming out uh, in which you see Dr. Feldman treating, uh, Dr. Dr. Benjamin treating patients and working with uh, clients. Uh, and the, the unique thing about his methods is uh, session two. It's just a three-session treatment. <laughs> session two, as he explains. Session two. Just a three-session treatment, really. Yeah, you're laughing, but it works. As he <laughs> says in the book, people say, is that possible? And, and I say, is it possible to drive to New Jersey? <laughs> yes, yeah, so not only is it... <laughs> Not only is it possible, it happens every day. Right. I see it happen every day. Yes, it's possible. And session two is what's really unique about my work, which is that session two happens in the field. Did Jane Goodall bring her, the orangutans into her office? No, no, she didn't. She went with the orangutans into the jungle. That's what Dr. Benjamin go, does. He goes into the field with his clients to what he calls the locus of their suffering, to the, <laughs> to the place where their, their symptoms are at their most acute, which is where the work can really get done. And then the third session is just a debriefing back in my office. And then you're cured. You're cured. You're cured, yeah. I don't even use the word cure because there's no disease. Um, the, the, the concept, it's very positive. It's, it, 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 uh, it builds on centuries of, of uh, therapeutic modalities and, uh, and approaches. There's a little bit of self-psychology. There's, uh, there's objective positivism. There's behaviorism. There's psychoanalysis. There's any, all the nonsense. I mean, all of the, uh, <laughs> all of the approaches. And, and what, all... is, what is it, Do you mind if I ask what Dr. Benjamin got his doctorate in, or is that a rude question? Um, it is rude, um, and I he's know. willing to talk about it. Um, he, as he, when, when questioned, he's very honest about it, that he's actually Dr. Samuel Benjamin, but he's a PhD candidate, PhD candidate. He's what they call everything but dissertation. So he doesn't actually. <laughs> so he's not, I mean, if you want to like really nitpick, no, he's not a doctor, but he's close enough. He's closer than Dr. Phil. He's closer right. than a lot of people. He's closer than Dr. Cosby. I mean, right. he's, he's, he's very close. He almost in two different fields, neither of which is psychology, but both of which are <laughs> tangentially related to psychology. He almost got a doctorate. So like two times almost being a doctor is, is like being a doctor. I agree so. with you. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's just two dissertations he has to write. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. Yeah. 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 So technically, yeah, just, he's he's a double doctorate. Technically, he's not, but yes, he is. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the the holdup with the dissertations was the typing. He does not good at touch typing. His handwriting is terrible. So it's not like the thinking. It's not like the thinking was the problem. It's the mechanics. The mechanics of the writing. And back in his day, they didn't have voice to text. If they had voice to text, he would have finished both dissertations. It's, and also, do you remember like an Olivetti? Do you remember the, the yeah, ribbon? Yeah, I, I had one of those. It's yeah. a nightmare. Right. And then the Swift Corona. So in other whole... words, it's the changing of the ribbon. If somebody would change his ribbon, 
It's the ribbon, and it's also the correcto tape, the white tape, that third, that other ribbon. It was just a mess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, in fact, he tried to hang himself with one of those ribbons once in frustration. <laughs> well, everybody. But, yes, but he's a doctor. He's basically a doctor. He's basically a doctor. Are you a doctor? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Today is do now. You need me? The answer is, do you need me to be a doctor? If you need me to be, I'll be a doctor. I'll be whatever you need me to be. And uh, so, yes, today is now. It, there's a combination of there, there's wisdom, there's bubomysis, there's poetry, there's anecdotes, there's clinical, just like in the great works of Freud. There are case studies. Um, it, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of meat on the bones of the book. Right. Um, and it, it, there's, there's veganism. There's explanations of par, there's parking technique. It really, there's everything in there. Parking yeah. technique. Parallel parking really is letting go, isn't it? Letting go and letting God, right? Yes, yes. But also, as Dr. Benjamin points out in the book, it's a great metaphor for how we conceive of our problems and how we can radically alter our relationship to what makes us suffer, to what he calls the speed bumps in our life. If we would just change our perspective, namely, think about how easy it is to get out of a parking spot and how difficult it is to get in. The reason is, on the way in, there's only one solution. There's one place to get to. On the way out, there's an infinite number wow. of places to get to. The maneuver is really basically the same, but because our mindset is, oh, there must be only one way to achieve what I'm trying to achieve, we get tied up in knots. But if we can just think of solving our problems as getting out of the spot instead of getting into the spot, it's... Uh, it's chick chuck you're, you're lickety right. split. You're, you're feeling better already. I, I can tell you are. Yes. And, and we need to think of our experience the same way we view. Our problems are like the rearview mirror, right? Absolutely. Uh, the life happens in the windshield, not in the rearview mirror. But the windshield, and, uh, the, the rearview mirror, the objects always look bigger than they actually are. Yeah, they look closer than they appear, just like the past. The yeah. past is way back there. And right. that's, a, that's very well said. Thank yeah. you. Well, I, I, I'm going to pick up Today Is Now, written by Samuel Benjamin. Go buy. Do this right now. Please do. Go buy. Can we give it the Feldman guarantee? I haven't read it yet, but it'll get the Feldman guarantee tomorrow after I buy it and read it for $7. On Listen, we don't... Amazon, you know, listen. We hate it. It's the evil empire. The only reason <laughs> that we had to go the Amazon route is because of that whole thing about the typing ribbons and me not being an actual doctor. Right. It was harder to get a publisher, so we self-published it. So Amazon is the way to go so that it can get out there. And the thing about Dr. Benjamin is that he's he sincerely believes that this will cure the world through just the way the way viral and geometric growth happens. Part of what I teach, I mean, Dr. Benjamin teaches in the book is how just by learning these techniques, you can really pass them along. So through, you know, just like you tell two friends and they tell two friends, within a matter of months, all 8 billion humans can have this technique and this knowledge. Right. Today is so, now, exclamation point. Yeah, Today no. is yeah. now, exclamation point. Go buy Today Is Now on Amazon. It's written by Samuel Benjamin, the Kindle edition for $7. Yeah. Is, and, there, yeah. is there going to be a hard copy? The hard copy is already out for 14 You can get that. Oh, so and you can buy the hard copy. You can get the hard copy, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. oh. You could, and, and how do you buy that? 
Also on Amazon. Just uh, same book. Just look for the hard copy. Yeah. You can get the hard copy for how much? 14 for the hard copy, seven for the Kindle, and also seven for the paperback. The paperback was supposed to be available today. I think there's still a holdup. And there will be an audiobook. Wow. Yeah. You know what um, we should do? I want to. Here's what we should say do. Say again? I have an idea. Yeah. We should yeah. do like a, a book signing event on a Saturday night. Thank you. And, Thank you. you know, we'll charge whatever, and, it, and you get a free copy of today is now and people can talk to the author um you're 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 reading my mind because we we do have a couple of book signing events that we've arranged here in brooklyn at, at two different stores but i'm talking about like we, we do it debate. we do it via zoom with our listeners and let's we do it i love it and thank we you. charge thank you let's do that we'll charge seven bucks you show up you get or what, you know, seven bucks, you get a... a and I'll, I'll mail you the signed copy. And you get mailed a signed copy. Thank I you. Bet, I really appreciate it. Let's yeah. do that on, a, on a, like a Saturday night. That would be... And people, you'll answer, or will, will Samuel Benjamin be available? He's always available. One thing about him is that he has a lot to say. Uh, they call it logoria. He can't stop talking. He Diarrhea knows of the he, mouth. Exactly. Uh, Diary of the mouth. And um, ultra crepidarianism is the word. An ultra crepidarian. We might have discussed the word. Someone who it's a sandal maker who thinks he's a shoemaker. Someone who knows something but thinks he knows a lot more. Ultra crepidarianism. That's his approach. Uh, a generalist, uh, someone who knows a little about a lot, but but really is his heart is in the right place. Um, and um, yeah, really, he knows about it. Any, any problems. He's very good with couples. Um, and great with animals and with with singles, with pe with people, also with extraterrestrials. There's a little <laughs> bit the book does touch on. It's not just for humans. Um, so this is great. All right, thank you. Today is now by is Samuel now. Benjamin. Go to Amazon and buy this book. Let's get it to be number one. If everybody in thank earshot. You goes and Thank buys so this much. book right now we can sell a copy i think we could sell one copy of the book. no everybody go buy this book ethan should be a number one best you are a comedy genius you should be a number one best-selling author i appreciate it. it it hit number 35 on the list amazon gets very uh category they, they make a lot of categories so in the category of under 90 minute self-help reads on kindle it hit number 35 on the on the best on that list so yeah we can get it to number one on that list and then once we get the subway ads going forget it it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> that's coming soon to the subway near you now do you uh, think samuel benjamin would do the show yeah i i could arrange that i love the last name samuel benjamin go by today is now by Samuel Benjamin. I love you. I love you. I'll see you Thursday. Thank you. I'll Congratulations see you Thursday. Thank on you. the book. Say again. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I love you. I love the audience. And uh, God bless America, as Irving Berlin said. Happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. Bye. Bye. Let us Thanks. now go. We're a little behind. I apologize. Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She is a particle physicist as well as our only elected official here on the David Feldman Show. And how are you? you're a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. 
how are you feeling? You got hit by COVID. Oh, I have to unmute you. Now, okay. good. Yeah, I, I sure did. And um, oh, feeling better. I mean, it was a miserable couple of days. Um, but I've been isolating and get out of isolation tomorrow. So I've just been staying home or going out to my garden. I've got a garden plot with the park district. So um, just even though I wasn't really feeling energetic, it did feel good to be out in the sun in you know, the fresh air and uh, just digging and, uh, and, and just training the, the training soil. I got virgin soil this year. In other words, this is a this was freshly ground up prairie. That was my garden. I've been using. I spent the last two years cultivating the other ones, so somebody's got that. So I'm just like you know the pioneers. You mean this it's never been cultivated before? Well, this was a section of uh, of area that was by the um, uh, the the forest preserve. And it had been essentially prairie. Who knows? Might a hundred years ago, it might have possibly began been a, a, a farm. Most of the right. area around here was, but uh, not for a very long time. And there are plants in Illinois that I've never encountered, cannot encountered in Michigan. I mean, these things have roots, you know, like thirty feet. They're the kinds of grasses that could survive prairie fires once or twice a year. It's wow. uh, yeah, and. Um, I discovered that actually wearing a mask, because I would sometimes wear my COVID mask and forget that I had it on, uh, was actually a good thing because there are some nasty things out there. <laughs> Suddenly I'm hacking and wheezing and have no right. idea what's going on. But, um, but anyway, it felt good to be out. However, I have to caution people. I mean, there is really something called COVID fog brain, and it happened twice while I was driving out there, it's mostly country roads from my house, but uh, like one time I'm on a steep hill near my house, waiting at the red light, and the, and the truck is in front of me got out of gear, and I just saw it kind of rolling downhill, and I'm just looking at it, oh, that's rolling down, that's getting pretty close. It was like something wasn't connecting, like, I better back up. Right, <laughs> and, right. And then suddenly it hit, it was like a thunk, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't serious. And it just dented in my front license plates. But then that thunk kind of snapped me out of it. You know, it was, it, right. and, um, and the other, and the other time was just staring at a light and it was green. And I realized I'm just sitting at a green light. How long has this been going on? Right. So I had to be pretty cautious. That's kind of cleared up. Well, are you anyway, gardening but, pot? It sounds like you might be growing pot. <laughs> I be. wish. I probably that would probably grow better out there. No. What uh, was your worst hurts, day? What hurts. was your what, what, describe your worst day with COVID? My worst day with COVID was uh, waking up early in, in the morning and just having a fever, being feeling like crap. I mean, hard hard to breathe. <laughs> And having a headache, right? And that was, uh, and and I felt fine going to bed the night before. And it was just, it it it, it was really horrible. And I was drinking water, and then um, I finally, I think I only felt better by 
downing some Tylenol and about a pot of coffee. And then I decided, you know, I better check this out. This, this wasn't like, you know, sinuses or cold or something. This felt a little different. And so there's a clinic just down, just down the street from me, and I went there. I didn't have a home test, but I went there and actually took a, a test there. And it was COVID. Did they put you um, on this new treatment that Pfizer makes? Or any monoclonal uh, antibodies? No, they, they did ask. By the way, they, if I had a, a doctor and I said, no, I don't, um, I, one of my colleagues in my company also came down with COVID, so it might possibly have been at choir practice the previous right. Sunday. Uh, anyway, but we're all, everybody at this choir practice, you have to be triple vaxxed and, you know. People but why, why didn't you, you, you decided not to get the, the, these new treatments? Uh, I looked at the monoclonal antibodies, and, and there, there are some side effects. Now, if I had if serious problems had persisted, like if I had anything like what I had been through early 2020, that was a nasty flu or early COVID, I don't know. They didn't have the test back then, but where I was literally gasping for breath for days. And what year that was, was that? that? What year was that? That was 2020. Because I, I came back from Iowa uh, working for Bernie Sanders, and I thought I was coming down with a cold and woke up the next morning. And then for the next several days, all I could do is gasp for air. I mean, it was just some going whole, and I, I figured it was a bad flu. And I thought, holy crap, they are not kidding. Flu is like, you know, this could be dangerous if somebody's got any other issue. Um, I didn't think anything of it, but, you know, the, within a week I was back at work. I did have a shallow cough. Um, but one thing that made me think it was might have been early COVID, which we now know was here in 2019, November at least, was uh, I got some coffee from the Costco and I opened it up and no coffee smell. I was going to just send it back, but I just didn't feel like driving over there. Couldn't smell coffee, couldn't smell cat pee. That was... Uh, wow. For, for, yeah. For a cat lady such as myself, those are two essential smells. And then it came back. I mean, my sense of smell came back within a couple of months. The other thing is that the first, the first Moderna shot did kick my ass, and they were warning that the second one would kick everybody's ass, unless you've had COVID before, and then the first one, if you were going to have a reaction, would kick your ass. And I had a pretty bad reaction. So, right. you know, I, I figure if my, if my system is dealing with it, if the worst was over in two days, now I've sort of got a little bit of a sore throat. Well, you know, just very mild, just kind of a little fatigue right now. I'd rather not um, take a medication that has some, now if, if this, if I were somebody for whom this would be really dangerous, you know, if it was, if I was really having issues with breathing and things like that, I wouldn't hesitate to take it. But right, right. Did you get, did is, you ever get, did you get scared at all? No, I, I got pissed. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I, I don't go out very much. Uh, you know, I, there's, there's, I, I pretty much avoid big gatherings of people. I guess the biggest gathering was choir practice where everybody supposedly was vaxxed and very careful, but that may not have been careful enough. As a matter of fact, it is kind of disturbing. I mean, the actual amounts of new cases reported of COVID 
for like like four or five times what they were this time last year when we really thought COVID right. was deep. Right. Now, the death rate is lower, um, partially because the variants are milder and also just collectively they're I was going to say more people are vaccinated, but that might not even be the case in that when people got that vaccinated last year, they thought done, you know, right. a lot of people got the uh, booster then, but many people feel they're done. And if you haven't had the booster within six or seven months, you, you know, the efficacy of the vaccines may have gotten down and, you know, no uh, caution from the CDC or anything about, you know, be careful this weekend, maybe practice social distancing if you can, and uh, nothing. I, I think even this little clinic, it bothered me. I said, uh, because they asked me for my insurance card, I said, wait a minute, these tests aren't free? He said, well, the insurance will cover them. And I said, well, okay, I've got an insurance card, but what about people who don't have insurance, which is a lot of people in my right. area. Well, the Walgreens up on the Indian Trail, they, they're giving, if you qualify, they get free tests. I'm going, wait a minute. This is, I mean, for people in my area, just. You're getting me so angry. Like, I'm getting so angry. It, yeah, we have 40, just, uh, billion, 40 billion for Ukraine, and mm-hmm. we can't get the COVID relief package passed. Did 40 we pass? billion for Ukraine with absolutely no auditing of where this is all going. Right. They didn't pass I mean, the COVID relief package, right? No. Yeah, they did. This is... And people without and, insurance have to pay, I think it's like $150 for the vaccine. And they all say, well, there are programs in the and the Biden administration is incentivizing local communities. That, that's nonsense. You know, people who are sick or don't have insurance, they're not going to like fill out some paperwork. Maybe if they have Medicaid, you know, that, that'll cover it. Maybe like uh, Medicare that will cover it. But this, this is, uh, I mean, they really want to, I guess they want to think out of sight, out of mind. We, we're just, we're over, we've decided that we're over with COVID. Right. Let me just, uh, uh, Jason, we're running about 10 minutes behind, if that's okay. Oh, Jason Miles. Impressive. <laughs> so we'll come back to you in 10. Is that okay? Oh, I have to unmute him to. Is that okay if we come back to you in 10 minutes? Who, me? Yes, you. Uh, <laughs> yes. We'll come back to you in 10 minutes. Thank you. Uh yeah, you know, I don't like beating up on Biden. I'm really trying. But he's got to stop going to these funerals, stop putting his arms around people and start twisting some arms in Washington. This is, he's, he's, he's not the vice president anymore. He doesn't need to go to funerals. He's supposed to prevent more funerals. <laughs> I know, but you know what capacity does he have anymore? I mean, it's it, 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 I don't even blame Biden. I mean, I'm looking at this as an elder abuse. I mean, we've got a party who knew. I mean, in the press, a lot of the press knew that there was something seriously declining with this guy, even back in 2019. And yet, 
you know, the prospect of a President Bernie Sanders scared them so much that they'd rather have they'd rather have a senile guy who can be managed by, you know, uh, White House chief of staff. I don't, I don't really know. Maybe it's Jill. I don't know who's really running things. At least with Reagan, we knew that uh, the vice president, of course, was running foreign policy. And Nancy Reagan was pretty much an astrologer. We're running everything else. But uh, with, uh, with Biden, who we don't know, and, it, and it's such a shame because if there's anything called, I mean, we have this, this maniac, Blinken, Anthony Blinken, you know, uh, giving a speech a couple days ago about how basically China is the real enemy. Now we're talking about enemies. We're talking about a country that has four times our population that has effectively wiped out extreme poverty. That's it's not maybe not a country you and I would like to live being raised Americans, but you know it's it's like what are you guys doing? I mean, without even Russia anymore, it's China. they're looking past Russia to China. I think maybe because you know Russian may actually end up calling the shots and what what happens how how the Ukraine mess gets settled, but you know it's. This, America it, it, has become, by the way, Howie Klein says Bernie, he hears that Bernie's thinking of running. That if Joe Biden comes to what's left of his senses and decides not to run, that Bernie will step in. Bernie's a disappointment. I don't know if Bernie's been holding back. The fact that, you know, I'm, I have to admit, I was really hoping that Bernie would have joined Rand Paul for at least all Rand Paul was asking in that aid package, quote unquote, to Ukraine, quote unquote, half of it's not even going to make it to Ukraine. It's probably already lining the pockets of various defense contractors, as we know. But that, you know, the old Bernie would have demanded at least. Uh, an audit an inspector general Rand Paul was asking for an inspector general yeah and you didn't have to like you you didn't have to make it all public if some of it was classified what they were going to actually do with this but at least that there would be a paper trail someplace and nothing and you you know how Harry Truman do you know why Harry Truman was picked for vice president as a senator he traveled around America going after the defense contractors and exposing the profiteering that was going on. Nobody accused him of being unpatriotic. It was just accepted that there was war profiteering going on, and Harry Truman, as a United States senator, uncovered it. And the Democrats said, this is the guy who should be president. There's nothing unpatriotic about having an inspector general questioning... Yeah. The, the weapons manufacturers and, and the beneficiaries of these machines that kill people. Hey, I can tell you, even at the low, lowest level of government, having somebody insisting on looking at what you're sending, having somebody pushing back on certain decisions, and that some causes some consternation. There's been a lot of consternation in my own little my park district because of things I've kind of pointed out, um, you know, whether I'm right or wrong, it's certainly, uh, it, 
people in my district are still seeing their taxes go up. In my zip code, are still seeing their taxes go up. They are not opening the water park that's on our side of town. They're opening the water park on the more, you know, affluent part of no town. No lifeguards. No lifeguards. And, you know, uh, I've been urging them, and this was the fight about it. I said, they, we said, we, they were telling me they did everything possible. And I said, I know somebody, your friend and mine, John Lash, who has recruited 20 high school students as unpaid interns to volunteer on campaigns. And the students told me directly they had not seen any, uh, they had not seen lifeguard jobs advertised, even though there had been job fairs, there had been meetings. But I'm going, yeah, you didn't see it. The school didn't make it a priority. And for people, particularly in this area, if the schools, parents are barely getting their kids off to schools. All these programs, it has to be run through the schools. It has to be, the kids have to be contacted through the schools. You have to make, for instance, swim lessons part of the PEO program, even though the schools now don't have pools anymore. It has to be coordinated with the park district. They don't want to move on that. Uh, people have got their own little, they, well, the superintendent of the school, she's very proprietary about her, you know, her PE program. I'm going, this is nonsense. You're both paid six-figure salaries by people in my area, you know, like, come to an agreement. We had, we had over 430 kids get swim lessons at our splash pad last year, even though it could, our, our splash park, even though it couldn't stay open regularly because of lack of lifeguards, at least the swim lessons, outdoor swim lessons went ahead. Suddenly, wow. I mean, and that was the only place they were getting swim lessons. And that was like 20% more lessons than had been done at both parks in 2019, the previous year when it was open. But, uh, okay, this is in the weeds, but it's like, you know, somehow closing down one park seemed to those guys to be, well, that was the fiscally prudent thing to do the other parks figure. I said, well, you're just reinforcing social inequity when you do that. You know, this isn't a business. There's got to be, it's not just a matter of dollars and cents and people through the styles. It's like, what service are you providing your community and which part of your community? And by the way, it is the Fox Valley Park District. It's, you know, and it's a top-notch staff. I mean, all these guys are super professionals. But I think that, you know, when they hear people from more affluent part of the district, which most people do, teachers, students, superintendents, they hear from the more affluent areas. But that's why you have an elected board to be obnoxious sometimes for the people who don't barely have the time to get the kids off to school are barely paying the bills. We have to speak to them. So uh, if things go on, if, if really well-meaning people at this level kind of miss the social inequity, then boy, I can, when, when the budgets run into trillions of dollars and, you know, people have some idea that they're, God's chosen that they're saving democracy or whatnot, you know, they get incredibly, and besides which, unlike myself, when you get to that level of government, you are surrounded by people who kiss your butt morning, noon, and night. Oh, that would be right. a nightmare. But anyway, what I'm saying is that it's this pandemics like this, be it, you know, testing, 
be it just basic services like swim lessons. I mean, it just seems that the, quote, reasonable decisions always end up hurting, you know, the people who most need the help of government. And, uh, and it's always going to be a struggle. So I, you know, I'm not so, I, I have very little hope uh, near term for the, the Democratic Party. And by the way, you know, the fact that not a single anti-war vote or voice, I mean, you can end up voting and Bernie Sanders has spoken out about all kinds of bills that he ended up having to vote for, for other reasons. But, you know, you saw him fighting. You saw Bernie Sanders decade after decade alone on C-SPAN, you know, addressing first the House, then later the Senate. Um, and it's, uh, it, it really, it's, I, I think that there's a problem with careerism. Now I'm looking for, for uh, people who necessarily don't want to make a career out of Congress to run for Congress. Like, I want to get in and out as fast as I can to get something done or at least make a dent or at least disrupt something because that's what we have to think of doing right now. So. Well, <clears throat> uh, by the way, best wishes to uh, Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband. Got into a car accident. It, it's not as damn DUI. It's the fact that the whole family is, you know, trading on insider information. But that just seems to, like, you know. He crashes yeah. a car. Let me ask you a question. Right. You crash a car. He crashed into another car, and he was Luther. drunk. Luther stops him, uh, and he's out on five thousand dollars bail. Does that seem right to you? Is it exactly what I expect? Yes. Okay. Uh, is it right? Uh, no. Uh, drunk driving. You know when you're. <laughs> when, when you're behaving like that, that should be, you know, that that's against the law. So, you let know. me ask Jason Miles. A drunk driving? Have you ever driven I've, drunk? I've never. I've drank one time in my life. Okay, I'm 44. What would happen to you if you crashed your car into another car, and the police discovered you were drunk? What what, what would your life be like? Um, it depends, right? Um, I probably have a DUI. Um, How much time do you think you would spend in jail? It depends. Depends on do you have money to get out? I mean, we have to be honest with the fact that there are people in this world that have money um, to get out of jail. You only needed, I mean, $5,000. I don't have money. Look, if I, for whatever reason got possessed and started drinking alcohol at 44 and crashed into a car. My first instinct would probably be to run. Right. Right. Which is never good. Right. Which, you know, I'd probably get lumped up by the, the police, but, um, yeah, if you have money, um, I was, I was with a young lady, uh, who, drove intoxicated and got a DUI. It did not 
hinder her life outside she of her. She was intoxicated by you, not by alcohol. I, if I had that power, I'd still be up north. But uh, it, she had the support system and the ability to pay for the classes, pay to get out of jail. You know, you spend a little time in a drunk tank and, and she has a very nice career. Right. Well, let's say goodbye to Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. I believe I do follow Marianne Cummings. And I'm glad you're feeling better, Professor Marianne. Joining us is Jason Miles. He's uh, it's a pleasure to see you. You've become a regular on our show, which is great for us. I don't know how great it is for you, but it's great for us. You're the co-host. I'm doing something I've never done right now. In my other room, my kind of production room, I have my sports show going, and I ran in here to do this. What do you so mean? You're, you're in the middle of your own podcast? In the middle of my own uh, podcast. And they're having a deep dive discussion about um, uh, the Giants coach, San Francisco Giants coach, Gabe Kaplan, that does not want to come out for the uh, national anthem because of uh, gun violence. Can I tell you my take on that? Go for it. Okay. He, when I saw that, I mm-hmm. thought, thank you very much for changing the news cycle, giving Fox News and the Republicans something to talk about other than gun (coughs) control. Now it's, what do you mean you're not coming out for the national anthem? You should, he should be suspended. So you can get completely off 19 dead kids in Ovalde, Mexico. He made it about himself. Do you agree or disagree? Because Kaepernick... Felt different. I think the same way. Well, I feel that way more so about Colin Kaepernick. Really? I think, look, any any entertainer, you've been more successful in the entertainment business than me, but when we decide that we want to be entertainers for a living, we're somewhat self-serving individuals that like attention. Like, let's just be honest. So I'm not surprised in this new era of athlete, especially post Kaepernick. He's the antithesis of Muhammad Ali, not wanting to fight a war like and, and losing titles and, and kind of being out of boxing for a few years. Um, Kaepernick actually might even have a better career as a philanthropist, award-winning, whatever you want to call him, than he did as a player to the point where we don't even really remember his playing days unless you're, you're a hardcore football fan. I just remember the Nike ads. Right? So I'm not surprised that a 39-year-old man who is also part of this new era of the look at me um, generation and movements are done through hashtags, movements are done through spectacle, Um he would say something like that. Uh, does it draw attention away from the children? No, because I think now the stories are getting a little gossipy, in my opinion. Um, this parent way. did this, this cop did this, this, this person didn't do this. And it's just, 
It's kind of surface issues. Okay. Hang on. You touched on some stuff that I want to peel back. Kaepernick, Mm -hmm. uh, it felt different. I'll tell you why. Colin Kaepernick, didn't he come out for the national anthem and then take a knee? No, he just sat. He just sat. Originally, he sat, and he had done it a few times. He was coming off an injury, um, so he didn't stand. And it was a slow news day, so he got asked why he sat for the national anthem. And he gave a very thoughtful, I thought, very thoughtful explanation of why he felt the need to sit. Why he felt that he wanted to sit. But then he took a knee. He took a knee after... Excuse me, I'm I'm under I'm a little under the weather. Um, he took a knee after um, he met with a Green Beret because there was so much pushback of hating the troops and hating your country that he was getting. So he actually met with a Green Beret. This is where I really lost a lot of respect for whatever he was doing to ask what he could do to not come off as disrespectful. So they had a, a long meeting, and the Green Beret and him decided, well, what if we just kneel? So any sort of capitulation to the criticisms that he was getting um, is more of a protection of brand. And again, I think we're dealing with a whole new era of athlete. Allen Iverson is gone. Like that guy is dead. The F you, I'm not a role model guy is dead. So. But is it, isn't it braver to, take a knee in front of everybody as opposed to not coming out, not being seen protesting the way the Giants manager is. And also, uh, I don't know. It just, it, the, the Giants manager, it didn't feel authentic to me. It, it felt, what do you know about? The, the, <laughs> it's the all, it's all, Maybe this will give you some perspective. And I say this, and, I, and I'm very excited because I'm going to be going to New York next month, and I'm excited to go meet you. Yes, hopefully that cough. Will, hopefully the cough will be over. The cough will be over by then. Okay. I, I don't have COVID. The second COVID test came back negative. I'm, hopefully I'm COVID-free. Okay. Um, I think we live in an era right now where people look at spectacle as movements, Right. I shut down a freeway. I'm part of a movement. What what, what does your movement accomplish? What is the goal of movement? Well, it's to to bring attention, bring attention to what everybody knows people are dying by police violence. So what are you bringing attention to? I want to know what this is going to do. What is the end result that you're looking for? Right? So if it's attention to something you're trying to draw that you don't think is there. Okay. But then what? That's my thing as always. And then what? Because again, we have to remember who we're dealing with. We're dealing with entertainers. I don't think it's contrived to the point of, I know the new way I'm going to get Instagram followers and I'm going to get a new deal with with brand X. I think there is some honesty to it because let's, we're both parents. To know that your child's last moments were crying out for you how can you live with that for the rest of your life? Right. Right. 
or your spouse's last moments were crying out for this, or just the fact your children were in that school and now they're shook. I had a blowout tire with my son. And every time we hit a bump when we're driving, he asks if the tire's okay. So what the hell do you think those kids are going through? That's a little bitty town in Southeast Texas playing music like you did comedy, probably in small little podunk towns like that. Wasn't nobody ready for no shit like that. Yeah. Right. And that means there's no, if you weren't ready for it, there's no support system ready for anything like that. We don't understand. And as even though we're, we're decades into seeing this almost every year before Columbine, Kids were shooting each other in school. Columbine was like the last one of that year that I remember was like, damn, how many are we going to have this year? There was another one that happened where the kid called a bomb threat because he knew how the school comes out. This was around the same time as Columbine, if not before, right after we started picking off his classmates. There's, there's so much of this that goes on. And here I sit in a country that is literally twice as violent as the United States. We have double the homicides with less population, more poverty, literally more crime, but not one parent that's not narco uh, affiliated is worried about their children going to school. I'm definitely not worried about going to the store and getting shot. And I, and I've been asking my friends in academia, I've been, me and Pascal were talking about it and, and there really is no, no answer. So I can't look at these people that they have to feel the same way we feel because anyone can get touched and that's the fear of it all. And I know you feel this too. So you you're living are, in Mexico. Our money doesn't keep us safe. You're, you're living in Mexico. Uh-huh. Per capita, it is more violent. It's across the board. Literally double the homicides. But is it uh, drug dealers fighting other drug dealers? Is that what it is primarily? It's, it's <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the violence is going to be for a reason. And this, isn't, this is probably going to sound bad. Like, there's violence that happens where innocent people die. Don't get it twisted. It's not all targeted hits. Right. These aren't marksmen. And right. sometimes innocent people have to die in this world for collateral damage. Right. Right. That's part of that world. Sometimes that world spills out into the straight world. But generally, you hope it doesn't. But it has its tentacles in the straight world as well. Right. There definitely is sex trafficking that goes on around me. Real deal sex trafficking. You know what I mean? That being said, and there's poverty here on another scale. But what is it about America that these lone wolf actions happen so commonly there was a time when it was like post offices were being shot up and he was like, Oh, well maybe they're ex military. And it's well, no, now they're just children is, is video games. It's, it's the music. Okay. And what, okay. Do, what, what do you, what, what do you think it is? I think it's a combination of a lot of factors, right? 
Um, there's always some sort of detachment. Um, and there has been a few school shootings in Mexico. I actually, David, I actually literally looked it up because I wanted to see, because I was like, I never hear about this happening here. And I think there was 10 or 11 in the last 15 years here or something like that. Um, or no, four and like a, a 15 people died or something like that in the last 15 years. It wasn't a lot. Um, but I, I'm glad I grew up in the era I grew up in. If that makes any sense. I grew up in the eighties and the nineties and the, the latter part of the seventies. Um, I got to have real world interactions with people. Um, I could mess up and it not be on the world wide web. Um, there was, there's always been a, um, there's always been this thing like, Oh, you want to be someone, right? There's always been an achievement because we live in this capitalist system where we want more than we can have. And I'm not going to wax poetic on my, my life. And I definitely wanted more at one point in time, but I never really saw it as a war, like the rhetoric that you see, especially coming out of the right. There's a war on whiteness. You are going to be replaced by minorities. You have to fight you need to be the lone wolf and do this to start a revolution. You know, you see people on the left always talk about, we need a general strike and we need this. And then there's all this talk about why that doesn't make sense. And that's fine because some of that stuff kind of doesn't make sense. But there's a different sort of lone wolf rhetoric that you hear. Um, maybe it's enticing even to the point where the guy shot up the pizza joint a few years ago, um, thinking that Hillary Clinton was molesting kids in the basement of the, right. of the pizza joint. Right. There's something about people feeling that they too can be the hero. And maybe that is truly American. There's something about selling firearms, be they AR 15s, or just Walter P 38s and saying that you will liberate your people, whoever they may be. So I'm, I've been reading an interesting book called beyond Columbine. It's like a Marxist critique of, of the shooters. There's a great documentary called murder by proxy. It's on YouTube. You can find it. Um, how America went postal that uh, another good Marxist critique of the workplace and how the workplace has changed over decades that, that creates an environment where people just feel crushed. Like think about being a kid now and your life is that scheduled. I didn't have play dates. I'm sure you didn't have play dates. You just went outside and fucking played. I still don't have play dates. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, there's so much to activities that cost money for kids to do from band. If your school even has band, right. Sports. My good friend is a coach at Oakland high. A few of his players are in the NBA. He has to sweep out the gym. Cause they're like, Nope, we're not going to supply a janitor for you. 
They have to pay for the buses to go on team trips. They have to raise money for tournaments so the kids can go play in tournaments. So there's so much um, of young people's lives that just are, have been privatized to the point where it's all about money. What a, what a sad state of affairs it is when you can't even go to an after-school program because your parents don't have enough money to pay for it. Right. Right. And these are things that used to be provided by the school. Oh, your mom's got to work two jobs or your both of your parents work and can't get where there's an after school program, which you can stay at for a while, right. um, play some games, hang out with some kids. Now, now even that costs money. So I'm not saying that we're, it's all doom and gloom. I'm saying that there's things that we need to look at. And if Kaepernick's knee or Kaplan's sit out can make the conversation get beyond the little shit, then maybe it's good that they're doing this to broaden the conversation. But these guys aren't really trying to broaden the conversation. They're, they're like I said, they're like us and they don't know what to do. What would you do if you could talk to the, we, we really, I, it's going to offend a lot of people, but the Democrats are right now in, in charge. And between now and the midterms, what would you tell Schumer, Pelosi, <coughs> Biden to do right now? Well, I mean, they're seeing the world a little different. It'd be, it'd be great to be in like a room with them where there was no mics and nothing and we could just be us and talk and hear what they'd have to say. Not that I think they're really cool people that I'd really want to hang out with, but I think they look at this as a bit of a win. Yep. Because the, the Republicans, there's so many far right Republicans in state houses that keep trying to pass insane laws about women's, and they are passing all these laws about women's bodies, about trans kids, about guns. The more this happens, the it's more a, they, they raise money. It's a branding, hey. it's a branding exercise for the Democrats. For both sides. So now you're seeing people, it, it, to me, it, it, uh, it makes the chasm that much bigger between the two gangs Republicans and Democrats because before where you couldn't really tell the difference. Now they're going, well, look, we're not the ones that support shooting kids in school. And people say, well, pass some gun laws. Well, we can't pass the gun laws because of Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, watching uh, Steve Kerr and his tear filled explosion at the, at the podium. Remember his father was gunned down. His father was a was a not a senator, but a what do you call the people that go hang out in another country? Expat? No, you get appointed by the government to go be in the ambassador. In the, yes, his father was an ambassador somewhere in the, in the Middle East. I think it was Lebanon or Beirut. Someone said and got got murdered. And he found out when he he found out his dad got killed as he was getting ready to go play a game <laughs> when he was in college. So he takes that stuff real seriously. Real, real seriously. So, again, I think all of us, all of us, from Buffalo 
to Orange County and the church. Now another school, another school. You throw your hands up and you say, what can we do? The first reaction is, well, there are too many crazy people with guns. It's like, yeah, okay, sure. But you know what? There was a crazy guy that bought a whole bunch of fertilizer and blew up a whole building. To the NRA and the NRA after that happened would not allow uh, the government to mandate that fertilizer have tracer in it. Did you know that? Mm-mm. I thought I I was under the an assumption now that if you were to buy a whole bunch of fertilizer and you don't buy fertilizer, that they're going to ask you some questions at the at the Home Depot. Now. I, I think you're right, but. At the time, oh, you mean then, yeah. But I still think you're not allowed to put tracer in fertilizer, so that the ATF and the FBI can find out where the fertilizer was purchased. The NRA was against that back in 1995. What a dumb thing to be against! But that's also the pivot of the NRA, right? Are they losing sway? I don't know. I don't know if the NRA is losing sway. I would like to see some of their numbers. I know their TV channel went under a few years ago. Um, I thought that was rather interesting. They've been having crazy corruption problems with their heads of the NRA to the point where even Ollie North uh, didn't like Wayne LaPierre. That's, that says a lot. Um, But in the end, I think we as people are trying to figure out what we need to do because I don't know what that kid's life was like at home, but it seemed like the people at his house loved him. I don't know. His grandpa seemed pretty broken up about it. Of course. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly, I always tell people I just had a few more hugs than some of my friends that went down different routes than me. And hugs mean a lot. Right. So I don't, I don't know what it is. I just found this in the Los Angeles Times right after the Oklahoma bombing. This is from the Los Angeles Times, April 28th, 1995. Technology to help investigators trace the origin of explosives after bombings, such as the one in Oklahoma City, was developed more than 15 years ago. But the National Rifle Association, citing safety concerns, have lobbied successfully over the years to block its implementation. This week, President Bill Clinton proposed using so-called tagants to trace bomb-making material as part of his broad package of counterterrorism proposals. That's the NRA. Protecting your right to purchase fertilizer. And you know, post the fall of the cold, post, post the fall of the Soviet Union, that amorphous war on terror, which it really is, is a, is a huge problem. And the NRA is acting as if they're protecting, because again, th- there's that pivot where they go from being a gun safety organization to being a, a, a Second Amendment puritist fight for the true Americans racist organization. Can I step away and end my show real quick, Dave? I just have to press the end button. Yeah. Well, well we should wrap it up because it's uh, Memorial Day and. Uh, Where you are, gringo, 
It's just Monday for me here. Your your country down in Mexico doesn't celebrate Memorial Day. Memorial Day. We've got our own holidays, man. I mean, there's tourists here celebrating Memorial Day like a MFR, but uh, I'm trying to recuperate in my home. Right now, who's hosting Beyond the Red Zone right now? Um, there's two other guys. Originally, it was not. I wasn't supposed to be on it, and those other guys were having problems logging into the system, so I turned it on for them. So it's Marcus of the Left Flank Vets and Mac from You Don't Know History Pod, who are two really, they have some excellent sports takes. We have a fun sports show on Monday that we do. How into sports are you? Enough. Like, how many hours a day? Now, not. No, I don't have enough. Now, I, I don't. I, I follow it peripherally. I listen to us. There's a sports station actually here in Mexico. I listen to it in my car. Um, but I don't, I don't get to watch it unless it's like a Sunday and I can watch a football game. But And do you watch a football game from start to finish? Yes, I'm a, I'm a very big college and pro football fan. Yes, was. Until? Well, you know, I have to do a lot of academic reading and I also have to do a lot of production work. To uh, Let's talk about things. intersectionality before you go. Oh, Jesus Christ. Video. I was I was liking our conversation where it was. Well, let's plug your video. Well, we're doing we're doing a show uh, tomorrow night with Jen Pan of the Jacobin Show on intersectionality, um, its usefulness or non usefulness, what it really is, what it really does, um, what it doesn't do, which is challenge power. Right. We're all about challenging power. Define so, intersectionality. Why is it being? Well, you know, it's like the intersection. Uh, so the the woman that made it very popular in the late 80s, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, was seeing that there were certain ways in the feminist movement that certain black people weren't being represented so if you're a woman in the feminist woman, but you're a black woman, but then you're a gay black woman, um, there's different intersections of uh, oppression that hit you. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it always feels like you're playing the oppression Olympics. The oppression Olympics. Ask the right questions, right? Right. Like, why are these people on this intersection right who who made the road in the first place those are never the questions it's just well these are the levels of oppression and this person has a higher level of oppression than this person you need to recognize that it's it's another arm of anti-racism right which again like anti-terror is like an amorphous war right right fantastic I will see you, uh, I hope, next Monday, right? I yes. Love, we love Hopefully having you'll you. see me and my, my beautiful co-host, Pascal Robert. Yes. And I'll see you in New York. When, see when me you in real life, and yeah, I get when, a big old hug. I'll, well, maybe if you behave, maybe. I'm not going to. Uh, uh, <laughs> Jason Miles is co-host with Pascal Robert of This Is Revolution podcast. And it's a great show. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, David. Thank you. Be well. Get, get better. Get better. Thank you.
That is our show. I want to remind everybody that every Friday night, starting at 8 p.m., we do office hours. All you need to do is go to my website to sign up. You'll see a little prompt that says office hours. Sign up. And if you would like to join our virtual studio audience, go to my website and you'll see attend a live taping. If you're watching the show live on YouTube, hit pay-per-view and that will take you into our virtual studio audience on Zoom so you can raise your hand and ask questions or just keep watching us on YouTube. The YouTube channel is slowly growing. Thanks to the Invisible Ninja, Dan Frankenberger, as well as Grace Jackson, Sarah Bush, Hannah Feldman, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown. I think I named everybody. Uh, if you sign up for office hours and you didn't get the invitation, always go to my website, hit office hours. It'll take you right in to the Zoom room. So if you lost the invitation, you feel you didn't get the invitation, just go to my website, hit office hours, and it'll take you right in to our office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. And because it's the first weekend of the month, it's time for office hours and hours. It's 24 hours of office hours. We've got 24 hours to fill. So please seriously think about signing up to teach anything, anything. Take us for a stroll, shoot the breeze, walk us down memory lane, go down one of your rabbit holes with us. If you have a short film you want to show or a documentary, run it by Joe in Norway. He runs office hours, and we look forward to hearing from you, seeing you. And while you're over at my website, please sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter is going out now every Friday afternoon. It's a recap of this week in Feldman. It's a recap of all the shows, and it has time codes on it, so you can watch the show how you want to watch it, when you want to watch it. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on every platform, and we have a YouTube channel. I encourage you to subscribe to the YouTube channel because it's a great way to share the show with friends. It's the best way to share this show is through our YouTube channel because it's diced and sliced and made up into tiny, delicious little morsels for you to share with your friends. I want to thank Benjamin Hernandez. What a great guy. He's a board member of Indivisible Houston. That's a grassroots organization that holds politicians accountable. He's also the CEO of Human Age Digital. For more information, go to Human digital.com or votesimple.org or invisiblehouston.org. Thank you so much. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Go to his website, barrywlynn.com. And his guest, Monica Miller, she's representing Happy the Elephant. To find out more, go to nonhumanrights.org or AmericanHumanist.org. Thank you for that. Howie Klein, read him over at Down With Tyranny. 
Follow him on Twitter at Down With Tyranny. Kelly Carlin. Listen to The Kelly Carlin Show on Sirius XM. Her podcast is Waking Up from the American Dream. She is author of A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George, and she is executive producer of the new HBO documentary, George Carlin's American Dream, about her father, George. It's directed by Judd Apatow and Mike Bonfiglio. Thank you to Dr. Harriet Fraud. Go to harrietfraud.com. Listen to Capitalism Hits Home. Adnan Hussein, Professor Adnan Hussein, thank you for bringing on Professor David Schmid. Go to Guerrilla History, the podcast. Listen to Guerrilla History, hosted by Professor Adnan Hussein and Henry Huckamaki. Professor David Schmid is Associate Professor in the Department of English at the University of Buffalo, and he's the author of Natural Born Celebrities, Serial Killers in American Culture, Zombie Talk, Culture History Politics, and he's the editor of Violence in American Popular Culture. He is also he has also recorded a series of video lectures for the Learning Company entitled The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. Thank you. Please come back, Professor David Schmidt. Ethan Hershenfeld, go right now to YouTube and stream Thug Thug Jew. It's a, it's a great book. Great book. I'm, I'm a great book. It's, I'm tired. Uh, and he has a new book uh, that I forgot the name of, and it's not on my one sheet. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. And, of course, Jason Miles, who co-hosts This Is Revolution podcast with Pascal Robert. Thank you to everybody uh, in the Zoom room who came and asked questions. Thank you. If you'd like to join the Zoom room, go to my website, sign up for Attend a Live Taping, or if we're in the middle of the show, just hit pay-per-view. It's free, and it'll take you right into the Zoom room. Uh, once again, thank you to Dan Frankenberger, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, Sarah Bush, the Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Andy Brown, and Professor Jonathan Bick. Happy Memorial Day to everybody here in the United States. My father served in World War II. Both my grandparents served in World War I. They came home and they never played with guns again. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Back and outdated and don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are coming, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on a cement floor. I know 
the bookstores are all gone away. Got me some books, I'll read them someday. Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts. And the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins that said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemore floor. Just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body, it'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Before we go, the name of Ethan's book is Today Is Now by Samuel Benjamin, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Go to, sorry, Amazon, sorry, and buy Today Is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Buy this book. It's written by Ethan Hershenfeld. Go buy Today Is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Thank you, everybody.